Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Blessed be on this most sacred day, the Saturday before uh, most people celebrate Easter. We are celebrating here today the Festival of the Christ, which is at the full moon. The full moon um, was um, exact on Thursday the 6th at 12.34 a.m. Eastern Time. So we're going to do our celebration of the Festival of the Christ both today and uh, on tomorrow's Ascension call. So let's go into our heart center and bring in the energy of our own Christ self. As we go into the sacred portal of the heart, we call forth for the full emergence and integration of our soul, of our higher self, of our monad, of our mighty I am presence, also known as our planetary Christ presence. So we welcome the Christ light of our own being, as well as all of our multidimensional being to merge with us. We see ourselves in a pillar of white light, blazing, blazing, blazing white light of purity. We are anchored directly to source, directly to our Mother, Father, God and the cosmic heart of all that is. And we are anchored directly into the heart of Mother Gaia. We feel the love and nurturance this brings in each direction. And we expand our pillar as we invite in everyone and Gaia herself into our hearts. We welcome everyone to join us in this ascension and resurrection work, as we say the following prayer, please repeat after me. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with source. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. So we invite the I Am Presence, the Holy Christ Self of every man, woman, and child to join us in this transformational work as we welcome the resurrection ray and flame, the beautiful mother of pearl that begins to overlay the white light. We see everyone joining us in their own pillar of light working with us in unity, consciousness, to truly bring heaven on earth. And we give thanks at this most holy time to be able to to be a vehicle through which this world transforms, to be the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. 
Feel your heart expanding in joy as we proceed and invite in for one and all, all of our soul extensions, planetary galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, all of the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families, our soul pods. We welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature. The whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the angelic realms, <clears throat> from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim. All angelic healers and healing teams, especially Archangel Gabriel and Lady Hope, that bring in this resurrection ray and flame. We welcome all the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary Cosmic and Hierarchy of Light, Cosmic and Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light. And we welcome all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams, especially all those that work with the Resurrection Ray, all of those of a Christed nature as we celebrate the Festival of the Christ. We welcome, at this time, all of our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light, all of the Christed ETs, especially those we work so closely with from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, and from Lyra. We welcome all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service, welcoming the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it, 999 billion times, 999 billion times in divine order for all, <clears throat> individually and collectively, in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth all those in our circle of support from the very first thing that created it to all of the uh, people, all of the family members and loved ones, every man, woman, and child, every pet, every animal everyone and everything that's ever been placed in this circle, all of our <clears throat> groups and organizations, businesses and corporations and institutions, all that is transforming at this time as we hold it in perfection. Every nation, every leader, every military, every government, Every executive aspect of each government, all cabinet posts, all heads of departments, 
every aspect of the executive work of each government, the legislative aspect of each government, all the congresses, and on again, this is not national, state and local levels for this nation, for every nation, all legislators on every level, all council members, and all laws, those enacted and those considered. And we welcome, we call on the judicial aspect of each government, again, of this nation and all nations, the Supreme Court, all judges, on national, federal, state, and local levels, all prosecutors, all district attorneys, all cases, all juries. And we call for perfection. We call for divine justice for one and all. And all of the situations of life as we ask to eliminate anything that is unlike heaven, all corruption, all greed, all situations that are less than perfection, our weather, our climate, homelessness, lack of any kind, And all of the things that would make heaven on earth, we call them in right now and hold them in divine perfection for one and all. And we call forth all of the energy around these holy days, this entire month of Ramadan, Passover, this holy week and Easter Sunday and and Orthodox Easter Sunday next week. All of the energy, including... The upcoming, um, the full moon that we just had, the upcoming new moon, the upcoming eclipses, all of the energies around all these things and all the things that people are focused on and have been in this last uh, month and the entire month of April. And we call it into our collective cup of consciousness of the transformation of the planet for the energy to truly anchor heaven on earth. And we call in Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her work sealed multidimensionally on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well. As we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution with Gaia, and she anchors all of that we receive, all of this resurrection energy into all the ley lines and song lines, the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, and every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, until heaven on earth is fully manifest right here and right now. We call this in and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So I'm going to share a little bit about the Festival of the Christ. This is the first of three full moon festivals in the spring that are considered the holiest time of the year. And the festival 
under Aries, uh, usually in April, and it's uh, right around Easter, <laughs> is the Festival of the Living and Risen Christ. And as described by Joshua David Stone, this is not referring to Master Jesus, but Lord Maitreya. And so we're honoring Lord Maitreya, and I want to remind you to to access his blessing. We'll talk about that later. But let's remember to access his blessing at 3 o'clock your local time tomorrow. And we'll call his blessing in right here and right now as well. So, beloved Lord Maitreya is the head of the spiritual hierarchy, planetary Christ, uh, galactic avatar, teacher to all the ascended masters, and is considered the perfect embodiment of the love expression of God. Now, at the time of this festival, the forces of restoration are particularly active, and these restorative forces emanate from the mind of God and are connected with the principle of active intelligence. And this energy stimulates mass intelligence in the birth of form. So we call upon it to make people think, to plan and take action along spiritual lines. And on a planetary level, this energy eventually leads to a reorganization of planetary life. I would say that is what we're going through right now. And these effects are primarily physical with the object of creating heaven on earth. So again, we're calling in this energy very strongly. The keynote of this festival is love in the highest sense of the term. The second keynote is resurrection, and the third is contact. And this refers to a closer relationship with Lord Maitreya and all of his disciples and initiates and a closer relationship between the spiritual hierarchy and humanity, and we call this forth. So we're going to go ahead and call forth Lord Maitreya to be with us as we sound the great invocation, which is always a part of the ceremony. So we're going to do that right now. Let the forces of light bring illumination to humankind. Let the spirit of peace be spread abroad. Let men and women of goodwill everywhere meet in the spirit of cooperation. May forgiveness on the part of all, be the keynote at this time. Let power attend the effect, efforts of the great ones. So let it be and help us to, to do our part. Let the Lords of Liberation issue forth, bringing them succor to all humanity. Let the rider from the secret place come forth and coming, save, come forth, Almighty One. Let the souls all awaken to the light. And may they stand with mast intent. Let the fiat of the Lord go forth. The end of woe has come. This blaze of resurrection flame. That white flame of ascension and, and purity. 
seeing it in through and around the planet and through everyone as we decree come forth, Almighty One. Let the hour of service of the saving force has now allowed has now arrived. Let it be spread abroad, Almighty One. Let light and love and power and death fulfill the coming, the purpose of the coming one. The will to save is here. The love to carry forth the work is widely spread abroad. The activate of all who know the truth is also here. Come forth, Almighty One, and blend these three. Construct a great defending wall. The rule of evil must now end. From the point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into all human minds. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into the hearts of all. May Christ return to earth. Where the center, from the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide the little wills of all. The purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center which we call the race of humanity. Let the plan of love and light work out. And may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So closing your eyes, being as comfortable as you can with your spine erect, once again bring your attention and focus to the heart chakra. Breathing very naturally through that heart center. And visualize the heart center opening like a beautiful flower. Breathing in a soft pink frequency of divine love. As you go within your heart, you can see the image of the heart of Christ within your own heart. As you continue to breathe this beautiful pink light. Now bring your focus and attention to the top of your head. With your gaze turned inward and upward toward the third eye. And once again, visualize the pure white light of the Christ flowing in through your crown chakra. Visualizing the pure white light of the Christ merging with the beautiful pink light of love. And feel this awesome, luminous, gentle pink white light begin to flow throughout your entire multi-body system. through every cell, every chakra, every meridian, every layer of your auric field, multidimensionally. With it, all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves coming in totally as aspects of the Christ. 
feel yourself merging in totality with the energy and being of Christ himself. Beloved Lord Maitreya is blessing us with such grace, such peace, such harmony. And you can feel the amazing love devotion and illumination, becoming your very own self. Imagine that inwardly you're kneeling at the altar of your own Christ itself for the Christ being is your own true nature. See your Christ itself bowing to Lord Maitreya. Master Sananda, beloved Lord Gatumi, know that in this moment they are bowing to your Christ self even as you are bowing to theirs. And realize that the entire planet is an aspect of the Christ waiting to wake up to the realization of his divinity. Each human's oneness with the one. So we take this moment to inwardly bow to the Christed nature of the entire planet. And know that as we are doing this, we are likewise bowing to the Buddhic nature of all things. Realizing that in truth, you are simply bowing to the divine nature of all that exists. Feel the beautiful energies of divine love within you pouring outward to the entire planet. See this beautiful, softly, luminous, pink-white light touching and enveloping everything in the sublimest form of love. Know that you and all are forever held within the aura of this love. Gently bring your attention back to the heart center. Follow your breath as it flows easily in and out of the heart center. Inwardly offering thanksgiving for the experience of the glorious love of the Christ. Knowing that it is our work to fully embody this love of the Christ. And inwardly, please offer this love as a blessing to the planet as a whole. And to any situation of a planetary or personal nature that you feel may be in most need of this uh, beautiful energy. Know that you are always able to access this glorious love anytime you desire and directed to any situation, person, or circumstance that you feel directed or guided to. We do that through the I am presence. I am presence to I am presence. Christ's presence to Christ's presence. So we ask you to keep the essence of this love inside of you. Anchoring it through you to all of your physical surroundings and to the earth. 
as we honor that all is divine. And we hold everything in divine perfection for all that is. Continue working with the resurrection flame. See it in through and around you, the beautiful mother of pearl. Angering for yourself and for all humanity, for the planet herself. With every breath that we take and we affirm. In the name of the almighty presence of God, Goddess, I am. I acknowledge and accept, and please say after me, I am my I am presence. I am my I am presence. I am my I am presence. I am a beloved child of God, Goddess. I am a beloved child of God, Goddess. I am a beloved child of God, Goddess. I am a disciple of the Holy Spirit. I am a disciple of the Holy Spirit. I am a disciple of the Holy Spirit. I am an open door that no one can shut. I'm an open door that no one can shut. I'm an open door that no one can shut. Through the power of God, God is blazing in every heart flame. I invoke the mighty archangel of resurrection and all of the legions of light associated with the resurrection flame throughout infinity. Powers of light come forth now and assist me in flooding the earth and every electron of precious life energy evolving here in the radiance of the mother of pearl resurrection flame. I have come to set the vibratory action of all energy in my world and in all the world. I am an instrument of God, Goddess, Reestablishing divinity wherever the resurrection flame is applied. Join me in saying, I am the flame of resurrection and action. I am the flame of resurrection and action. I am the flame of resurrection and action. I am a director of the resurrection flame. And I am humble before its magnificent presence. I am grateful to unleash the power of the resurrection flame on the earth. I am an instrument of God, Goddess, charging the electronic substance in, through, and around all life with the full power and might of the resurrection flame. I am an instrument of God, Goddess, charging the electronic substance in, through, and around all life with the full power and might 
of the resurrection flame. I am an instrument of God, goddess, charging the electronic substance in through and around all life with the full power and might of the resurrection flame. I am the cause of this blessing of the resurrection flame. I am the bridge over which it flows. I am its final effect of divinity reestablished on earth. I am the new earth now manifesting in the world of form. And so it is. As God, goddess, in action, I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Please join me in the following affirmations. I am the resurrection and the life of my eternal freedom and the light. I am the resurrection and the life of my physical body's perfect blueprint. I am the resurrection and the life of my emotional body's perfect blueprint. I am the resurrection and the life of my mental body's perfect blueprint. I am the resurrection and the life of my etheric body's perfect blueprint. I am the resurrection and the life of my spiritual body's perfect blueprint. I am the resurrection and the life of the Ascended Master's purity and love. I am the resurrection and the life of my Holy Christ Self. I am the resurrection and the life of the healing powers of the sacred flames. I am the resurrection and the life of my immortal perfection and illumined love of the cosmic Christ. I am the resurrection and the life of the wondrous gifts of my divine essence. I am Christed light I am the resurrection and the life. I am my Christed being. And I see only the Christ in all. For I am Christ in action. And I express only divine love in my life. And so it is. So we 
ask for this Christed energy and this resurrection flame to only magnify, magnify, magnify individually and collectively in divine perfection for one and all as we celebrate this holy festival of the Christ. So make sure that you're back in your room, back in your body as we anchor heaven on earth and do so through this Christed love and light. As I said yesterday, as I said earlier, <clears throat> Easter Sunday is also one of three times of the year that Lord Maitreya, the cosmic Christ, the planetary, once the planetary Christ, I believe he's considered the cosmic Christ at this time, offers a, an actual blessing to all humanity. He comes through on Easter Sunday at 3 p.m. your local time. So no matter where you are in the world, it is 3 in the afternoon, 3 p.m. I suggest that people set their alarm. I do that. I set my alarm for about five minutes before the hour. So I can prepare and get ready no matter what I happen to be doing. Sometimes we're in the midst of a family um, celebration. When these blessings come at Easter, at Christmas, it'll come for the we sunk as well. But we'll give you that date for May, the festival of the Buddha, the second of the three festivals. The third one is a festival of, of humanity, generally falling at the full moon in June. In any case, <clears throat> if you prepare ahead of time, set your intentions for what you want to receive. Set your intentions to include all of your family members and loved ones, all of those that you may be gathered with. At 3 o'clock, and that, that, that reminder, that alarm will remind you to do so, Open your crown. Open your crown to receive. And set the intentions to receive for the full hour that that blessing is given. The energy comes through for about an hour. It is absolutely wonderful and exquisite if you can sit and simply receive. But if it's an active time, you just do the active meditation and you call it in. Call it in in every moment of that hour. Call it in for every breath that you take. And ask for yourself and everyone that you are with. And again, I recommend saying that prayer. We do, we share it with others as we do the I am presence prayer. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with source and all humanity. And then the I am presence of each person can receive that energy and distribute it in divine order for that being. So it's something you can do to include everyone. So whether it's any of our work or the blessing tomorrow, I invite you, I encourage you to do that. To help shift humanity even faster. 
to truly make heaven on earth become a reality right here and right now. So I'm going to thank you for your divine service and invite you for further service because, as I said, we'll be doing this activity of light, the Festival of the Christ celebration on the Sunday call. We'll be celebrating the, the resurrection energies both Sunday and Monday and the Ascension, Ascension meditation and activation calls. And we invite you to join us each and every Sunday and Monday. So Easter is the only exception. There's, there are very few exceptions that we are not there. One of them is Christmas, if it falls on Christmas. Um, but every Easter Sunday we are there celebrating the Festival of the Christ and the Resurrection Energy. We start at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about uh, 25 minutes of greetings, and then Tara and Rama give us a 20-minute update. And then we begin our work of bringing heaven to earth in earnest at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time. This is a teleconference call, so I'm going to give you the number and the code. But you can find us uh, on the Internet. You can find uh, um, an app for the free conference line. Uh, this is the number that we're using at this time. It's area code 480-660-2224. Again, area code 480 660 2224. And I love the 222 in there because 222 in sequence, it represents resurrection and ascension. Our access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. I have international numbers. I have numbers uh, across the nation. You can probably find something local. If you contact me, I can send you that information. My email is Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I, at AOL.com. So I wish everybody a glorious, glorious weekend. It is going to be bright and sunny for probably the next week here in Michigan. So we're really uh, reveling in uh, some warmer weather and some spring springtime frequencies. And so I wish you a magnificent, glorious Easter and Easter week filled with magic and miracles in each moment as we truly bring um, all of the planet uh, through this resurrection and transformation. I love you all. God bless you. And with that, I'm going to um, thank Torn Rama for their um, transformational work, for their service work, and, and thank my sister Rainbird for hers as well as I pass the talking stick. It's all here for you, Rainbird. Now we know the white has every frequency imaginable. And the mother of pearl is just exquisite. And let's see it lifting everyone up, including all of the kingdoms, every aspect of, of human life, as I pass the talking stick with love and gratitude.
Thank you all. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for that talking stick. And thank you for your divine service as well. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And each week we need um, fees for to cover our fees with DBS Radio. And this week we need $316.25 to cover that. So we're grateful that that comes in in a good way. It came in beautifully last week. Let's do that again. And uh, so much gratitude for all of you. Here's how I make that donation to our account at BBS Radio. You want to go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And for this program, you want to click on the schedule for Radio Station 2. And you'll see posted at the 3.30 hour on Saturday, the True History, Herstory, and the Sarah, and our Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama. And as you click on that icon there, that takes you directly to our account with BBS Radio. And you can make a donation there for any amount. So thank you for your taking that action. and. Thank you for your generosity. We also have two programs on Radio Station One. They are at the eight thirty or eight o'clock hour on Thursday and Friday each. The Thursday program is the night at the round table with the panel. And the Friday program is hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. And the eight o'clock hour, these are central times. So adjust accordingly for your own but that's where you'll find that listing. Uh, And then, again, as you click on the icons there, you will be directed uh, to our account with CBS Radio, and you can make that donation in any amount using your bank card. So thank you again for taking that action. That's how we do it. There's three spots to access that account. And... We're looking for $316.25 this week. Much gratitude for all your donations. We're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week, they have three bills due on the 13th, 14th, and 15th. In that order, (laughs) the one is, I believe it's the gas bill, 148.37. $148.37 $148.37 is due Thursday. The gas bill is due on Friday. It is $65.67. And the dish bill is due on Saturday, $156.96. That all adds up to exactly $371. And um, we have $76 in the kitty, so I subtracted that. And that leaves $294 that we need by next week. And making sure that we have that each one of those paid on in a timely way. We also need the $496.50 for the car that's been owed for a couple of months. So we're hoping to get caught up on that ASAP. Uh, so that is... Um, for the car repair, 
and a spare tire that needs to be purchased. So all that adds up to $1,015.70. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a lot. And remember, we already have $76.80 in PayPal. So we could apply that and we can just each of us pitch in a little bit, make it, make it happen. So here's how we do it. We go to rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you click on that menu grid, and a menu will drop down with all the, the amazing things on that site. And near the bottom of that list is a donate link. Click on that. That links you to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account, where you can make your donation at any amount using your bank card. And as you want to access the friends option, I found the best way to do it is just go to paypal.com, put in the email there for Rama, and that is Koran, K-O-R-E-N, 999-49 at hotmail.com. And so that should be all you need to do to access that friends option, and it actually is listed there. You click on the little heart that's there for that friends option. It's notated as a heart. So um, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. And as you're sending something, please let Rama know. And that email address, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-39, at Comcast.net. And let them know what you sent when you sent it. For sanity. <laughs> you do lots of things for that because it's, it's hard to uh, to know what is coming in, so let's all call it in together that we it all manifests this week, and we they're able to catch up. And I forgot to list that they need two hundred and twenty-five dollars for their own personal expenses. So that's why that ten, fifteen, seventy that, that big number there. They they do need money to live on. They need food, gas, kitty food. Laundry, all kinds of things that happen in life. <laughs> and that should happen in a good way. We're grateful for all that Tara and Rama bring to us, and we're grateful for these programs. And they're hardworking people and stay with the program all the time. They don't take a break. It's 24-7 for them. I'm sure in their dream time, which is usually short, they're off doing the work as well. So... Lots of gratitude for Tara and Rama and all that they do. And lots of gratitude for all of you and all the ways that you show up. So as you're sending something um, to Tara and Rama and, or, and need the mailing address, it is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, D-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280 and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip code. I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information. And may the abundance pour your way <laughs> as, as we submit to our service and what we do here Um let us do what we can to 
make sure that Tara and Rama live in a good way. BBS Radio is taken care of. So lots of gratitude for all your gifts. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. I'm passing this talking stick, and Cheryl said it best. It's full of all that white light and that that pearlescent light and that pink light. And it's resurrection time, so let's all resurrect our abundance as we pay it forward. Greetings, Tara and Rolla. Here comes this talking stick. And I see lots of fairies and feathers and lots of colored eggs and (laughs) rabbits. And I'm seeing the dragon energy and that magical unicorn energy as well. And all the little people, the men and hoonies, the hobbits, the dwarves, the monies. Here they all come. Greetings, Tara and Rolla. Here comes that talking stick. All you commanders and builders angels, on this uh, festival of the Christ light coming in. Holy Sabbath. Happy Ostara. Easter. Yes, and as Aurora Ray begins, ascension is moving closer each day. And light beings are preparing us for this shift. On an individual level, the shift is in frequencies will help catalyze your soul level ascension. Your fifth chakra, which is our throat chakra, everyone, will be an, uh, a beautiful, a beautiful blue color. Um, that's the divine feminine speak, um, to how to connect with the ascended light body, consciousness. Um, Your fifth chakra will be able to connect with your sixth chakra, which is our third eye, everybody, and make it much easier for us to communicate with the higher realms. Yes, third eye, violet flame, Saint Germain. What do you say, Rama? Um, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> we have a really full uh, afternoon, so I think we're just going to dive in, right, Rama? Yeah, I didn't really talk to anybody but the plasma field, and it told me the story about Ostara, Inanna, Ishtar, Isis, and... Um, that reminds me of Lady Master um, Dodi Dai. Yeah, I could just say that um, they are preparing in the Wisak Valley for Wisak. (laughs) So maybe, let's see, what's the the program we're going to start with, Rama? Um, This is Dr. Greer uh, talking with the folks from... uh, third phase of the moon um, I'm not sure the name of the character let me see here uh, 
I'm not sure. Here we go. We'll get introduced to everybody. Here we go. Welcome back to Third Phase of Moon. Blake Cousins, we've got a special guest today. Dr. Stephen Greer, the head of the Disclosure Project. He's got big things happening in D.C. coming up in regards to Disclosure. Do you guys remember the National Press Club? Well, Dr. Greer is back in Washington. This was one of the biggest events in early 2000. And now, 20 years later, back in Washington, D.C., Greer, along with Michael Schratt, will be presenting evidence terabytes of information to the Congress, to the press, to the Senate, and it's all happening in the midst of our new documentary, UFO Endgame to Disclosure and Above Top Secret. They're still making the top ratings on Amazon and iTunes. Right now, we got Dr. Stephen Greer. Uh, welcome to Third Phase and your special uh, work in this field. Thank you. Great to be here. Let's get it down right now. You've been speaking about how you've been working with people that work within the black budget projects, the people that budget it out. These are the people that are assigned to the secret programs and uh, the cover-up. These are the people that should be bringing disclosure. They know it, but you're working directly with them in Washington. What is their take in regards to the the, the goal of getting this out to the public? Uh, you know, it's been 14 months that I've been working directly with these folks and Unfortunately, they are, uh, uh, you know, hitting a wall in terms of how far they can take this quickly. But they're persisting. Uh, there have been some unfortunate events that have happened. I don't want to talk about on on camera. However, uh, these are the number top, you know, the number one people in the entire United States government who would have the highest clearances managing the three-letter agencies, managing the black budget, but who have not been allowed to get anything through channels, legal channels, on the UFO, UAP, whatever you want to call it, issue. And the, and the, the, the issue here for me is that this is no surprise. When I briefed the CIA director uh, 30 years ago, this was the situation. When I briefed members of the Senate Intelligence Com- Committee in the early 2000s, this was the situation. Because what the public doesn't seem to yet understand, uh, and most members of Congress are just beginning to understand this, is that there are at least two governments. There's the government that we elect and appoint, the constitutional government. There's a secret government that is far deeper and embedded and more powerful, unfortunately, uh, than the constitutional government. And this is not a conspiracy theory. This is something we can prove in a court of law, no question. So when you start talking about what's happening in Washington, you have to understand that the people who are tasked with getting to the bottom of this, when they make inquiries through channels and, and within the government, they basically get nothing because most of the people in the legal government know nothing about the issue at all. Uh, and if they begin to get close to people who are working this subject, both external to the government as contractors like at the Lockheed Skunk Works, or inside the government, they're basically, you know, denied information. 
or threatened. So I think we're in a situation where they're, they're doing the best they can. And what our job is in the disclosure community is to provide this positive evidence and proof as well as the testimony of firsthand people who are in the system who can then uh, verify the facts. Uh, so that's where an external organization such as the Disclosure Project, which I founded in the 1990s, is, is really becomes a, a key uh, ingredient in this whole process. Because unfortunately, until there is an open hearing, right now it's an investigatory phase, and the information is going into a SCIF, a secure compartment and information facility, under a top secret special compartmented information classification. It, what that needs to pivot to is an open hearing. But to get to the open hearing, what's happened, at least with the initiative of right now, the law that was passed in December, is that people are being rooted to this Pentagon office known as Arrow, A-A-R-O. Now, of course, that office is somewhere between not knowing anything or uh, deliberately not wanting to know anything, in my opinion. So uh, having dealt very closely with these folks. So this is where it becomes even more important to have a check and balance on Arrow and on the Pentagon on this. Because as you know, in the past 70 years, there have been multiple committees and panels convened, and they've all been dog and pony shows designed to ensure the cover-up. So the only way you're going to break that cycle is to have people who do know what the truth is, which is what we're doing, providing them with the intelligence materials and the direct first-hand witnesses, and then they can be a check and balance on the publicly acknowledged process, such as this Arrow office. So I think that is really important that people understand that is what we're doing and will continue to do. In my opinion, they've made huge strides in the last year, year and a half. And so uh, our job now is to try to prepare and then bring to Washington, which is what we're doing actively, the military and intelligence and corporate witnesses that are willing to go through the current process. We're hoping a number of them, and I'm making an appeal right now, of them will do that, and then some who are comfortable doing so will come out publicly. Uh, again, uh, we're doing a National Press Club uh, event on June 12th, Monday, June 12th at 2 p.m. So, uh, And there's a conference, a two-day conference prior to that on June 10th and 11th at the GW Marriott in Washington, right between the White House and the Congress Capitol building. So we will be doing that, and the National Press Club event, slated to be about two hours, uh, we will be presenting uh, enormous amount of new evidence and information from uh, some of the nearly 800 top-secret military and intelligence witnesses we have in the last two months. We have had about 60 new whistleblowers come in to the disclosure project. Six zero, not you know 60. So this is of course a huge undertaking because we have to vet them. I have to interview them. The ones who are willing to come to Washington and give classified testimony, we have to arrange for them to come. And we're trying to see which of those might be willing to come out publicly uh, at the National Press Club event. Now there's something in between the two. 
is happening, and I can only speak uh, tangentially about it. But we have had uh, a meeting in the past week with senior people in the Congress who have green-lighted an open hearing on the subject, not a classified hearing, on a key and relevant committee. Now, this is in the early discussion stages. It needs to happen, and it needs to happen, I think, in the next six months. We'll see if that can be made reality. The National Press Club event that we need everyone to tune into, support, come to, uh, well, only 500 people can fit in the National Press Club ballroom, but we have the big ballroom reserved. Uh, And what I'm hoping is that that will create enough social support political cover for the uh, couple of dozen key members of Congress, Senate and House, interested in the subject to uh, very uh, boldly move forward out of a classified process where the public is not informed. And by the way, most of Congress isn't informed uh, to a very open hearing process. Uh, We've been calling for that for, as you know, for 30 years. Um, it has never happened in the history of the United States. Uh, every time it starts to happen, it gets hijacked by members of this covert um, program that, that really doesn't want this information out to the public. So we're going to see. We'll just see if this happens or not. Uh, hopefully it does. Uh, it's certainly been, I can tell you, this open hearing process through a key and relevant committee has been approved from the top down in the Congress. This is a big news, breaking news story right now uh, to everyone. Uh, just came from that meeting uh, this past uh, Thursday, and uh, we're now scrambling to prepare for that because this would certainly alter the course of what we're going to end up doing on June 12th. So I hope everyone can come. It's going to be history in the making Stay tuned. That's still over two months away. There's a lot happening every week. One of the things that has also happened in the last four days, I've learned of a very senior investigator for the U.S. government that was on the watch group list, meaning the kill list, along with a few of us, who is leaving the government uh, this week and has become an official whistleblower who will be coming forward, not at the, our National Press Club event, but publicly later in June, early July. And it will be um, explosive, given what this gentleman knows, the places he was able to go to based on the intelligence we gave them. Uh, it's going to be substantial. But I think that what people need to understand is when when these events begin to unfold, the real question is, how is that going to be watched, overseen by the public? Because it's very easy for covert programs to gaslight and deceive members of Congress. Because if the members of Congress don't know whether these objects are Chinese balloons or what, then they can have any kind of uh, credentialed scientist or credentialed military or intelligence official co up there and spew a bunch of nonsense and disinformation. Well, what does that do? That creates an enormous problem of uh, the whole process being diverted into something false 
a false narrative. So, of course, there, there's great promise with this, but there's also it's fraught with a number of dangers that I'm outlining right now. And this is and this is being headed up by people who actually do know. Do know that we have extraterrestrial vehicles. They do know we have reverse engineered craft. They do know that there's a secret government operation that's being run illegally and unconstitutionally. They know this. These are people that we have duly and thoroughly briefed. So I think that this is a game changer. Um, it's dangerous because if, if, in fact, they stay the course and hold an open hearing on this and they actually subpoena the witnesses we would recommend that are subpoenaed, some of them would be cooperating witnesses. Some of them would be very hostile witnesses, but under oath. And since we have information about what they know and what they've done, they will either have to testify truthfully or be put in prison for perjury. You know, you speak of the PTSD, even when you were uh, found out what was really going on behind the scenes. And you were talking in our documentary UFO Endgame about some of the PTSD that these people are experiencing when you're briefing them. Oh, yeah. Let's let's take a quick look at uh UFO Endgame to Disclosure, and we'll be right back. So there's a hundred disclosure efforts out there now, and I'd say most of them are just putting out, there is an echo chamber of parroting the narrative and the script being written by these black projects, these illegal black projects. So I'm a big skeptic. I always have been. I mean, if you take 99% of what's presented on this subject, that you go to any conference or internet search or what have you, I go, that's false, that's false, that's false, that's false, and can be provably so, but no one's listening because it's more exciting to get all, you know, worked up about a threat from outer space. It makes for excitement, the juices get flowing because humans love to have someone to hate, right? We've had some of the pilots and the intelligence people talking about them, and now we learn that this is an ongoing situation and it's not just UFOs. There's, frankly, they've been looking at other things which sound like they come straight out of an X-Files script. And the demagogues running these um, information warfare programs and psychological warfare programs, they know human nature. They know how they can trigger people into fear, but also into sort of let's unite people around an enemy. Short of a couple of little green men landing on the south lawn or the north lawn of the White House and saying hi to the press corps there, or landing at the next Super Bowl and, and dropping in, what is the what is the bridge between these videos and we know that whatever this thing is, it is not human. They want a new enemy. They've been wanting to build up a new enemy. The Pentagon office, a lot of the folks I know in this city absolutely realize that that office is sort of a window dressing to comply with the congressional bill that was passed mandating that the director of national intelligence in the Pentagon report to the Congress this issue. But a true investigation absolutely is not writ large. I'm on the record here and I'm in a position to say this authoritatively. It's gonna happen from that office. And they're involved with it. They're in close proximity. All they have to do is open the door and find out, but they're even being uh, left out. And what you're telling them uh, leaves them shaking in their boots. So 
again, these people, you say it's a dangerous job. Look at what just happened to our uh, former president, what they're doing in regards to uh, what's going on in the world. Are these people afraid? When the- well, of course they are. I mean, as soon as I got off the phone with them, the most senior person in the U.S. government covertly dealing with this, I had a, a Black Hawk helicopter hovering over my house, rattling my entire house. Yes, of course it's dangerous, and of course it's risky. Uh, but, you know, I tell these guys who, I mean, remember, these folks are not politicians. These senior um, intelligence and military investigators who are assigned to the government now as civilians, they're not, uh, even though they may have been JSOC and special forces and this and that, these are not people who are like the loafer, political, you know, no offense to lawyers, lawyers and, you know, bankers and businessmen. These are people who are hardened on the battlefield and hardened uh, in terms of special operations. Um, and so they, they understand this, but they have never seen something like this. I mean, one of the very senior folks that I'm dealing with called the group that they've encountered. Uh, and, and by the way, when they you, you mischaracterize this process, when they were investigating this issue, even when they went to the Lockheed Skunk Works, they were basically shown, quote, a bunch of antique aircraft with jets. They weren't given any of the information of what's actually been worked on out there in the desert. So I think that because that happened, they knew they were being gaslit and deceived. And because of that, they reached out to us. And after that, we gave them enough actionable intelligence. So let me explain what that means. Here is the deep underground base where this operation is located. Here's the gate. Here's what's in that facility. And here's all the details that we have from our hundreds of sources. That's all been given to them. Based on that, they didn't knock on the door and get it anywhere. They kicked the doors in. So this has been going on now for 14 months. And uh, so they have actually gotten enormous amount of information, but they've encountered the kind of thuggery that you would think is in a bad conspiracy movie. But it happens to be true, because remember, this organization running these covert programs is the world's most dangerous and largest criminal enterprise. Full stop in the discussion. So uh, forget the mafia. Forget the worst terrorist cells you've ever heard of. Forget all of that. This organization is way worse and more lethal and vicious. So unfortunately, they have hit that buzzsaw, but they have persisted. And uh, there's a certain amount of cover that we've extended. Uh, the organization that's been watching what we're doing, who's supportive, remember, this, there are factions of this covert group. And there's a substantial faction that thinks it's ridiculous this issue is still secret. I met with a man years ago who worked this matter for a private corporation, North Grumman, and he was astonished that it wasn't out by the late 1960s. And we were talking, what, 50-some years ago. So I think this is – there are people who are extremely committed to the truth coming out, and to the fact that the covert group currently running these projects is an existential threat to national security and to world peace and, and future security of the planet. And I always point out, don't take my word for that statement. Look at the very first or second, but technically really the first 
uh, CIA director, Admiral Roscoe Hillenkeeter. And he stated in a letter to the New York Times after Dwight Eisenhower gave his famous Beware the Military Industrial Complex speech, and Admiral Hillenkeeter stated that the secrecy around UFOs is a threat to the national security, not the UFOs, the, the secrecy around it. So now that was 62 years ago. Uh, now imagine the kind of threat matrix uh, that's presented after beyond what he knew in, in the early uh, 1960s. What has evolved since then, technologically, operationally, et cetera, and so on. So it is a very delicate issue. And this is one of the reasons why I think the next phase and level of, of laws passed by the Congress needs to be an amnesty period for a lot of the more senior people in that organization to come forward. Because what you don't want to get into is into a open conflict. Um, I mean, violent conflict. Because as Admiral Wilson, who I briefed back in the 90s, said, once he had it confirmed to him that what the best aircraft and weapon he knew we had were what everyone knows about in the B-2 stealth bomber, et cetera, and that this secret organization had things that could, quote, as he said to me, do circles around my B-2 stealth. So, and now this is the head of the intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, an admiral, sitting in his office. And I looked at him and I said, yes, that is the case. But the problem is we have the rule of law and the truth. And if we can disclose this properly, the public on our side, and they have their covert group and a lot of money, but they do have very powerful technologies. Uh, and I think this is why it has to be done wisely. I found in my archive uh, a few weeks ago my original set of recommendations to Bill Clinton to create an amnesty period uh, for senior people in this organization to come forward so that this issue could get resolved without uh, as one guy recently asked me, a bloodbath. Mm. Uh, and I think that's really what we're trying to move towards. It's a peaceful resolution to the subject where we don't go trying to get a pound of flesh from people. Um, the other problem is restitution of funds. There's a senior executive with uh, a major contractor for the U.S. government who's now early 80s who wants to come forward. He has several hundred million dollars that he has uh, he got by working with that a corporation and he's afraid that it could be seized under the RICO racketeering influence corrupt organization laws of the US government and he doesn't want his heirs his children and grandchildren to be left penniless so there are a lot of complex issues here and people go to you know so these are the kind of conversations I'm having with the one side, the people who want to be cooperating witnesses, and then you have this other uh, end of it where the, the United States government is just now getting up to speed on this at all and therefore don't have a mechanism and the laws in place to make this transition to disclosure, complete disclosure, mm -hmm. uh, an official disclosure happen peacefully. So that is another thing we're working on. You know, you're also working with Michael Schreck, um, military aerospace historian. He's been collecting the files, and both of you will be presenting over there at the National Press Club in June 12th over there right. in D.C. 
massive amounts of information. Let's uh, take a quick uh, look at, again at UFO Endgame with Michael Shred as he discusses the crash retrieval situation. Dr. Greer had talked about, and he wrote a white paper that discusses this. If you've got a classified program, you've got a USAP program, unacknowledged special access program. So from the very get-go, if this is contrary to the Constitution at the very beginning, then the entire program goes against the law. So they're not bound to their national security oaths because it's extra constitutional from the very get-go. So you can see the way Greer has played this is very masterful. It's very genius. So not necessarily are all these people under this umbrella of secrecy if the entire program is extra constitutional from the very beginning. And so it's a very good play that we can capitalize on. And it might be a wedge to get in there so that some of these programs can be declassified. All right, we're back. And again, working with Michael Shratt, he's been doing this for decades. You've teamed up with Michael to present some evidence over there in D.C. at the National Press Club, something historic, which was one of the biggest Internet phenomenons when he when he did it in the early 2000s. And, you know, hundreds of millions of people saw this. What what are we going to expect to see in D.C.? when uh, you're presenting this evidence? You got terabytes of information. Is What's the end game here? Well, obviously, when you have two hours and you have, if it was continuously presented, the information we have, the testimony we have, the documents we have would last probably three to four years. I'm not exaggerating. So the, the big challenge we're having is what is the very tip of the iceberg that can be that we need to present to give a sense of the scope of the evidence and the, uh, for example, out of the 800 or so top secret military witnesses and uh, folks that we've identified and many of whom we've already I've interviewed, uh, some of them have already been recorded. Some are now just now uh, this literally this month being brought to D.C. to give their information through this classified process. How do you present that in two hours? You know, how, what, what do you present? You have to understand you're not talking to, you know, uh, the mashed potato UFO circuit where people are, you, you know, conference people who go to UFO things day in and day out, year in and year out and know the subject. You're talking to the general public. You're talking to the people in the U.S. government. 99.9% of whom have no information on this. So you have to start. You have to build your case from zero and then take them all the way through to the conclusions, but also and the assessment, the intelligence assessment, but then the recommendations. What do we do now? So all of that has to be presented and done concisely in less than two hours. <laughs> so that now that's why the conference beforehand uh, is open to the public until it's sold out. I encourage people to come to that. If you can't be there in person, which would really be the most fun, uh, you can come and see it via a webinar stream. We're going to stream the entire three days, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday at the press conference, but the two days at the Marriott beforehand, that's going to be open to the public to be there in person, but you can also see it from your home anywhere in the world. And I think the reason we're doing that is we want as many people as possible to uh, participate in it and then begin to light up the system for the National Press Club event, whether they have contacts in the media or they contact a member of Congress or they contact 
staffers they know, uh, whoever it is, and in other countries, let's remember, it's a global phenomenon. In other countries, they should do the same thing with their country's leadership, members of parliament, whatever it is, because ultimately this needs to be a global disclosure movement. It, can't, it isn't just the United States. And there are these other countries, uh, many of whom I've met with some of their leaders. I've met with four of the five eyes. The five eyes are the, the, the intelligence cooperating countries of, you know, United Kingdom, Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand. I've met with ministers of defense for all those countries except New Zealand. And what, what I found is that in every single case, they were never read in or briefed on the subject. Now, th- this is an important category of witnesses. I call them inverse witnesses. What do I mean by that? It's how you prove that these projects are being run in a criminal manner. Because if a president or a minister of defense or a senior member of the Senate Intelligence Committee or the head of intelligence joint staff like Admiral Wilson or the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, whom I've briefed and other people like that all over the world have not made uh, any inroads into getting into what's going on in their countries or in the United States. That is prima facie proof that the subject is being run illegally because they can, you know, the, one of the things I just d- determined in 97, 98, once we found out that the Clinton administration and a friend of his just recently confirmed this to me, was never read into this where they had any control over the matter. And that you, you, so if you go from the president on down and even through the military chain of command where there are people who, if the projects were being run legally, the people managing the black budget in the Congress, the people in the Pentagon read into unacknowledged projects uh, like Admiral Wilson, they would know about this. And if they inquired about it, they wouldn't be threatened they would be read in. But that's not how this is run. And that is proof that the organization is, in fact, a criminal operation, unconstitutional and illegal. We have to establish these elements because now that the Pentagon has said, yes, the UAPs are real, yes, they're material objects, yes, our sensors pick up that it's an actual 3D thing moving in ways we don't understand, blah, blah. Then the next question is, what are they? Now, what they're being told by professional counterintelligence operatives such as Luis Elizondo and Chris Mellon and Nick Pope and others is that we don't know what they are and, but they're a threat to the national security. Mm-hmm. That false narrative, which we exposed two years ago in our documentary, the cosmic hoax, which you can see on the YouTube channel for free. Uh, that is the narrative that they created uh, as another way of deceiving the press, the American people, and the members of Congress. But see, that that little game ended about 14 months ago. So now there are people in the Congress, some are beginning to speak out publicly, uh, and kudos to them, uh, like like Congressman Burchett. We have, I just got a letter with 16 senior members of the U.S. Senate signing a letter to the Pentagon to step up their investigation on this issue. Unfortunately, they're recommending it through the Arrow Office, which, in my opinion, uh, may or may not be an actual clean or, or trustworthy mechanism. But at least the members of Congress, the Senate and House are stepping up and are stepping forward very decisively. 
Hey, they're asking questions. And again, Tim Burchett is the, speaks of a major cover-up. He, he agrees with you that there is some kind of a secret being hidden from us and it's on a high level of right. secrecy and he's demanding the truth. And he says there's this blackmail politics going on with people that have answers, but they're not going to come forward because they usually got something on them. This is how he says Washington worked. Yeah, of so, course. Do we, <laughs> exactly. Do we need more, uh, Tim Burchett's out there? How many <laughs> other congressmen are, uh, uh, being as, um, dare I say, ballsy as uh, Congressman Tim Burchett coming forward and asking questions or all well, these well, other – go ahead. Well, there, there have been – he's been very outspoken. But, you know, Senator Rubio's been made some very strong comments. There are other members of Congress and Senate who have it milder perhaps in their approach. But I think there are – don't mistake what's said publicly – with what they feel is going on. But you, the point you make about uh, using blackmail files, this is as old as the Hills where you get, try to get dirt on someone and use it against them. Uh, and of course, you know, famously J. Edgar Hoover had a file on everybody, mm-hmm. every president, every congressman, everybody, everybody, everybody. And that's how he stayed in, in power was that he, no one dared challenge him because he could, ruined them with all the dirty tricks and and stuff they had on people so yes that is something that happens day in and day out and day in and day out um and so what i always tell people is that so what you just have to ignore that noise but if you're a politician and you have to get reelected, you can't ignore it and so this does become a problem but there too one of the things we're going to call for and i have not talked about this before is that there be an immediate uh, investigation, criminal investigation, subsequent to these open hearings that are being now talked about actually occurring by the Department of Justice to prosecute those who have been involved in felonious activity, drug running, money laundering, uh, threats and intimidation, assassinations, uh, so-called wet works, uh, the use of force to kill people who know too much. All of that needs to be moved quickly into an investigation because uh, I have dealt just recently with two very key top secret witnesses who have been uh, had this sort of a dirty trick bag of tricks played on them. Remember at this time also with AI and what they call deep fakes, um, both audio and video deep fakes, uh, they can create anything. A man that I know not long ago in the last nine months um, had a couple of men approach him, and they said, look at your phone. And on his phone, they had put horrible things on it and said to him, you either keep your mouth shut or you're going to go to prison and never see your, your children again for those as long as you live, quote, unquote. This is the kind of stuff I deal with day in and day out. Now, I think something like that should be immediately handed over to people with the investigatory power and prosecutorial power that whoever did that should be arrested and tried for treason, number one, and then number two, uh, felonious threats and intimidation and what have you. 
But see, this is the sort of thing that has happened for years. There's there are people who have documented over the last 70 years many occasions of this happening to either public officials, UFO researchers, or whatever. Now, with the kind of technology that is, exists, you know, they could they could show you, uh, you know, having an affair with uh, Kim Kardashian or whoever and make it look like it was 100% real. Uh, and this is the problem. They have the technologies and the means and the intent to do this. So how do you how do you get that under control? Again, the you have to begin to stay not only within the law, but use the power of the law to protect the brave and good people who want to come forward, whether it's a member of Congress wanting to support this process or a top secret whistleblower or whoever it is. And I think that. That is a really important element that's been missing. We've all been doing this in the wilderness without any official protection, which is in and of itself an outrageous situation. So that has to also, I think, be put into place sooner rather than later. Speaking of AI and the advancement of it, it's just it's been unloaded to the public. People are using it. Kids are using it. Chat GBT passing uh, their courses. But a whole new level is the AI as far as uh, generating people and mm-hmm. uh, situations. Oh, sure. How yep. far advanced is this going to get? Is this going to be a tool for the false flag alien invasion when oh, they sure. uh, set this AI in uh, motion with these graphics that seem photorealistic that we won't be able to tell whether it's real or not? This is getting to a to a stage. So it already you, is. It already is. But yep. here, here's your question. I forget one key point. Whatever you know about through a Google search or that's on CNN or in The Economist or some magazine is at least five to 20 generations behind what these covert programs have. So if you think the state of the art of this capability is what you're hearing and reading about, uh, you need to take a wake up pill. Because that is not how technology happens. These classified projects uh, have technologies way in advance of anything that is known and discussed uh, in the tech sector or in the public media. And this is, is a dangerous situation. This is why the man who in 1997, and we're trying to track him down again, uh, who was sequestered out of the briefings we were doing for members of Congress at that time in Washington, he had been on an interagency committee in 1974 where they could hit a button and simulate an alien invasion on the planet seamlessly. And he said everyone from the president on down would be deceived by it. So that system has been fully operational. He said it was fully operational well before his tenure there. Now, I have heard this from enough people to know that that capability can, that card, the, the sort of the fake alien invasion card can be played at any time. And what most people don't understand, uh, is that that card began to be played in 1953 and 1954. Mm-hmm. What do I mean? <clears throat> Once we mastered gravity control in 1954 and be, they knew they were about there in 53, we have a document from the CIA director talking about the psychological warfare value of the UFO subject. The same language was used in the document that Jacques Vallée has but won't release. That is a CIA document from 1985 
that explicitly talks about the CIA committing atrocities in Latin America, in Brazil and Argentina, staging alien abductions for their, quote, psychological warfare value, et cetera, and so on. Now, we have multiple data points on this. Now, one of the things the public has to understand is that everyone's belief about this issue, aliens, UFOs, the whole zeitgeist, it's 90% staged deception. Now, are there actually extraterrestrial civilizations? Yes. Have they been engaging in those sort of activities? No. We know for a fact these abductions and mutilations are done by the, this clandestine organization. Uh, and there is growing body of evidence for that. But the problem is, is that when people talk about when will this false flag happen, I said, uh, look in your rearview mirror for 70 years. That's when it started. It started 70 years ago. Now we're living in, that's all the psychological preparatory phase. The question is, when do, will they play that final card? And if they do, what are our defenses? I think our only way we can prevent that card from being played is to expose the entire program. Expose what they've been doing, how they've been doing it, what part of this is true, what part is false. I don't think it's a coincidence <clears throat> that about the time we were working on together on your film and I had gotten these senior members of the government read into these projects and they started getting doors entering, kicking in doors that the uh, Pentagon received from Dr. Kit Green et al. Uh, and released 1500 pages of accounts of people being quote injured by UAPs unwanted pregnancies, neurological damage, burns. Now, every single one of those cases were done by humans against humans, made to look like it was a, quote, UFO. Well, it was a UFO in the sense that the victim did, it was unidentified, but they staged it to look alien. So they've already started playing that card, but every, no one's watching this. No one's paying attention to what's going on. So when that got released, I went, yep, here we go. Then the, after I brought the first senior military witness who had been a early U-2 spy plane pilot with multiple encounters with these ET craft, as well as working with the Lockheed Skunk Works and others and been rich personally into this process in DC. You had all of February light up with these Chinese balloons and UAPs we shot down. Uh, so, you know, this is, this is no coincidence, my friend. Uh, but at the same time, this, we expect this. This is not so surprising to us at all. Um, it would be surprising if they didn't do it. So we are factoring all this in our algorithm and planning. But the public needs to be aware that the more this process of the subject coming out happens, the more there's going to be a counter push to pull it into we're being invaded. There are threats to the national security. We need an extra $10 trillion from the world economy to fight the big bad aliens invading us. I mean, that's what the, the game has always been. This is what Werner von Braun said on his deathbed to Carol Rosen. We know this. So the, the issue is how do we avert it? Well, I think the disclosure of the truth and proving what we're discussing here and having a full investigation, you can't do that in a two-hour press conference having a full investigation, an open hearing, and then the Department of Justice 
with someone who's a clean investigator, if you can find one in Washington, yeah. uh, really drill down on this. But they'd have to be beyond reproach. They couldn't be someone who could be blackmailed or bought off. I mean, let's not forget a senior member of the, the private contracting world on UFOs in 93 told me, quote, we have given at least 10,000 people $10 million a piece or more to secure their cooperation with our project. And, you know, I had had two or three attempts to purchase me back in those days, and they found out I wasn't for sale. So now they're, the only way they can deal with me is to defame me and call me names, and it's fine. I mean, if 30 years of being called every nasty name in the book, I couldn't care less. But you get a pretty thick skin. But the point I'm making, however, is that most people just now stepping onto the field, who if you're in the U.S. government and you're either threatened or you're – you know, there's this nasty oppo research they have on you or that they create or they offer you a lot of money or a powerful position. Unfortunately, most humans are going to be affected by that kind of approach. And this is why to really get to this, I always tell people the bottom line on this is what's in your heart. What are your intentions? Do you have the courage to go forward? And are you incorruptible? You have to be absolutely incorruptible. You know, it's it's amazing. People are waking up. We're making these documentaries. You're making documentaries. You got another one uh, coming up in uh, in June. It'll be the biggest one. It's called you- The Lost Century and How to Reclaim It. Go to thelostcenturyfilm.com. Uh, you can see what we're doing. Uh, it's been finished. It's delivered to the distributor. It's going to drop June 6th. So here's the timing. The Lost Century and How to Reclaim It, that is an expose of all these covert technologies, free energy, zero-point energy, anti-gravity. That comes out June 6th. The conference in Washington is on June 10th and 11th, and the National Press Club event is on June 12th. So that's going to be a very momentous week. Absolutely. And then UFO Endgame to Disclosure is still the top documentary on iTunes, Amazon. It's been rolling for about three weeks. Mm-hmm. And people are uh, turning out. Actually, we just dropped the price uh, for rental so people could go watch it at a lower price versus mm-hmm. purchasing the documentary. But again, making the number one spot on Amazon, mm-hmm. iTunes, all grassroots, no no uh, advertising. People just want to get out there. And mm-hmm. it's all word of mouth because these are the biggest questions that people want to get answers to and that's what we're we're here for we're we're trying to break it wide open and again yes. Good it work. has to be yeah thank every, you. everyone liked it who saw it i mean i just want people to know i i'm not the producer on that i was interviewed but um i i think everyone i know who's seen it has loved it and <clears throat> people thought it was very well done hard-hitting and it's a good compliment to the other body of work we have i think that uh, the reason we're releasing the lost century now is that most people now who follow the news at all on this subject know that the UFOs are real. The Pentagon has said they're real. There's a process to investigate them, even though it's been diverted in a number of directions with that arrow office where, you know, the people heading that up either don't know anything relevant about the subject or they are pretending not to know. But nevertheless, uh, now the question has to be answered. Why? I, you know, when I first got on the stage doing this as an emergency doctor, and I'm briefing the director of the CIA, 
he did not need to be convinced that the UFOs were real. He didn't understand why he and the president were being denied access and what was so important that the president and he and other senior people in the cabinet, including the secretary of defense, uh, were being denied access. And I had to explain it isn't because of little green or gray men. It's because the technologies behind how those things move uh, have been studied, figured out, made fully operational and reverse engineered since the 1950s, which means it's the end of oil, gas, coal, nuclear power, surface roads, public utilities. Shall I continue? Now, what does that mean? It means that the quadrillion of hundreds of trillions of dollars in assets linked to that part of the industrial base of the economy will have to be retired and transitioned to an entirely new macroeconomic and social system that doesn't uh, 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 relegate uh, to a very small number of massively wealthy industrial folks uh, the control over the whole global economy. And so this is something that people in, with enormous wealth and power do not want to see happen. Now, that's why it's been stalled. This is why Eisenhower lost control of these projects in the 50s. It's why General Patton was killed, made to look like an automobile wreck. Um, because people who are advocating for this coming out were hitting butting heads with some of the most powerful fascists industrial uh, people uh, in the world that are at the backbone of the entire modern industrial economy. So these sort of issues, and it's not just U.S., it's global, uh, is really important. I mean, you know, the entire U.S. federal budget, five, six trillion dollars a year, which is as massive as that sounds, is a rounding error compared to the assets and revenue of the industries and the parts of the financial system related to what I just described in the energy propulsion utility sector. So the, the, the power isn't in the U.S. government. The power is beyond it, above it, within it, hidden to most people who are elected to the office. Slowly they're waking up to this, but it, I'm hoping it's not a day late, a dollar short or, you know, a quadrillion dollars short. Uh, we have known this. I've known this since the early 90s. Now, this is the big question that has we have to begin to answer. I don't think we need to, you know, the, the UFO subculture needs to understand that the situation at this point is put forward the most dispositive evidence you have. And I would recommend anybody in possession of government documents, pilot cases, CE2 cases where it's left physical evidence, uh, anyone who's a military whistleblower, government contractor who wants to come forward either secretively or publicly, they need to contact me at info at SiriusDisclosure.com, S-I-R-I-U-S Disclosure.com. If you have that kind of material, we need it immediately. Uh, if you are that kind of witness, we need to be in touch immediately. Uh, and in particular, if you're willing to come out publicly, which I know for many people is scary, but remember, we already have some 70 disclosure project witnesses that have come forward since 2001, and none of them have been threatened. None of them have been killed. None of them have had anything bad happen to them. So I tell people we beta tested the system. Uh, we need a lot of people to come forward. I was on a Navy SEAL show 
uh, about a month and a half ago called the Sean Ryan show. And, uh, he was wonderful. And, uh, it's a whole group of Navy SEALs who are supportive and protecting us also. And what I tell people is that, that from that, a network is growing of people who have been Delta Force, Navy SEAL, military who are stepping out of the shadows. But we need that to become an avalanche yeah. of people because we need that dam to burst because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who've been involved at one level or another in these projects over the decades. And so we need those people to come forward. Now there's a legal mechanism for them to testify and give their information to these investigators and these oversight committees in the Congress um, where they're protected legally. And so I'd say the door's open. Let's move through it before something happens where they slam it shut. You know, my concern is after we did the National Press Club event in 2001, May 9th, if four months later we had 9-11. And so, you know, world events can evolve that then overtake the momentum of something like this, whether planned or unplanned. You can make your own conclusions. But we need to move expeditiously now that this door is open. It's a mind-blowing situation. For the public, it's like, oh, a conspiracy theory, it's entertaining. But if you're actually in a responsible position and you find out that there's a whole secret government program that you don't know about, it's a shock. This report comes from a shadowy Pentagon department that was shut down in 2012. The disclosure movement has been hijacked by people carrying the narrative and the script being written by these black projects. I would say 90 plus percent of everything that's going to come out is false. The most widely seen UFO right now is not alien, it's actually ours. It's a great cover story for all kinds of criminal activities. Blame it on the aliens, right? If we are being visited by interdimensional beings, we should know about it. This has the big disadvantage of the truth being much more unbelievable than the fiction. It's the crash retrievals that are the Rosetta Stone for solving the UFO cover-up. The implications of this is the difference between extinction-level civilization versus one that's going to take off to the stars. Absolutely, it's a buckle-up time. You know, UFO yeah. Endgame's out, and, uh, you know, you got the Lost Century coming up, the National Press Club. It's all happening, and we're going to be – the links are uh, in the description below, so you could uh, take a look at all the events coming up. Check, take a look at the documentaries. I know uh, we're just about out of time here, Dr. Right. Stephen Greer, but, you know, the, the end game is disclosure and, you know, free energy at this point and change the world and have a paradigm shift. And I think we're on the right path. But again, you just never know what's going to happen. So people do have to come forward while the timing is right. And, right. Uh, you know, it's going to be it's going to be an amazing year this year. And what's happening with Congress and maybe more hearings. We'll see what happens. But, you know, things are moving forward in a positive direction. And with people and whistleblowers that are out there that are willing to put their life on the line. Right. Uh, and they, know, and, and, and they it does take courage. But I actually don't think anyone's going to be harmed. You know, the, what we 
You're, you're, I'm, you're talking to the canary in the mine shaft here mm-hmm. because I'm the, the person, the head person bringing these people into D.C. and organizing and pushing on this issue for 30 years. So, you know, luckily they don't wet work me and kill me. You know, I have plans if they do, they're going to be very, very sorry they did, mm-hmm. um, which I won't talk about. But I will say that I'm more dangerous dead than alive. Yeah. So, and I've made that to an extension to anyone who's a, a cooperating person, whether they're in the government or one of these military witnesses. So it's the best we can do until there's a more official process that exists. And I think we're going to, we're just seeing the beginning of this process, but time isn't on our side. One of the things I've said to these senior people in Washington is that I know the U S government moves at the speed of uh, molasses in Vermont. Uh, however, uh, we really, really need to pick up the pace because, and I think there are members of Congress who sense this. Uh, some of the ones I've met with have a clear sense that once you start down this path, it's not a good idea to dither because your adversaries here who are running these criminal operations, they, uh, they have all manner of contingencies and buttons they can push. So I think it, it would it behoove us to move quickly. This is why I'm making this urgent appeal for whistleblowers and people with evidence. Now, let me make this very clear. If you have material evidence, physical evidence of a craft, photos, documents, even if they're highly classified, those should all come to us and we can get them to the right people. Remember, we declared these projects dealing with this issue unconstitutional and illegal in 1997 and 98. That legal position has never been challenged, even though it was the the entire U.S. government was notified of this. Uh, The disclosure project was a test case for that because we released people with top secret clearances and, and, and documents, as well as documents that were not declassified that were top secret. If you look at the unacknowledged book, um, now, what does that mean? Has anyone had anyone push back on them? No, because no one will ever be able to uh, win a legal battle of or uh, against us on this assertion that these projects are illegal. And that's why I call these inverse witnesses, these senior members of the government who could be subpoenaed, who have been denied access to this information. Those are your main uh, people who would testify. If this ever came to that, because they would be able to say, yeah, I was the president. Yep. I was the secretary of defense. Yep. I was chairman of this committee in the Senate or house. Uh, and this goes way back, even way back when Congressman Dan Burton, who issued a thousand subpoenas against the Clintons and the House Government Oversight Committee back in the 90s. When we met with him and he came to our 1997 briefings for Congress, he said, I've never been read into this and anything we ask about it, we're brushed aside. So this, I can, there is a long documented history we have approving that these projects are being run illegally without legal oversight of the president, the executive branch or the courts or the Congress. Therefore it is by definition rogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I tell people you should have you should know that even though when you were working at the Skunk Works or you were working on the Delta Forces or, or Navy SEAL at a facility or an operation, you may not have known that the this, this chain of command way up there was operating illegally. 
but now you do. And therefore, knowing that, you should feel very encouraged to come forward. Um, and it doesn't matter if you sign an 80-year non-disclosure agreement, which some of our guys have, 80 years, I and mean, way past their natural lifespan. Mm-hmm. I said, that's already been, that's been waived. And we now have a process you can, even if you have these non-disclosure agreements and a security oath, you can provide your testimony. And so I think it's very important that as a civic duty, uh, and, and a service yeah. to humanity, people come forward very quickly now. You know, now's the time, and you've been doing your work, Dr. Greer, and this year it's going to be, like you say, explosive, mm-hmm. the information that's going to be coming out and the call uh, to people to yeah. come forward with the yeah. evidence. Again, be safe over there. We'll Thank see you. you in Washington yes. in uh, June, yeah. National Press Club, and uh, the Lost Century it's all going to be there, and it's going to be streaming live right. on your channel, the National Press Club. You're putting it out for free. This is this is what so it's all there about. There's going to be a bunch know? of people streaming, and it'll be the whole National Press Club event will be free to the world. Uh, and actually, you can come to it personally if you're in town for the conference uh, and be there in person. It's going to be phenomenal. Mm. Uh, but yes, the entire world will be able to see this in real time. And when you start seeing what's in the archive, I'm going to have streaming behind me. Uh, whatever, 80, 90 pages of uh, top secret witnesses, names will be redacted, but what they're going to take, just streaming behind me. You know, 800 of them. Something not to be missed. Oh, yeah. Is, uh, yeah. And, and, and remember, all of that has been handed off to the investigators in the U.S. government. All of it. Everybody's going to have what you have, basically, and you're just putting it out there. You've been archiving it. You've been working this uh, for so long, and you're just going to give it to the people and let them see what you got. Well, we need help. You know, but this archive project, we need a lot of people helping us with it. We also need funding. Here's an appeal. I estimate in the next, in this calendar year, 2023, we will have to spend at least 250000 to $300,000 to get all that material indexed, organized, data base created, uh, and all of the other things that go along with it. Uh, never mind building a website and putting it out to the public. So that ain't going to be done by June. But what I'm saying is that that's what we want to do. But it's, you know, I mean, we're, we're a public interest group. We're not being funded by the Ford Foundation. So we need people to contribute also to that if, if you can. Absolutely. Again, all the contact links is in the description below. Uh, Dr. Stephen Greer, appreciate it. And uh, we you. look forward to seeing you in Washington. Be safe. And uh, everybody out there, be safe as well. We'll see you. See you soon. Thank you. If we are being visited by interdimensional beings, we should know about it. This has the big disadvantage of the truth being much more unbelievable than the fiction. It's the crash retrievals that are the Rosetta Stone for solving the UFO cover-up. The implications of this is the difference between extinction-level civilization versus one that's going to take off to the stars. Ramad, do you know what's the website again? Um, 
SETI or something? Serious. Um, let me see. Yeah, so, yeah. Momentito. Um, Dr. Stephen Greer, all small letters, D-R, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, Greer, dot, card, you got to say dot after the dot, K-A-R, Uh, mm, no, on. it's right there. Yeah, I didn't click on that. That's a website to, to become a member of something. But I, well, that's okay. Become a member. Yeah. But it's uh, dot k a r t r a kartra dot com slash page. Get started with something like that, and it'll go on. There's another one, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash genie, G-E-N-I dot U-S, small letters, forward slash, and then all capital letters, U-F-O, and then another word, end with a capital E, end game. Historic Disclosure Conference and D.C. premiere of the lost century, June 10th and 11th, 2023 Monday, a press conference, uh, uh, press club event, June 12th, 2023. Watch live. All right, that's as good as we can get right now. Well, let's get started real quick on this next one. What's it called? Um, know Thyself as God. This is by Michaela Sheldon and Ethan Fox. And this is two hours and five minutes, so we're going to be slipping into the, you know, past the usual time that we quit, but we're going to play the whole thing. Let's do it. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Channel Revelations. I'm Ethan Fox, and I'm here with Mikhail Sheldon. And this is the show where we channel about different interesting topics from ancient civilizations to things that are happening in the world so we can get a better understanding of the world we live in and where we came from and how we got here. So we'll be traversing a lot of interesting topics on this show. And uh, now Michaela is... Uh, going to be in a trance during this uh, whole conversation, and I'll be asking questions of the guides. And uh, just so uh, I repeat the same thing I always say, which is that I don't tell her ahead of time what the questions are that I'm going to ask, or even the topic, because my goal here is that uh, her conscious mind doesn't interfere at all, which when she's in a trance state, I'm speaking directly to the guides, and she doesn't have any recall of anything we discussed, and... Um, and doesn't know what we're talking about when we're speaking. So so when we're getting answers to these questions from the guides, the answers are as pure and clear as, as we can receive. So just so that there isn't any chance, I don't discuss these topics with her ahead of time. So uh, so we'll be getting into that in, uh, in a moment. And I hope you're enjoying our content so far on the different uh, shows that we've been doing, and we'll be continuing that schedule for some time. 
Uh, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So go ahead and get into a trance state, and then we'll discuss from there. Okay, so for today, I wanted to go back to ancient times and uh, discuss some interesting archaeological information. And uh, I'd like to speak about, um, well, actually, if we can bring in either Akhenaten or Nefertiti, either or both, for this conversation. Please understand that when you you request a specific being or or spirit, that while they are present, there is so much more that is available and also being transmitted. Uh, This is not only the Akhenaten and Nefertiti beings that existed in an incarnate and physical state, but but also uh, the wisdom of all other lifetimes that they have led, as well as the entire lineage that has followed them. Okay, so are there any other influences other than them and their various lifetimes? Are there any other collectives that are present in this conversation? It is important to note that there is a Syrian history, uh, one that dates back even beyond this current universe that you exist within, that is a part of the collective that has joined here today. So the two of them were of Assyrian origin. Yes, we can confirm this. It is not unusual, of course, for many uh, during this period of time to have migrated from various ancient cultures where Assyrian influence was uh, the origins. When you say uh, Assyrian origin, are you saying they have multidimensional genetics connected to Assyrian origin, but they were physically incarnated on Earth or physically born into the Earth? Um, Or are you saying they actually came here from Assyrian origin, say, on a spacecraft or something like that? Well, Well, it does vary. So let us go back to the original Syrians who first came to planet Earth, and and there were many, of course, from multiple dimensions. And and this is important to note because the Syrian star system is a multidimensional star system, having gone through so many different changes throughout space and time. But at the beginning of time on planet Earth, there was a great calling a calling uh, for those who were willing to volunteer to to come and share their hybrid genetics as a new manifestation of a physical form. So while certainly the, the Syrian genetics were very strong and those who came arrived both in forms of light as well as on ships, there had to be a significant change in those that embodied as as earthlings, or we would call new uh, human beings, which at the time was not even a terminology that was utilized. Yet, what we can say is that the Syrian lineage has become one of the very uh, most strong and, and potent genetic predispositions in those who are known to have been recognized as gods uh, and goddesses, even in, even pharaohs, for example, uh, simply because this lineage was focused 
upon unity and, and the sanctity of consciousness and bringing all of those qualities and, and, and philosophies to the earth uh, to be of great importance in not only the seeding of a new race, but how that race would learn to, to live together as one. Okay, I'm not sure if that answered my question directly, but let me ask it a different way. So, so were they physically born on Earth or not? Yes. Physically born, though, is a, is a subjective term, and, and this is why. Because in the way that physical humans are born today, there's a, a slight shift or change that has taken place in how the genetic predisposition of a multidimensional consciousness comes through. And, and, and to explain further, let us focus on what's happening today. And then we'll go back and answer your question more directly uh, about who you are speaking directly to. There is a great deal of uh, speculation about future generations coming to planet Earth and, and being more hybrid in nature, where they are uh, accessing the multidimensional gifts and abilities that perhaps their predecessors and, and parents uh, did not even have uh, knowing of. But the birth itself, in order for a more conscious child to come, must have some type of changed quality, meaning there is a conscious container containing the wisdom and the potential for something to be born that is not using only a human genetic template. Now, of course, humans are multidimensional in nature. You have been seeded from, from many different intergalactic beings. So if humans have been operating all along in their full multi multidimensional DNA, uh, you would see more hybrid manifestations of humans as we speak. And even though there are some on planet Earth today, it is not the norm. In the days that you are speaking of and referring to and the individuals that you are speaking of, this was more the norm. Where the, the hybridization of humans being born on planet Earth was very individualized and unique. Uh, often characteristics would follow certain um we'll say intergalactic families and these could be very clearly seen in family lineages as well as uh in some circumstances honored because it was uh, noted as a a very um we'll say um honored quality to have such access to the intergalactic world and to be expressing that in a physical body. So yes, physical birth, but the manifestation of a human with more hybrid qualities. Akhenaten and, um, well, it's not so clear with Nefertiti, but, but some of the depictions of both of them show them physiologically looking different than human beings today. Um, elongated heads and just a different sort of hip structure. Um, so they physically did look different. Was that depiction more, is that what a typical Syrian physiology looks like? We agree. However, keep in mind, of course, that 
any time a, a being a, evolves uh, in some way uh, on a planet different than the one of their origins, um, new characteristics will, will take shape and form. So when you're speaking of the the body shape, for example, what we're looking at here is more presence of light. And, and we want to explain why many of these ancient cultures um, uh, or, or representatives of them uh, may have seemed very lean or, or even um, uh, polarized in, in their um, makeup, meaning not many uh, curves and round edges. And it has to do more with the way that these beings were working with light versus material. So it, there is no better or worse. We're not saying this was a, a um, higher than manifestation of form than what you exist in today. We would never judge. Uh, in fact, we think that every human being in every timeline evolves to adapt in a way that is well suited to their environment. But remember, these were highly conscious hybrid beings. They were not here with a similar focus on the physical body or the physical form as what you are in this timeline. So perhaps we could say there was a bit more efficiency to how that formed work, how that form worked, but especially how it would interplay with the material earth. Um, these human hybrids for example, had a different type of metabolism, uh, a different uh, organ and uh, internal structure, uh, working more in a unified sound harmonic than what you are today. And, and this is why you may see the differences in their physical bodies. But let's speak also to the elongated head. And, and this is something that may take a few twists and turns, so, so bear with us for a moment, because any intergalactic collective, whether it be Syrians, for example, or Andromedans or, or Pleiadians, when they come through a portal to manifest on a new planet, are moving every bit of their energetic structure into a physical manifestation. And, and what this means is there's alchemy taking place. And that alchemy has a great deal to do with information because light is information. It is information stored at a, at a very compact and, and high vibrating speed. So if you take a light being and you move it from one dimension into another and that dimension vibrates at a slower speed, what you are going to find is certain physical manifestations of energy and information showing up in a prominent way. And, and this has to do with the elongated skull. It, it was an accommodation for what we might refer to as a higher mind. And again, as we use this terminology, it is not to criticize and to say that uh, it was a better than scenario. But remember, these beings were working with a, a higher consciousness and they were able to uh, telepathically exchange with a wide variety of different um, energetic uh, locations and, and beings and, and Akashic information. That being said, 
there had to be an accommodation for all of that. So, so the, the elongated skull that you're seeing is, we're referring to it especially on the beings who actually manifested them because there is a caveat here in that many revered the wisdom of these beings so much that they wanted to appear as if they also had the same characteristics or structure. So, so many would bind their skulls, for example, in, in certain nomadic tribes to um, show the appearance of a being in a certain lineage when they were not. That being said, however, think of the mechanics of your own heart. The heart is an evolutionary structure and it is always changing. It is changing with the rhythm of the earth. It's changing with the vibration of humans. And there have been times in your history where gods and goddesses have left behind a, a, a schematic of their own hearts as a technology. And it has looked quite different than, than the heart that you have today. So, so consider the skull. And the elongated skull, very similar uh, in nature to what we are speaking of here. Now, in recent years, they supposedly discovered some of the physical remains of many of these uh, ancient uh, beings. And um, some of those being Akhenaten and other members of his family uh, and Nefertiti's as well. But none of them have elongated skulls. So is, is, are they fake or is there some other explanation for that? There were many, uh, in these, in these periods of time that didn't necessarily attempt to come off as if they, they possessed the elongated skull of others, but nonetheless wanted to carry themselves in such a way that they would relate to those in positions of, of power. Not to say, of course, that Nefertiti and Akhenaten were not in positions of power. They were. Yet there was quite a difference between the, the rulers of the day, those who were recognized as leaders of civilizations, uh, and the gods and goddesses that worked with them in the astral. And so often the relationship between cosmic families and their counterparts in an earthly form became so intermeshed that either the humans took on characteristics to honor them or would present themselves in such a way, uh, for example, in a headdress uh, or some type of um, elaborate um, uh, garb to to demonstrate the relationship in, in a very physical way. I'm not sure I understand. So are you saying that the family members may not have had elongated skulls and therefore because they were not pulling in as much uh, light, let's say, to require that? Let's describe this another way. The elongated skull itself, while many would say is, is a physical structure, is actually a manifestation of light. So using this explanation, we might say that regardless of whether or not the skull was elongated, if a soul existed in the lineage of those that had them, 
might be drawing the same information or exchanging in such a way that they had a similar benefit. And in doing so, may present themselves as if they are a part of that cosmic family lineage, um, even while their physical structure does not match. Okay, let's back up for a moment. We established earlier, just to be clear, that Akhenaten and Nefertiti did have an elongated skull, their physical form. We are call- we are calling them hybrids. Mm-hmm. And while we don't necessarily see the full manifestation of a long an elongated skull, we do see the propensity for a higher mind. In other words, think of shape shifting as as a part of that reality. And today, there are many that would go back and attempt to find remains or evidence of how these beings lived and how their bodies uh, would present. But if they were intergalactic and hybridized, if they were existing in a in a different dimension and working with a, a different, we'll say, quotient of light to material, uh, their remains or, or however they are found can't fully detail the actual uh, day-to-day relationship that they had with their physical bodies. Um, It's hard, we know, in this timeline to imagine that a physical being could shape-shift from a more physically focused and earthly soul to one who was working more with light, but certainly these individuals had that ability. Do we believe that the skull itself was so elongated that it would show itself in a very dramatic way? Not necessarily. We do believe, however, they were working with the same higher mind and the same shape-shifting and telepathic abilities as those that, that came before them. So you're saying that the remains that were found of Akhenaten, or apparently what's claimed to be Akhenaten, could be genuine, even though his skull appears just as normal as the rest of ours today. We are not necessarily confirming that, because we don't believe that what has been found is telling the complete picture or tale of of what you are stating. And what is it that it's not telling? Well, remember that there has been a great deal of interference that has gone on in these ancient sites and and those who are charged with uh, unearthing remains for example or or finding the remains of various um, prominent souls may have a hidden agenda uh, to to show something in a certain light that it did not truly exist within so what we are saying here is while there may have been evidence that Akhenaten's remains have been unearthed. What you are seeing in terms of the visuals of that isn't a direct match in, in our minds. I see. Because it would go against the mainstream narrative if they were unearthing elongated skulls. Most certainly. Okay. All right. So Akhenaten was known as Amenhotep IV, and he decided to change his name to Akhenaten in a, from, at least from what I understand, and I'd like you to clear up this if I'm misunderstanding, 
But my understanding is that the religion of the time that was practiced in Egypt was the Amun religion. And so his name was Amenhotep IV. But he denounced that religion because it was a polytheistic religion, apparently, and uh, and switched to the Aten religion, which was the worship of one god. And supposedly the priesthood at the time was very much in opposition to switching because they were all of the Amen religion. And as a result, uh, he had to leave and start his own city um, called Amarna, where he essentially taught the religion of uh, Aten. And am I on the right track so far? Are there any facts or historical uh, details that I'm missing that would help? We're in agreement with where you are headed. And so tell me about the Amen religion. What exactly was it? It was not one thing, and, and this is why it is difficult to answer this question. But we are going to to go back to the period of time uh, that you are speaking of. Many religions in this day were focused upon the gods and goddesses that were prayed to and granting wishes. And often, of course, the one primary god was spoken of, but spoken of in such a way that man had to bow down to this God. Uh, in other words, it was a God of judgment, a God uh, that was certainly a creator, and through him, many other gods were born. But man itself became, um, perhaps we could say, neglected in that creation. Uh, meaning that all creation happened through the gods and the powers above those that existed in the religion. So the prayers that were going out were perhaps denouncing the actual creative power of those present at the time. The reason that Akhenaten began to teach what he did was that he was charged with using some of his own creative power to do things of a miraculous nature. Many would not look at Akhenaten as as a master on planet Earth, um, very much like the ascended masters spoken of today, yet he did receive much of the same training uh, that, that masters such as Jesus, for example, would have been privy to and in doing so realized that God is present within all things because if man uh, or, or woman were to have the ability to work with the heavenly bodies and to bring that creator into themselves and use it in a positive way that prayer had to be directed within and perhaps we could say this was the the beginning of the focus of meditation and, and going inward in this civilization to really work with the energy that a soul was given to utilize in a beneficial way on planet Earth. In addition to this, we want to bring language and, and sound uh, into the equation because it is important to remember that 
many of the religions even today uh, that are, are skewing the minds of, of humanity are using very subtle sounds and tones and incantations to actually move humanity into a less powerful position or, or to even um, uh, weaken the connection that each individual soul has to prime creator. And, and this was Akhenaten's greatest regret was that at this time he was observing those in, in his civilization bowing down to others who were perhaps not having the best interest in mind of the entire group where unity consciousness, which is something that is spoken of today and is, is uh, strived for uh, in, in so many different civilizations, is, is only possible when each individual soul cultivates a relationship to the prime creator within. So, so this was, in fact, his goal. And denouncing those who were teaching the opposition to this became... Uh, not only a very important part of his legacy, but also uh, his demise. Because what is not told about Akhenaten was the many forces working against him. And, and those forces, uh, they continue on today. They, they've evolved and, and changed and become, uh, we'll say, common threads of energy that, that are entangled in many of the, the world events that you are facing in this moment. There are a lot of topics there that I want to come back to, um, but I first want to delve more into what we already started and understand. So the Amun religion worked with uh, it was it was polytheistic, more than one God, right? Correct. It was more than one God. Yet at the same time, there was an acknowledgement of a one true God, but that one true God became diminished in its power when the many gods took over. So there are many stories uh, that become evoked in this religion about the, um, we'll say, importance of that god if others are carrying out his will. And, And this is something that we see today often mirrored in the collective. There are so many gods that, that you are responsible to, to praying to or, or are, are holding responsible for your health and wealth and safety when the neglect of the one true God is what is causing humanity to, um, let's say, let its sovereignty slip away. Now, I noticed that some of the headdresses of the pharaohs and um, uh, other priesthood of that time had different kinds of things on it. For example, some had a snake and or some sort of serpent and some had what looked like a buzzard or bird of some sort. Are these depictions of their um, philosophical orientation to different religions or different gods? In some circumstances, yes, but but not in all. What you must remember is the the winged beings in many of these civilizations were seen both as malevolent and benevolent. And there are 
various translations of them throughout time. Uh, some that are keeping alive the more malevolent focus and, and others not. But we do see the relationship between the snake and the winged bird, uh, truly representing the inner connection to prime creator versus the outer. And it isn't necessarily that the, the bird figure uh, is evil. And, and so we want to, to caveat what we are saying, uh, because we know throughout time, um, there have been so many translations of these various religions and they have gone in various directions. Um, there are gods that are prayed to that are winged beasts, such as owls, for example, that represent a, a certain type of energy. There are others. Uh, who do not. But the snake, by contrast, is always a part of the inner soul's vibration. And, and this is why. What was practiced in many of these ancient civilizations was raising the kundalini. And the kundalini was not recognized as something intimate or sexual as it is today. It was seen as the, the highest potential of the emergence of physicality and light. So the, the serpent was representative of the coiled energy at the root rising through the chakras and touching every inch of the molecular structure of a human soul to the degree that it could become a manifestation of light. And this was the foundation and the basis of, of the uh, uh, religion that you speak of that Akhenaten brought to light. But there isn't necessarily um, meant to be seen a conflict between the two. Uh, it's important to rectify that because a, a goddess, for example, like Nefertiti, would never have evoked a signal of war, but would have wanted the reconciliation of, of any division uh, within a tribe uh, to be repaired. And, and perhaps this is where you see uh, these two images being merged in some, not in all, uh, to represent the... Um, potential or the intention for the um, understanding between all and, and having that understanding be the platform for forgiveness and working together in a holistic and unified way. Are you saying that the two religions, the Amun religion and the Aten religion, were one was more warlike or more aggressive? where the Aten was more peace-oriented, more heart-centered? Perhaps what we're saying is any time a, a prayer is stated outside of the self to a god that is granting wishes, there is going to be a vibrational change. And that soul is going to feel less powerful and less worthy and perhaps more inclined to have to fight for resources and to prove certain philosophies. 
So war may come about in religions like this, and it may be the premise of a, a human soul's entire life simply because of how it sees itself in the world. Now, most certainly, any time we're developing our, our inner relationship, the goal is peace. But as you know, looking back to these ancient civilizations, especially Egypt, knowing the self was the most important and, and primary focus. And knowing the self as God was the religion of the day. Now, besides the one true God, who were the other gods that the Amun religion worshipped? Well, there were many. And we might say that some of them are not even recognized today in, in many of your history books for they uh, have been hidden from humanity for a very long period of time. And we don't necessarily believe that it's important to name them all. And, and this is why the fallen angels that many speak of today were given names in order to be prayed to. And this is, is not necessarily known or, or uh, translated from this time either, but we do want to make the connection. And when we speak of fallen angels, uh, make no mistake, we are speaking of intergalactic beings who have come to earth and hybridized with the purpose or the goal of claiming something for either themselves or their cosmic families. This may have been a, a genetic type of um, um, translation. It could have been a precious resource, for example, that the earth possessed. But many of these fallen angels, they, they took certain positions as gods and goddesses that um, did not appear to be um, malevolently uh, intended. And this was another, um, uh, we'll say, prominent reason that Akhenaten himself uh, denounced that religion because as a very conscious being and one who was not only able to communicate beyond the earth but to see energy fields, um, had visions oftentimes of how the prayers being sent were capitalizing upon the energy of those gathered and chanting together. So um, we might say that there was a, a secular type of energetic siphoning that was going on uh, beyond the more obvious physical resources and, and chaotic events that were being created or even had the potential to be created in the future. And this may be the improper term to use, but uh, help me understand better if I'm on the wrong track. So was this inherently a satanic religion? You call it this today, but we can't necessarily say at the time it was. But the question is, what is satanic? Right now, you are coining that term as a group of human beings who might worship the devil. We see the devil, and 
those in, in our days saw the devil as the manifestation of these many fallen angels. The devil is not a one presence. It is a God that has birthed through itself the manifestation of many to do its work. Uh, so, so yes, we agree with what you're saying, although in this period it would not have been coined as such or, or perhaps even um, seen uh, as such. So Satan wasn't an actual one of the fallen angels, but uh, rather a collective consciousness, you're saying? Yes, we, we, we like the way you're saying this. As a matter of fact, uh, we believe humans see these things so linearly, uh, that there is one being or one angel that was fallen uh, that is causing all of the problem. And that is not necessarily true. Uh, there are many. And those many together form a collective consciousness. Now, the religion of Atenism, uh, I believe that Akhenaten used the um, the solar disk as a representation of it. What was the reason for that? So many reasons that we would like to share. The solar disk that is seen in, in these times, it is not only representative of the solar energies that were so important to those practicing this religion, but also the great central sun, which was in perfect alignment to the earth on the day of its birth. If we look um, very carefully at the meridians and ley lines beneath the earth, and we were to connect the various um, temples and pyramid structures that have been built upon them, we would be tracing back a PowerPoint that was the origins of the core of Earth left behind or perhaps manifested through a direct alignment with the great central sun. And this is a, a, a prophecy that was spoken of in this religion. And it was known that when certain alignments were uh, direct, that these energies were mimicked. So, this religion in particular would not only practice um, um, ceremony during very important times of earthly alignment, but they would travel to various destinations and PowerPoints on the earth to elevate the energy around the ceremony. Now, in addition to this, know, of course, that the solar energy that is demonstrated in the disk is no different than the light of consciousness manifesting into material. So if we are honoring the, the hybrid brothers and sisters of, of, of which we have come or the cosmic family lineage of which we have come, we may want to use this symbol because what it demonstrates is that we are calling forth the greatest amount of light possible so that we are able to work with it and use it as a tool of, of physical manifestation. Finally, uh, the way in which this religion in particular prayed had to do with the timing of the, the rise and the fall of the sun. Now, it wasn't always that prayer was done at these specific times, but during fasting periods, for example, 
those who were meditating would gather at the moment the sun would rise and at the very same time that it would set, and they would gaze upon it using a certain practice of breath in synchronicity or even intonations and chants to gather as much of the energy and power of that sun possible. And what they knew was it would show them in the following weeks and months uh, the answers to any questions that they had about where they were yet to go and what they were yet to do and, and any uh, roadblocks that were faced in their evolutionary path uh, so that they could make as much progress as possible. Uh, we want to add one more thing. No, of course, and we'll go back to one of our original statements that the body composition was quite different in these times. The body composition of, of uh, Akhenaten, for example, uh, was very reliant upon a very regimented connection to solar energy. And, and this is why. Uh, food in these days, it was scarce. It was not something constantly relied upon, even though it was utilized and, and the, the many were grateful when it was present. Uh, the energy of the sun would sustain them far better than material food. And, and this is because they are radiant energetic beings. Um, and, and to follow the path of the sun was very important to them to maintain that, that radiant sense of consciousness. Now, you said earlier that the Amun religion, they worship these gods and they use incantations and other techniques to draw upon that energy. Um, how is the, uh, the Aten religion different since they were also using different techniques to draw upon the solar energy? What was the philosophical difference there? The, the different, the, the primary difference is this, although there are many and we want to speak to some of them. The primary difference is this. Think of the Amen as energy going outward versus the Aten energy coming in. And, and this was the primary difference, not only in how ceremony was held, but also how these various chants and, and incantations were done, uh, in, in including the synchronization of breath. Because if each individual in the Amen uh, religion were praying outward to a number of gods, then their energy was actually being weakened in the process. But if the energy was brought inward with the intention of, of expanding it into the collective or somehow unifying it with an entire group, everyone would benefit. But also know, of course, that there are very um, subtle yet significant differences in the tonality that was utilized in various religious chants and prayers. And we could um, say perhaps that the guttural and very low 
ohm that is recognized throughout history was one that was used in the Aten to reverberate the energy that was uh, brought in into the auric field and the space around. Uh, in, in contrast, what we find, and, and you may see this still presented in some religious groups today, is there isn't so much of the, uh, the, the lower channels utilized in sound. In, in the religious songs and practices, there is an upper chamber and high, uh, pitched type of voice. Uh, this is why many of the religious choirs that you see today are, are singing at, at such a, a high pace. And it certainly does sound very angelic. And we are not saying that the intention is not good. Uh, there can certainly be a lifting of vibration from that, depending on the intention behind it. But in the Aten um, religion, uh, what the souls that gathered were attempting to do was anchor the vibration within themselves to be shared through their unique form with others. And this took somewhat of a more grounded practice, which we know may seem contradictory to what you may believe because we are speaking of meditation and, and metaphysics and an esoteric type of practices here. Yet also know that the body was important to them just as much as light. They saw it as a sounding board. So when the breath combined with these various guttural and deep ohms coming from the root and the sacral, uh, the most benefit was had uh, by everyone in the community. And this was not only from a, a standpoint of, of health, but remember, this religion was gathering the creative energy of the soul into a more potent type of, of um, offering. Uh, the manifestation practices that you have today pale in comparison uh, to what was done in these times. It was a, a collective gathering of many where the breath would synchronize and the ohms would begin and there would be a chance to um, uh, expand the breath from the root to the sacral and up to the crown and they would continue this for hours and hours and hours. And if an, a common intention was focused by the group, immediate and instantaneous manifestations could take place. Healings of very profound nature took place. And ultimately, those in the religion or, or the, the group uh, practicing began to notice very synchronistic and, and similar manifestations of abundance. Quite different, of course, than what you are used to today uh, in regards to monetary abundance. Uh, we are speaking more of uh, resources that were very important for the community to thrive. Let me rephrase what you just said in a way that I'm understanding. You can tell me if I'm on the right track. So the Amun religion, they worshipped certain gods and using these different techniques that you just described, they, their energy was actually being siphoned. And, and is that feeding the consciousness of the gods then that they're worshiping? So are the gods benefiting through the worship of the people? The only one who is benefiting uh, is the one who is 
leading the religion or the one who has decided that the religion should be. And this is why. While the gods are siphoning energy, the ones who are giving it are become becoming weaker and weaker. The goal is energetic depletion. So while gods can certainly use energy as a tool of destruction, we're not necessarily too concerned about how that took place in this day and age. We know that there is a relationship to what's taking place on planet Earth today, and we'll speak to that in a moment. But for now, what we want you to imagine is that the religious leaders of the time had a a goal in mind, and that goal was to weaken the energy of the people to the degree that they could do things that the people would not recognize, nor have the energy to contradict or or somehow um, um, fight against. And this is exactly what happened. But the gods themselves, and we've, we've, we've called them fallen angels, uh, certainly uh, with the amount of energy that they were receiving could reap the rewards of that energy and send it in whatever direction they chose. But we don't see a, a human soul at the time directing gods to do certain things. This came later. This was a depletion act on, on, on many different levels. Uh, imagine if there are so many gods that you have to serve that you are sitting in focused prayer for hours upon hours of time, chanting and singing in a way that is depleting you as opposed to rejuvenating you and then leaving and having to do it all over again. This is what we see in this religion and why um, leaders like Akhenaten became so rigid in terms of their uh, rejection of it. Now, Akhenaten was heavily censored in his time, similar to today on Earth, um, to the extent that all of his, a lot of his remains and uh, writings or depictions of him were destroyed. Uh, very little of it remains today. Was that because the priesthood of the Amun religion were concerned that he was pulling attention away from, from their control of the people? And, and also, before you answer that, you said that the people leading the religion, so are the ones who are receiving the energy that was being siphoned from the worshipers. Uh, so you're referring to the priesthood then, correct? Correct. And, and this priesthood were the ones who were responsible for the erasure of Akhenaten from history? Yes, correct. Uh, of course, there are some deviations here because that history is very longstanding and there's been a, a great deal of, of erasure in our minds of, of various items and and uh, writings and and depictions of him. Yet, of course, the Amun religion, as you know, has has gone on today, and it's splintered off into various forms of that religion. So, to have such a powerful relationship to Prime Creator is not what a group of human souls who want to rule uh, others uh, want to be seen. And, and ultimately, this is why you see very little today. Yet, 
we want to caveat this, of course, because nothing in the material world is ever truly destroyed. And, and we know this is a controversial topic to introduce, and we don't want to take the conversation off track. Yet anything that has existed in any dimension is able to become reclaimed when the consciousness of the souls that are, are willing to receive it are, uh, match the vibration it existed in. In other words, consciousness is always forcing open the Akashic records to, to share in, in some way the information that was lost through time. It may not simply be in the same material form it existed before. Um, you have seen, of course, uh, in, in Delphi, for example, a combination of, of multiple uh, oracles coming together to serve the people. And this was a period, we believe, where the consciousness of the people uh, matched a certain readiness to receive wisdom and information. And we think this time is coming back again. You are noticing a, a great many oracles and, and channels and, and readers who are able to bring this wisdom through because it cannot ever die. Uh, it may even become um, remanifested in uh, a similar form to what it existed before, such that it can be utilized to support the evolution of consciousness. Uh, on a side note, was this channel through which you are speaking one of the oracles of Delphi? Yes, and many other civilizations as well. So let's uh, elaborate on what you just touched on in the earlier topic. Now, the Amun religion, the word Amun is used in most religions on the planet today in their incantations or the end of a prayer, the word Amun is spoken. Is that that lineage of that original Amun religion? It is, yes. And you can see how it has changed. And, and there is an important point that we want to make here about the Amen uh, that is used. It is uh, somewhat a vibrational terminology that must be considered. Even though in, in today's world, uh, those who sit in certain religious ceremonies are not praying to multiple gods and goddesses or fallen angels, they are evoking the same energetic process when terminology like this is utilized. And, and this is why every word in the human language, uh, every biblical story uh, and how it is told, every, every chant, every song, it is uh, existing as an imprint. And that imprint is historic. And we can change it, certainly, if we choose. But Ultimately, the Amen has been carried throughout history to change the direction of the flow of energy, to, to keep humans focused on giving that energy outward to something that they believe is a higher power than themselves. And while certainly prime creator is a higher power, it is a part of them always. And that um, repetition, we'll say, of that word um, well, not only not not always bad. We have, we have to uh, always caveat and and ensure that those who are listening to us do not feel um, discouraged or, or fearful by our words. Um, 
there are many who go into churches today to to pray to God and feel inspired and and blessed by the words that they speak. And and there's certainly some overriding of vibration in how a soul directs the energy it's sharing. But if the focus and the direction is already embedded in the word, uh, you are up against quite a challenge. So what you're saying then is that the uh, Amen, the incantation of Amen, whenever we speak it, with the exceptions of what you're saying, some people go into church and have these amazing experiences, but the word itself is bringing forth a certain, uh, or rather focusing the intention or energy of the individuals who speak it toward that collective of God's um, from ancient times. Or, or we might call it a servitude, a servitude to a God beyond the self. While we know honoring the, the one true God is something that humans feel passionate about, the neglect of the God within them is the reason they have found themselves such suffering. So at the very fundamental level, the difference between the one true God and all of these other gods is that the one true God is us. It's within us versus these other gods are external to us who we much must worship. We agree. Uh, the one true God, meaning the universal presence, the all-knowing, all-being, all-seeing one, that every living, breathe, breathing being is manifested from. Okay, so... All of these religions in the world today, which I think is the majority, if not all of them, um, that use the word Amen, whether intentionally or not, originated from a root or a root religion or a group of religions that were worshiping all these various gods. So today, whether knowingly or not, when we follow these religions, we are essentially at a very basic level worshiping a satanic religion. Is that correct? Fundamentally, it is correct. Okay. And are there any remnants of the Aten religion still present today? And can it even take a religious form, or is it really more about self-awareness and self-practice? Yes, we we um, agree wholeheartedly with what you are saying. If there was a religion claiming to be the Aten, it would not be the Aten at all, because to to define it as such... Uh, to contain it as such would would limit its possibility, and and this is why we believe in in today's movement towards spiritual enlightenment. There can be many paths that that take a soul in the wrong direction, because when they are attempting to define the type of spiritual practice or belief that they they uh, associate with, they have just put a limitation uh, in their own field. And there's a a very slight difference uh, between being passionate about practicing and and studying something and and claiming yourself as such. This is what Akhenaten uh, and the Aten religion would have taught because the more conscious, the more conscious you are, uh, the more connected you are to the one true God. The more you realize that that you are all of it. Uh, there is not one thing that could ever define you. 
you are that God having an experience and that experience is, is being defined through you. So, so certainly today we don't necessarily see any one practice or, or philosophical belief system that would equate for what was practiced in that day. Yet we see bits and pieces of it having made its way into uh, very beneficial um, studies. Okay. So with the exception of obviously there are well-intentioned people in every field of work or every focus on the planet today. But underlying all religions then, based on our discussion so far, I'm assuming then that whether on purpose or not, or intent, or knowingly or not, the priests or leaders of these various religions, or even a minister speaking in front of a church, they are siphoning the energy of the people, especially when the word amen is used. Well, they know not what they do oftentimes, because good men and women find themselves involved in religious teachings and beliefs that have a foundation other than what they are taught. So ultimately, what we believe is many of these religions are very entwined in certain cosmic lineages and families that have been on planet Earth for a very long time, not unlike the the priests of the Amen religion who are attempting to lower in stature the um, uh, connection of each human soul to itself and and also to a a more unified humanity. You said earlier that um, incantations and certain types of frequencies and sounds were used to focus that intention toward these gods. Is that what's practiced in terms of hymns and other singing this done in churches and religious ceremonies today? Yes, and there are some very important changes to note. And and, and we want to speak exclusively here of the human language that you speak today, which has uh, degraded, we believe, in not only its intonation, but but quality of sound and vibration. Uh, Very much like where the breath is coming from in these various practices, uh, what we have seen is a shortening of the breath, a shortening of the the vowels and the various sounds of words. And this has been intentional because the more sound and breath that is utilized, the more energy a soul is generating and sharing at a very high level. So often we can look at, for example, uh, a religion like Catholicism and, and taking it back to its roots, which is Latin. And that Latin language is a very beautiful and sonic language, but we see the transposition of words. So in many of the, the religious practices where hymns are sung, for example, uh, what you will see is a shortening of the phrases and a transposing of the words that actually changes the entire vibration. This is not often recognized today, but but perhaps we could say uh, for those of the time who were hybrid and many who are on planet Earth today who are spiritually oriented, it is something that is felt. Uh, There are some who would walk into a church and feel an immediate vibration of concern. And this is coming not only from the the hymn that is sung or the language that is spoken or the 
the repetition of a prayer that has been designed to lower frequency, but how the space has been changed by the constant iteration of those things. Um, this is also something that was known and, and respected in the Aten religion. Uh, the gathering of humans, it was looked at as, as such a, a sacred rite that the space was blessed Prior, uh, with not only the the energetic uh, transmission of uh, the oracles of the time, but but also bringing in vibratory oils and various um, uh, plants and and herbs, uh, and even creating uh, certain mandalas and and arrangements of sigils that would keep the space very high vibrational. Because even though the practice itself was very powerful, each individual had a responsibility to be aligned in the highest intention. And if that intention was skewed, even in the slightest way, uh, the entire space could become contaminated. And we might say um, throughout time, certain religions uh, their goal has been to contaminate this space and, and to change it into something uh, oriented to the suppression of vibration. This is seen uh, often in the very harsh angles of certain churches and parishes where triangles, for example, are used. And while it may mimic the pyramid shape, there is a flatness to the orientation of the space and the energy where in a more circular fashion uh, and, and in working with nature directly, uh, there's a, a nourishment going on uh, between those that are praying and, and the energy they are generating and how that energy touches everything that they are utilizing in the space. Are the higher ups, for example, in the Catholic religion, like the Pope, are they aware of and intentionally siphoning the energy of their followers? If we look at the Pope today, for example, what we have to acknowledge is that there are many things that have been lost in translation. So it is not to say that there isn't an awareness of some evil nature uh, that is taking place within the Catholic religion. But if we were to go back decades, for example, and, and look at some of the leaders of those times, there was more deliberate understanding and knowing. Now it has simply become a, a ritualistic type of, of legacy where the next pope is, is groomed at a very young age in these practices to the degree that the deliberate knowingness of, of what is being done isn't necessary. I've noticed some of the photographs of the Pope uh, that I've seen over the years have a very dark, almost satanic, reptilian uh, feel. Even some of the artistry uh, that that he is um, surrounded by. Is this an intentional focus toward a reptilian or satanic religion or is it? We are glad that you brought this point up because it takes us back to our previous one. And, and we wanted to share that satanic ritual is something that came a, a great deal later in terms of its visibility 
and how uh, it became so transparently obvious to others on the planet. Uh, in, in very early days, um, the religious leaders, those with the most malevolent intent, were focusing more on energy. Um, there was less of a physical nature to what was going on. And, and this was perhaps uh, simply reminiscent of the time, of the period of time that, that they were in. But as you moved into a more material-focused dimension, you are beginning to see how the manifestation of a Satanistic um, worship becomes more visual. Um, And this is bringing us closer to understanding how all of these various fallen angels and gods became more compactly related to as one. Ultimately, what you're seeing is the, the evolution of the uh, Amen religion taking various shapes and forms uh, and becoming what it has become today, which, which of course we know um, is, is a repeat of, of history and, and a time on planet Earth when worshiping Satan or, or the devil was something that was done in a very overt way. Uh, for those who were in power to ensure that they would accumulate the most worth and wealth and, and resource possible. Um, it is somewhat like a, a new translation of the old way of doing things as opposed to multiple gods. We are now combining them into one, one uh, being of significant um, power that we are also giving our power to. Now, in the Christian religion or the Christian Bible, let's say, or the Catholic Bible, um, is is a Jesus that's depicted in there the same Jesus as the Yeshua that you often channel or speak of? Well, there is only one Christ, and that Christ is, a vibration, it is an energy, and it exists in all mankind. Yet the man, known as Yeshua, or Jesus, we think is one and the same, but has been ripped apart for the purpose of sharing various stories that tell the narrative of what those in power want others to hear. So it isn't necessarily that these are two separate men or individuals, but we often refer to, to Yeshua as the, the manifestation of many masters. And Jesus is seen as the one master, the one who walked the earth as the single son of God, which we believe is, is a mischaracterization of, of what he was meant to be, because while uh, we see him on the earth teaching about the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What that represents perhaps is the um, opposite of the Amen and the various gods that are fallen angels. We're seeing the parts of ourselves converging as one. And Yeshua had the distinct ability throughout his life to initiate with ascended masters and those who had gone before him and take a part of themselves onto him to actually become 
a living manifestation of all of their wisdom. This is not shared in biblical accounts, we know, because there is somewhat of a relationship with Jesus being cultivated as uh, a God himself. And this is by design. Uh, the, the Jesus or the Yeshua that walked the earth would have never wanted to be recognized as a God nor be prayed to as such because he knew in doing so um, those that were praying would lose their power. And, and this right. was uh, very similar to Akhenaten's teaching. Uh, he came as an embodiment of that teaching as well, yet shared it in a completely different light. Let me sort of encapsulate a few things you said. You can tell me if I'm on the right track or not. Um, so what you're saying is that, or at least my understanding is that the biblical account of Jesus um, is more of an Amun religion approach and the Yeshua or the Christ was intentionally or not teaching more of an Atonism type of religion. Yes, absolutely. We agree. And unfortunately, we believe that the translation of that story has has not yet fully come to light. Now, something we discussed earlier, I'm curious about, you mentioned that the person leading a religion or a church is siphoning the energy. And and my understanding so far is that it is the focus of something external to you while using these various incantations and words and so on that that actually causes that energy to be siphoned outside of you and thereby disempowers you. Is this the same as if you worship, let's say, a musician on stage? So you go to a concert and you're in the audience and you're cheering this musician who's on stage or even a government leader who you may look up to or worship in some way or even medical leaders uh, or any anything of that nature where you're worshiping a leader, especially in a congregational format where certain chants or music uh, are used. So, yes, of course, we agree. And this is how humanity finds itself where it stands today for the worship of anything beyond the self is causing such division within a human soul. It is not to say that there cannot be appreciation uh, for those who are our guides and, and mentors and wisdom keepers. And in Akhenaten's times, certainly uh, there was uh, appreciation for his guidance Yet the guidance itself would have never allowed the level of worship that is taking place in these various formats you speak of. So any iteration of energy that is taken away from a soul and, and focused its attention solely on another is a weakening process. It's not enabling uh, a soul's holistic vibration to be used, not only as intended, but but also in a very sovereign uh, and powerful way. In fact, we believe that the garnering of attention on planet Earth today uh, via media, any form of media, is is just as damning 
as, as the prayers that are spoken to the multiple gods, because you are being diverted from your own inner truth anytime you are searching for it in the outer world. And, and all of these things have a very detrimental toll on not only the energy field, but the, the dynamic structure that supports it. And when we speak of this dynamic structure, uh, we want to uh, highlight the DNA because in the, in the days of Akhenaten, it was known that the DNA contained not only the records of that soul's family lineage, but the entire universal family and experience as well. And this is why a great deal of focus was, was placed upon the sun because the interaction with solar energies it has the um, uh, possibility to keep the crystalline DNA vibrating at a very high speed. And that crystalline DNA is, is truly your link between the, the physical earth and the physical body and everything beyond it. So genetics has played a huge role in, in many of not only the, the religious formats and, and teachings that have evolved from the time that you speak of, but, but also, uh, media, uh, and, and everything else that humans are pay, paying attention to. It's not often thought of in this way. Uh, it's looked at as a physical distraction. It may even be looked at as a vibrational distraction, but it is changing your genetics and in many respects dimming the possibility of using all of the genetic predisposition that, that you were birthed with. So if what I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, just to use an example, if you're a TikTok influencer today with a million followers, you're essentially doing the same thing. You're, you're extracting energy from all your followers. Your followers are subservient because they're providing that energy willingly and making themselves weaker in the process. And, and again, we remind you that they, they know not what they do because not unlike the priests that have been trained from a very young age and indoctrinated in a religion, uh, those who are influencers on media today have been uh, very much uh, influenced themselves, often from a very early age. So what separates the Aten leaders like Akhenaten or even Jesus who taught a similar philosophy from the Amen leaders uh, from ancient times to modern times is that the Amen religion is really focused on a particular person being the focus, whether it be an external god or the priest that you're worshiping and sending your energy to. And the Aten leaders don't appear to have any desire to be worshipped. They're really teaching a message or self-empowerment, not trying to extract attention toward themselves, even though that might have happened anyway. They were discouraging that. Is that sound right? Or that, or that all should be worshipped equally. Yes. You are saying that correctly, but but of course know that uh, a ruler or a leader like Akhenaten in the day was was seen as such through the eyes of love, which is very different regarding how humans today are uh, focusing their attention. They might believe that they love their leader when in fact they have been led astray from love to give up their sovereignty to the degree that they have. And it is as if that love is a, a mere reflection 
of their own unworthiness and an inability to survive without them. And, and this is the unfortunate, um, um, path that, that has unfolded from, from all of this. Akhenaten himself and, and Nefertiti for that matter, while accepting the love of those who appreciated them, gave it equally in return and had only the highest and best interests of all those that they served in mind. So there was reciprocity uh, in that exchange. And, and we think that is the, the most important thing that is missing uh, is in the worship of another in religion today or in media or with government officials, for example, there is no reciprocity. That reciprocity is not there. I'd like to revisit the uh, Christian Bible and the, the Catholic Christian religion, although these concepts are prevalent in many religions. In the um, Christian ceremony, there is the um, drinking of Jesus's blood and eating his flesh. That seems very counter to what I understand his philosophy and teachings would have been in seems to be more of a cannibalistic satanic um process or ritual does that does that have an origin in that or what is the purpose of that it is most certainly a satanic and cannibalistic translation of a feast that jesus cultivated as an offering to all of those he served if if it is not seen in this light, then there is quite a, an underlying why that is going on on planet Earth. Because ultimately, Jesus would not have given of his body and blood, for that would not have been necessary. If he had done that, he would have ceased to exist in the incarnation that he was meant to leave behind such a legacy. So those who would want to see his demise would have begun to focus a, a process like this into being even after he left the planet because his spirit reigns free. And we have spoken of Yeshua and Christ consciousness. It is within each and every one of you no less powerful than God. Uh, we simply see the, the difference of, uh, of God consciousness versus Christ consciousness as being God, universe, Christ, man. Uh, it is just how God enters a physical body and becomes present that it is actually conscious. And, and here we are many, many years later looking back at how religion has taken this idea and turned it into something that is very destructive in nature. So are you saying, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, and maybe I'm not, but that is, is Jesus or the consciousness of Jesus in any way being harmed then by the process of communion that's practiced in churches today? This is a lower vibrational practice. So the Christ that is conscious, that still lives on today, could never be harmed by anything that is done in the material world. It is those left behind who are attempting to associate with that energy that are being misserved. And, and this is why 
any time that a human soul believes that to manifest a closer relationship to spirit, they must do something physical, they are being taken off track. And this is ultimately going back to the, the theme that we have been discussing throughout this session, which is to know thyself. If we are taking the blood and the body of Christ in order to be holy, then we are being taught that we are not holy ourselves. And we must keep doing this to rid ourselves of the inevitable sin that, that we are accumulating throughout our entire life. But this could be no farther from the truth. And it is leading us all to believe that it is not only unworthy, but it is unclean and must somehow be uh, be cleansed by a ritual or a process that is um, separate than itself or beyond itself. For, for a soul is the only one that is able to forgive or to judge. So in one way we can see the difference or interpret how this may be more of an amen or satanic religion orientation is that by focusing on the blood and the body, we're really giving attention to a prominence to the physical Jesus versus his teachings really would have been about looking within to, or to the one true God, which is not worship of a human self, but he was. Well, that is correct. And by its very nature, what it is doing is it is diminishing the worth of a soul. Because if that soul has to continue to to partake in a ritual that is a material-focused energy, but, but also cleansing it of its wrongdoing, then it could never be saved. And, and ultimately, this is what religion is uh, unknowingly reinforcing, is that a soul's savior is dependent upon something outside of itself, whether that is physical or, or praying to a God uh, or ensuring that who it is and what it has done is somehow cleansed prior to its passing. In our conversation earlier, you referenced the use of frequencies to deplete or to extract energy from human beings. Was in any way was this the intention behind the change of musical frequencies? I think in the 1970s, so all of our music today is recorded on a frequency that is very contradictory to human well-being versus prior to that. Yes, we see this as being um, purposely uh, done to not only lower the frequency of the human body, but to take a human body out of its connection to a higher power or to source energy. Uh, for example, we, we've referred uh, in this transmission to the crystalline DNA. And, and, and the crystalline DNA vibrate at a very, very high speed. There are many things today that have been purposely placed in your environment to, to downgrade the level of that vibration, which is why Many humans today do not realize the, the power of their spiritual connection and how they are able to telepathically exchange and to receive their uh, own Akashic records and, and information about the universe. This has been by design because it is the most powerful position that a human soul could ever be in. So, so certainly 
the hertz frequency of music if it is lower than the speed of the crystalline DNA or even the earth will carry a soul into a more uh, restricted state where it's focused more internally, but in a material and bodily fashion. We want to explain this a little bit in relationship to the core of the earth, uh, which we refer to uh, quite a deal. The core of, of Mother Earth is a sounding board. Uh, it is an acoustic sounding board capturing the sound and vibration of every living being upon her and echoes it back into the collective, which creates a, a torus flow of energy unifying souls at the level of the heart. And this is the heart resonance that, that many speak of. It, it does have its origins within the earth and, and every human being is connected to the earth. But if something is to um, infiltrate the environment, it is going to have not only an effect on humans connection to that core or sounding board, but also be an element within it. So Gaia's core must now accommodate for this presence of lower vibrational music because it is moving through human bodies and changing them alchemically. And, and in addition to this, the physical body does not respond well either. The physical DNA, which is the, the um, 12-strand spiral physical DNA, uh, it is extremely powerful as well. And, and many would negate the physical DNA as only carrying uh, disease, for example, but this is not true. Um, if, if powerful beings like Akhenaten and Nefertiti walked the earth, at some point in your history, there must be a lineage no different that you are able to reap the rewards of. And while the, the carbon DNA may hold the, the physical components of this, perhaps the more um, uh, aligned physical bodies and, and higher minds uh, the, the crystalline vibration carries the records. And when these combine, it is very, very powerful indeed. So it is not just the music that has been taken offline, but, but certainly the electromagnetic fields uh, as well, very purposeful in their endeavor to keep humans in a more dense field of energy where they are only focused in a very slight few carbon strands of DNA and not able to utilize everything that is available to them. Yeah, I could be wrong about this, but I think it was the Rockefeller family that orchestrated this switch to the cipher frequency. Did they know what they were doing? Meaning, did they have, did they have access to ancient knowledge that they utilized to do this, or was it just through research on the effects of different frequencies on human beings? Uh, yes, a great deal of this knowledge uh, exists, for example, in ancient texts like the Kabbalah, but is not always brought to light in common day. Uh, for example, the esoteric and, and mystical knowledge of the Kabbalah spans well beyond uh, what has been revealed to humanity. There has been a great deal that has been hidden and, and kept for a slight few, and these slight few are using this information to their advantage uh, to strengthen their bodies and spaces and, and material energies. 
while weakening the presence of others in a very global, we'll say, way. So, so to have an entry point like music, it, it's a very powerful tool to be able to use a mystical type of esoteric knowledge and change the vibration. Now, are you referring to the Jewish religion as we know it today that common people practice, or is this a specific sect of the Jewish religion or those who study the Kabbalah, such as Ashkenazi Jews, for example? Not unlike the um, evolution of religion throughout space and time, the, the Jewish religion has also evolved, and it is not the commonplace translation of the Kabbalah that we are speaking of. We are speaking of the hidden knowledge. And yes, a very slight few and, and small group of souls who have followed this religion from beyond um, this timeline, uh, certainly, and have used it in a very malevolent way um, to focus harm uh, on on the population. And, and this is not only uh, uh, through frequency, uh, but it also has its roots in, uh, in, in energy and gathering energy and how to direct energy uh, as you are um, focused here and now, there are various technologies, for example, that are causing harm uh, to the weather and, and unbeknownst to humanity, sending subliminal messages to the collective. Uh, the construction of these technologies is it's based in, in ancient knowledge. And some of it, well, we should say most of it, actually comes from off-planet. Uh, and it was brought here from intergalactic beings like reptilians, for example. Now, we are not saying that the Jewish religion is a reptilian-based religion. What we are saying is there are reptilian families and lineages uh, who have been focused on studying the Kabbalah and these very ancient teachings and have held them sacred and secret and have turned them against others for a very long period of time. I've noticed an extraordinary number of world leaders uh, and even leaders of the music and entertainment industry, um, actors, uh, more than you would expect to see in a fair and equal society, are of a Jewish religious background. Are all these people in that inner circle who are studying these um, ancient techniques and using them against the rest of society? Well, well, this is obvious. It is certainly a, a genetic lineage and group of humans who are all focused in the same teachings and using them in the same way. But, but keep in mind that it is not only a reptilian lineage. And, and we want to clarify that those who were fallen angels were actually coming from various uh cosmic locations throughout the universe and some of them were deemed fallen because their own star systems or planets had fallen to uh, wars for example genetic wars um, um, chemical wars for example and they came to earth and were recognized as gods when in fact 
they were here to somehow rectify the situations in their home on their home planets. But um, as time evolved, uh, remember the gathering of those energies as one into a more satanic type of focus took place. And, and we see this very similarly in these human family lineages who are also hybrid to some degree, not in the same way that Akhenaten and Nefertiti were hybrid, but, but certainly carrying some of the traits of, of their cosmic lineages in a, in a powerful way, but not necessarily physically powerful, you see. So the average person who's practicing Jewish faith can't go and pick up the Kabbalah and learn these techniques you're referring to. These are secret and hidden from the population. Yes, 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 we, we agree. For, for, for many, what would happen if they were to uh, take possession uh, of these teachings is that their own frequency would be compromised. They are this powerful. Um, the written translation of some of the Kabbalah teachings within and of themselves will change the consciousness of the soul interacting with it. And, and so um, there's somewhat of a, a, a magnetic uh, uh, capacity to pass these translations down to those who have already somehow been prepared to receive them, meaning they've been born into a family where they are already well suited to somehow energetically and genetically work with the codes. So as an example, for example, Madonna practices the uh, Kabbalah religion and is very open about that and even goes by the name Esther in that religious format. So is somebody like her using these techniques? She's part of the inner circle? For Correct. There are many in prominent positions of um, stardom, uh, we would say who have been um, not only a part of these family lineages, but have been recruited at a very young age and prepared to work with them because they would be seen in such a prominent light. Um, and this, uh, we know, is, is being more and more understood that children going into uh, positions of acting uh, begin at such a young age because it is important to train their minds and their energy fields and their bodies in the ways of these malevolent forces. So by the time they reach the age of, of adulthood, it is simply second nature uh, for them to utilize these teachings or not. And to be given a, a script, for example, that holds the codes and languages of these teachings in a hidden way, but is spoken and shared and will change those who receive them. So would it be accurate to say that the vast majority of prominent people in the world, whether they be prominent actors or world leaders, president of the United States, for example, uh, are all uh, using these techniques or part of this, uh, recruited as part of this religious orientation? There are tiers, varying tiers of those involved. So, so it's important for us to 
delicately answer this question. Um, and let's speak first to government because we know that that's an area that many would focus in. And, and if we go to the upper echelon level of those who are running countries, for example, we will certainly see a tie to these families. Um, there is no question that if someone is elected or appointed to a very prominent position, uh, whether it be uh, a monarchy, for example, or a presidency, there is some stronghold in the initiation of their soul uh, to these practices. But as we go down the tiers from there, it's important to note that good people become swayed to enter these spaces and very much like uh, the conversation we had about the church and the, the constant iteration of uh, ceremony and ritual being spoken uh, will carry a certain vibration, the collective consciousness of government begins to also hold that energy. So someone with very good intentions to change the planet or, or to leave behind a, a more positive legacy for future generations may become indoctrinated into the frequency of those in charge, very much like the influence of a Hertz frequency in music. Uh, but what we want to say is, that we believe is so important to express is we're seeing so many becoming aware of it. Those that have been uh, recruited or, or indoctrinated into certain circles who may have been um, simply unconscious to their relationship to it or how they were participating in it are beginning to see very clearly uh, what is playing out. And, and as a matter of fact, we could take this to the whole of the planet or the collective. Uh, the level of clarity and transparency that is going on today, is, it's astounding. And it is because consciousness has raised to a certain degree where these things can no longer be hidden. It's no different than the the relics or, or the writings of Akhenaten that have been destroyed, being coming uh, being destroyed, coming back in a new way. The same thing happens with whatever is being covered up. It, it must ultimately come to light. Uh, so even in the um, uh, acting community uh, or those who are focused on influencing, for example, on social media, we are seeing the beginnings of a very mass awakening of souls who have been unconsciously participating in these things, not realizing what they were doing, uh, coming to terms with who they have become and who they want to now be. Okay, so just to rephrase what you said and, and how I'm understanding, make sure I'm on the right track. By the sounds of it, it would appear that as of now in our linear timeline, the vast majority of the world is being led by people who are practicing these secret ancient um, Kabbalistic uh, practices in order to maintain control of the people of the world or for whatever purpose. Is that correct? Well, we agree with that, okay. yes. And you said that more awareness is happening among the people who are in these groups, but is that trend changing at all? Because at the moment, it seems like it is very all-encompassing. The trend meaning the trend toward a world where maybe we're not governed by a handful of people who are using these 
ancient metaphysical practices. Well, well, it is bound to happen, and and this is why. It has happened before. There have been periods of time, very much like the one that you are in the midst of right now, where rulers and leaders have been suppressing the people to the degree that you are suppressed. But great awakening has happened and change has taken place. History must repeat. It is the degree to which each human who awakens to that history involves its own personal choice as to how it plays out, you see. So so what you are going through right now is an inevitable shift towards more enlightenment and freedom. It is a, a working backwards from a, a period of darkness that was inevitable to play out on planet Earth. But here you stand today, knowing, of course, that things don't look as good as what we are stating they will be. But moving through a very delicate period that is necessary to shape human consciousness and the planet. It is not often looked at in this way. And we, we realize we're, we're speaking here uh, in this session about a great deal of evil and, and evil influence. And this may become discouraging for those who are listening. Yet darkness and light will always coexist. It is just the level or the degree of that darkness and light that you are playing with in each reality. And unfortunately, you have gotten to the the extent of intensity of darkness that you have because you must now move into a period of opposite, of, of more intense light. And we think this is already taking place. What what we've observed in uh, many individual souls who have yet to explore their spirit to the degree that others have is this. There's a great deal of questioning going on. And that questioning is starting within the self. We might take religion, for example, which is a topic we have been speaking of a great deal uh, we are seeing a mass migration away from some of the religions that have been malevolently influenced. And, and we know there is some dichotomy of good and bad here as well. There are some on planet Earth who would believe that those who who express their faith in a very vigilant way um, would never stand for any um, suppression of, of their sovereignty. Yet we see the migration away from some of these religions as being a result of the internal questioning of what is actually the foundation of the teachings and moving more towards um, uh, expanding the, the soul's knowledge in, in other areas. And, and we think that as you move through this period of time, what you are going to see is not necessarily the fall of religion, but the rise of new spirituality and, and exploration of different ancient teachings and philosophies that, that will move humanity in a new direction. So, so certainly we have a great deal of hope as to where humanity is going with all of this, even though much of what we are speaking of seems very bleak. Well, help me put that in context with the, at least my uh, understanding that actually Satanism is one of the fastest growing religions today. And especially a lot of our younger people today are atheists or uh, unintentionally or intentionally following more of a communist, reptilian sort of religious philosophy. 
Well, then this is the key. The word that you have spoken is unconsciously. And there is a big difference. If we go back to the days of, of Akhenaten, for example, and we are looking at the contrast between the Aten and the Amen, the Amen religion, it was a, a, a very conscious time. These human beings were choosing uh, very um, um, importantly to follow certain religious leaders, not because they felt that they were all powerful, but because they were exploring a new way of being. And in that exploration, there was some advantage that was taken. And that's what we're seeing. The younger generations, they are here to explore a variety of different teachings and philosophies and and old ones as well. But there has been some malevolent focus and drawing of them into a a certain container. But even though this is happening, what you must keep in mind is that every generation comes with a very uh, certain and important purpose. And that purpose may require them for a period of time to explore an area that others may believe is detrimental to their soul, when in fact, It is the catalyst and agent of their awakening. And we do believe as you go through the next several years, those that have been drawn into this Satanistic type of practice, however it is manifested, are going to come to very rude awakenings about the destruction of their... About the destruction of their... (laughs) We have to uh, take this to the other side. I hope this was... It was for me. It was, it was well, well done. Uh, the insightfulness. <coughs> We're stepping into the unknown further from knowing where we've been further. And so we'll take a little break and we'll be back with, as we said, uh, we'll get the stars with our brother Richard and music and, um, Tanya Gabrielle and Okay, Pacha, until we meet in a few minutes, that won't be that long. Uh, We'll see you after the break. Namaste. Namaste. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. All righty, brother. Thank you very much. All right, here we are, April 8th. All right, what a week it's been. We survived. (laughs) We survived Sun Conjunct Chiron. Oh. And next week, going forward, we get to do Sun Conjunct Jupiter. (coughs) Yeah, right there in the... In the second half of Aries. Alright, Sun's at 19 Aries tonight. Alright, Chiron's at 17 and Jupiter's at 22. Alright. Now, Mercury is at 8. So, in a week, it's gonna be up around 14 Taurus and conjuncting Uranus. 
Venus has moved to 28 Taurus. So it's trying Pluto. And uh, Mars is leading the pack up there at 8 degrees of Cancer. Oh. Yeah. Mars Mars moves a little slower than Venus, but not much. Yeah. Mars is moving a half a degree a day, and Venus is moving a degree in ten minutes a day. Mm. And, uh, yeah. And what else is interesting here? You know, Pluto still at one degree. Pisces, uh, Aquarius, Neptune, 27, uh, Pisces, Uranus, 18, Taurus, Saturn is four Pisces. I'm kind of keeping an eye on that because it's conjunct my north node. So I have to make friends with discipline. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's that's the la- oh the moon is in Scorpio at twenty four, yeah. yeah. So it's it's been in uh, Scorpio all day yesterday and a little bit the day before. So you know when the moon gets into Scorpio, you know first thing it does is conjunct my sun and then it conjuncts my Mercury. So I've got moon conjunct Mercury going on. So. Happens every month on a regular basis. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, so that's you know that's pretty much the same. Nothing you know. Slow planets don't move very fast. Uh, even Chiron's a slow mover. Been hanging out at sixteen, seventeen Aries seems like for months. But anyway. I'd say steady as she goes, moving forward. How's mm-hmm. that, Richard? Okay. <laughs> Try and keep an optimistic attitude. Right. Yeah. Well, see, when you get when you get Sun and Jupiter, anytime they're together, the the sign that they're in is like more than twice as influential. You know, so it's like, it's it's Aries all the time. Yeah, great initiation time. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. Great expansion time. That's and that, ex- that Jupiterian expansion works on, on uh, both the left and the right. Yeah. It works both on the light and the dark. Yeah. It works everywhere. Mm. It it appears to be one of the tools of the Lords of Karma. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Yep, this week I've been working on a new book. It's an old book, but a new for me reading by a very famous lady named Annie Besant. Oh, yeah. Mm. Which book are you reading now? Well, I 
when I when I grabbed my 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 next group of books to review, I I read um, the Changing World, which is a collection of lectures that she did in London in 1909. But the one I've been working on after that is uh, her book on ancient wisdom. And she she's an excellent writer, and I, she she reads easy, well, it's understandable, and uh, yes. Uh, earlier this week, she's got a very detailed explanation of how and why reincarnation exists. And all and all the different steps, and she explains the the vehicle, the, the the five vehicles of consciousness, and all that sort of thing. And uh, in in the process, she she explains how evolution operates, you know, and and then she there's embedded hints in her discourse on reincarnation on how to. Ex- accelerate your own evolution so it's it's i don't know if it's still in print i didn't check that out but i think it probably is because uh i took a look at annie's wikipedia page and it's a long one that lady had a very busy life uh, she was a radical feminist before it was popular. Yep. Yep. So, uh, yeah, go check Annie Besant out on Wikipedia. And, and, and there's, a, there's a section in there under uh, her work with the Theosophical Society where you can click on the early theosophists and it's got pictures of a lot of these people, some of them there's no pictures, but but, uh, many of the people uh, of that early group of uh, teachers and workers in the Theosophical Society, there's some pictures of them, all very interesting. All right, it's 9 o'clock, straight up Eastern Time Zone, so... Let's, I understand Kaipacha's long tonight, so let's go get it. Okay, okay everybody, 50 minutes. Here goes Kaipacha. Here we go. That's five zero minutes. 50 minutes and 50 seconds. Okay. <laughs> Kaipacha with the Weekly Pele Report, Wednesday, April 5th. Yes, indeed, it's happening. And we've got this moon in Libra. She is coming into a full moon tonight here in California at 9.34 tonight. Uh, But, you know, that may be tomorrow in some places. Um, But 
Yeah, I'm going to be talking about that because it's exactly opposite. Not only the sun, but the sun is exactly conjunct Chiron, the wounded healer in Aries. So we'll be talking about Aries, Chiron, the sun in opposition to the moon. If you look at that chart at the beginning of the report, you can see that yeah, the moon is highly outnumbered. <laughs> she is the only uh, so-called planet, okay, on the Western Hemisphere uh, next to Mars. It just went into Cancer. But it's like the moon against everybody. <laughs> Feeling those emotions a little bit with this one. Yeah, uh, we're going to be talking more about that. You know, by Friday, she goes into Scorpio. And... You know, on Saturday, she'll oppose Uranus and hit the south node of the moon. And Sunday, she trines Neptune and opposes Venus. And, you know, and then on Sunday, she goes into Sagittarius, right? Squares uh, Saturn. And uh, Monday, moves along to trine Chiron, the sun, and Jupiter from Sagittarius. So there'll be a shift in energy next week, Monday. But, uh, yeah, this weekend is pretty intense. So uh, we'll look into that. In the meantime, by next Tuesday, the sun will conjunct Jupiter. So, uh, you know, sun's really working with this Chiron-Jupiter conjunction that has been going on, like I say, for a couple weeks. It's kind of separating now, but yeah, you'll still be feeling it. We'll see. I'll talk about it, see if you're feeling it or not. In the meantime... Uh, Venus is in the late, late, late degrees there of Taurus. And by Monday, she's going to move into Gemini. So there'll be a shift there. So, yeah, big shift next week. But for right now, I mean, we are full on. I'm going to talk about what that means. Um, she's uh, trying uh, Neptune up there in Pisces on Friday. And uh, Mercury is you know, moving right along, okay? It's a sextile Saturn and conjuncts the north node of the moon. Today, today, Mercury conjunct the north node of the moon. Nice time for a Pele report, right? And uh, and then uh, uh, he'll come along in uh, sextile Mars by Friday. So these are the main aspects we're looking at. Um, and let me just uh, have a seat. This is one of my favorite spots on the river. It's uh, it's high water and it is freezing cold, freezing cold. <laughs> I don't think I'll be going swimming in there after today's report. <laughs> All right. All right, it's pretty precarious out here. Uh, so I'm going to get going on this baby. The wind comes along every once in a while, blowing up the canyon. Just blew my tripod over here. <laughs> I don't know about the old outside office happening anymore. Hiking out to do these reports. I could sit in front of the fireplace like last week. It was great. <laughs> Anyway, we'll be spontaneous. We're out in nature. I want to read to you about nature. So beautiful. Sun conjunct Chiron at the 16th degree of Aries. I'm going to close with that because it's so beautiful. 
But in the meantime, ah, let's do our little freak out together. Life is freaking out. I mean, and I have to say, I'm in the United States. This place is crazy. I can't wait to get home to Costa Rica. It's nuts around here. And there's just like this vibe, especially here in California, that is just like, you know, just, it's, it's, uh, it's uncomfortable. It's just not, it's not soothing, you know? And the moon in Libra wants soothing. <laughs> and Mars in Cancer wants soothing. And Sun conjunct Chiron wants soothing. And Venus in Taurus wants soothing. We need to soothe ourselves. What a great word. <laughs> oh, but what, what do I want to talk? I want to talk about relationships because this is an overarching theme going on. Relationship, partnership. South node of the moon moving through Scorpio started in January of 22. In July, it's going to go into Libra. And then, you know, towards uh, the end, right, of 24, it's going to go into Virgo. So we have this three-year period, 22, 23, 24, where we've got this Past life dharma, past life relationships, past life karma, past life, you know, everything coming up for the soul to deal with, work through, balance, integrate, and come to that north node of the moon in Taurus, self-sufficiency. Okay, the answer lies within. And then into Aries, aligning my personal ego will with a higher dimensional divine will and and so there is this like i've been talking about you know this uh getting out of codependency but you know there's just so much to learn in these relationships and partnerships that uh you know it's not it's not like you have to not be in one in order to be self-realized you know um because we're going to deal with it in the way that new paradigm astrology looks at it is these Relationships are mirrors, mirrors of ourselves. And let's face it, you can see things in a mirror that you can't see without it. Especially if you turn around, you know, you can see stuff on your back. <laughs> you know, in a mirror, okay? And you might feel something on your face, but you really don't know what it is, right? Until you look in a mirror, <laughs> So, you know, relationships, other people mirror back to us our unconscious, our subconscious, our projections. And the moon in particular now, you know, the moon is the subconscious. It's our it's our inner emotional world that is not fully, you know, just not fully, it's not it's not this ego so much. It's it's subconscious. And it raises its head like a dolphin coming out of the water. And we can see that subconscious every once in a while. But when the moon is in Libra, we're going to see it a lot more. And the moon reflects the light of the sun. So it is this reflection back to us. So we can really see ourselves. And not even so much in the relationship, but our expectations, our fantasies, our dreams, our projections, uh, you know, what we want, what we're seeking, what we're looking at. 
And the danger, danger, ranger, danger, okay, Sun conjunct Chiron in Aries. You know, Chiron is our wound. We're all dealing with this wounded masculine, this wounded will, this feeling of impotence, this feeling of not getting what we want, Aries, getting angry about it, getting upset, getting distraught, going into feelings of despair and hopelessness or self-shaming and guilt. Maybe I don't deserve it or I'm not worthy or I don't deserve to exist. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm a peon. I'm a, I'm a grain of sand on the beach. I guess I'm just nothing and I'll never get what I want. And why even bother trying and just, you know, throw in the towel, forget it. <laughs> Jump overboard. <laughs> I'm out of here. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, uh, you know, healing this wound of undeservedness, of impotence, of, uh, you know, my warrior, my will, my spontaneous desires emanating from the soul. I want that cookie. I want that relationship. I want that money. I want that position. And then not getting it. Bam! Slap in the face. <laughs> We're all getting slapped in the face these days, and we need to look at it. And we we look look in the mirror and we go, "Oh yeah, look at that." <laughs> There's a red mark on my face, but no, seriously, seriously. There's three reasons basically why we don't get what we want, why our dreams are not you know, fulfilled or come into manifestation. And this can also have a lot to do with relationship and partnership, the difficulties, the challenges that we have, that we face, either because we're alone and, and there is no partnership and we wonder why, or we're in a partnership relationship and it's rocky, bumpy and not fulfilling and we wonder why, or, you know, we're ending a relationship and, uh, you know, because it was just too hard or, you know, it wasn't working or didn't feel right. And we wonder why. So we have these, you know, there's there's different, you know, uh, we could say karmic, uh, you know, reasons for this that I want to go into with you here today and just kind of look at the different uh, scenarios. And now the way that we want to look at this is from a spiritual perspective. The evolutionary astrology tells us there are dual coexisting desires within the soul. The new soul wants to emerge from the source that created it. Individualize, you know, create, get in touch with its power and, you know, be a ray of light from that sun and be special and unique and the genius and the blah, 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 manifest everything that I can possibly co-create. And then there is the return. This return to source wants to return. The wave wants to return to the ocean of consciousness, right? The ocean of oneness. And and so there is this... Now, if you are, you know, really... And, of course, we have the different evolutionary stages. I'm not going to go into that today. You can uh, look at that in my school or online. But the consensus, the individuated and spiritual and... What we want to understand is that if you're on a spiritual path, you know, and 
that's what I'm going to be talking to today. Okay, you are a wave that is wanting to return to the ocean of oneness. You are a wave that has, you know, kind of like, all right, all right. Been there, done that, seen it. You know, I'm going to go home. (laughs) I'm I'm ready to reconnect. I'm ready to, you know, experience divine love, divine union with all that is the source of creation and really surrender my ego separation consciousness in order to experience the totality so if we are in this you know when we are on this path okay towards this union and spiritual oneness we want to look at relationship and the role of relationship in that journey back to source so we want to look at number one, you know, one reason, okay, that dreams don't manifest or that, you know, this relationship may not be happening is um, the timing, the timing. It's like it can be too soon or it can be past. You know, so there, there is, we are in a third dimensional Saturnian time space reality and as such, there is a time and a place and a season for everything. <laughs> so just think of it. In an innocent, naive, youthful energy, we can dream and we can fantasize like the little boy wants to be a fireman. And he sees the fireman and he, you know, pretends that he's a hose or whatever, you know, and it's like, yes, I, I want to be this. So, you know, we can have images, we can have dreams, we can have fantasies that are attracting us, <clears throat> that are drawing us, that we, you know, that are inspiring us to evolve certain characteristics, traits, soul qualities, and a relationship can be that. And, and we can idealize, okay, this relationship or this other person, and you know, and that that in itself can be enough. That that can be, you know, uh, you know, uh, what the what the purpose of that relationship is about is is really to inspire, you know, you to develop something. But you're not ready. You've got more inner work to do. You've got more, you know ego development or you know this self-development self-consciousness self-awareness discrimination maturity there's all these other different qualities that can come in before the little boy can be a fireman so you can't just always get what you want if you're not ready for it and if you haven't done the work if you haven't done the work you may be super attracted to somebody who is like really self-secure and they're on a spiritual path and they are awakened and enlivened, you know, and then you're like, well, you know, yeah, I want that. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> do your inner work and become self-sufficient and and then you can have that. <laughs> you get it? Second, right, you know, the, the other one can be, it's, it, it, it's You've kind of been there, done that, you've seen it, and, you, and you're kind of repeating a pattern, you know, of relationship, okay, you know, and, and you're just, you know, you know, projecting out another, you know, another image, you know, another savior, another, 
rescuer that's going to, you know, come in, you know, another mother or another father, and you're just doing it again. <laughs> you're doing it over again. Eh, 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 not going to work. <laughs> I mean, of course, a lot of these things can work for a short period of time, but you will find yourself, and this is particularly with the second one. The second one, when things don't work out, when dreams don't manifest, when relationships don't pan out according to your, you know, according to your desires and your uh, hopes and wishes and dreams for that relationship and partnership. The second reason is that these things are to teach us about our own illusions and delusions. And that, again, you can't always get what you want. These things may not always work out because... You are not aware of your unconscious directives, your unconscious, uh, you know, it's like the unconscious is the, 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 the soul, is the captain steering the ship of your life. And you're a passenger, man. You need to get in touch with the captain, you know, and really find out if this is in the best interest of your evolutionary intentions for this lifetime or if this is some kind of you know so what we have is and some of this can even be karmic uh you know like uh, even from past lives right where what is a common one is the god complex <laughs> i think i'm god and i can create whatever i want uh, you know, <laughs> the ego is <laughs> huge. <laughs> we won't mention a few of those huge egos that are uh, on the front lines of the papers these days. But, you know, there are huge egos all over the place, particularly in spiritual uh, <clears throat> institutions anyway. But this God complex is, you know, just like, okay, you're too big for your britches and... You need to, you know, experience that uh, it is disillusionment, disillusionment that, you know, that, that, that really uh, your, your will, your ego will is not in charge and you are, are not able, capable of having this, that or the other thing. You need to tune in. You need to. And this is where astrology comes in and. You know, yoga, meditation, tarot, plant medicine. I mean, it, 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 these are all pathways, right, to understanding the soul that reincarnates, that has an intention and a program for this lifetime. There's a certain soul destiny. It's in your birth chart. And these relationships are either in alignment with that soul destiny, okay, or you are you know, maybe, you know, wanting to create something that is contradictory, that is, you know, at odds, at cross purposes to, you know, really this returning to the source. is it's, it's not going to return you to the source, right? You're playing out another complex dynamic from your childhood, from past lives, from your conditioning, uh, you know, you have erroneous views of what fulfillment is, 
of what success is, of what the end game is, and your goals are out of alignment with your soul intentions. And so again, this can be, you know, yeah, these relationships can go on for a while. It's, it's not like you can't have it, but you know, you'll, you'll hit a wall, you'll hit a void, you'll hit an emptiness. Uh, it won't be fulfilling or it will not be the success that you envisioned or imagined or whatever, right? Because it's, you know, and this can be also around codependency. That you think this person is the answer to your problems. You think this person is going to bring you happiness and, and change your life and everything's going to be fine if you could just be with this person. <laughs> Ow! The games people play, baby. Number three. <laughs> Number three, you know, uh, has more to do with like relationship and partnership that is in alignment. You know, there is this pathway, like I said, this that, that, that the mirror is not clouded, it's not dirty, it's not distorted, it's not one of those, uh, you know, that you get at the, uh, you know, the festivals or something, you know, the weird mirror where you'll stand in front of it and, you know, you're huge or tiny or skinny or fat or... Oh, my God. Right? But that, but that this partnership, that this other person is a good mirror for you and you do evolve evolve you know evolution is self-discovery you start discovering and you start seeing you start understanding and it and it builds you up and it helps you to heal this sun chiron in the first house of aries you know with jupiter i'm going to get more around to the you know to that also but we want to say that these relationships can assist us on our journey back to source. And how can they do that? You know, primarily, I'm going to say that it has to do with, like, you know, when the couple seeks source together. And they're not looking for the answer in the other person, but with the other person. And and, and that the relationship and the goal of the relationship Okay, is illumination. And they're both going for Tantra, sacred sexuality, moving into, you know, dynamics, okay, you know, of like really, you know, opening their hearts to not just Venus, personal love, but Neptune, universal love, universal consciousness. And they're surrendering to love through practicing surrendering to another so there are all kinds of dynamics that can really, you know, pan out very beautifully and very powerfully. Yeah. So but right now, what we want to understand is this can be very challenging because the sun is conjunct Chiron. And, you know, this can just like really bring up the blues. It can bring up of feelings of hopelessness. Feelings of, like I said, I, you know, this is not going to happen. Uh, I don't believe in myself. I don't have enough will forces. I, I, I don't, uh, you know, I'm too wounded or I don't deserve or all the different wounds that each one of us has uniquely. You have to see where this Chiron, Sun, Jupiter conjunction is falling in your chart. 
Where is 16 degrees of Aries? Do you have planets there? What house is it in? You can get far more specific with all of this, of course, by looking at where it, what it's doing, you know, in your natal chart for you right now. But just generally, because this Paleo Report is a general, uh, you know, work, is that don't forget, the wound becomes the medicine. Going into the causes, Chiron opens up our hearts, it opens up our souls, opening up our wounds, you know, it's painful. It has to do with suffering and defeat. The sword, the Five of Swords uh, tarot card that I talked about in last week's report, Okay, it really comes into the lessons around and, 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 and the awareness that can come. And, you know, and we live to another day, you know, we, we live to move on and move through. So we have to really come into, okay, this very, very, Going in, the hero's journey is into the causes, researching, investigating. You know, did did my mother tell me I I was never gonna you know get you know this or I should not do that or did the church come along and say this that or the other or you know is the government you know, da, 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 you know have have I caved in you know have I had you know previous partners that didn't give me what I wanted and I feel, you know, guilty. There's so many causes and reasons. Is my will in alignment with my soul? Am I an instrument of something higher and greater? Or am I going to be some kind of, you know, uh, you know, conqueror and, you know, just, you know, think that I can you know, get more for I, me, my. Don't forget, we're all cups. We get filled up in order to, uh, you know, give to other people who are thirsty. Yeah, that's what life is all about. We gather it up and then we let it out. Just like the moon, you know, becomes full and then she lets it all out. So this moon in Libra, is also, let's just look at this dynamic of Aries Libra, because we need to balance these polarities. And balancing these polarities deals with impulse, whether it's, you know, anger, spontaneous, uh, you know, will, uh, unconscious, just like charging and taking and, you know, uh, you know, not seeing, realizing that other people... <laughs> have needs too <laughs> versus okay the empath that you know is so aware and so in other people's needs and other people's longings and you know is so into the mirror and trying to please the mirror you know and and, and just you know putting up a false front being so diplomatic so tactful so nonviolent uh, you know, so agreeable, you know, compromising and cooperating to the point where they lose themselves and their will and orbit around somebody else. The, you know, the, the, the partner becomes the God or the source and you want to return 
you know, to the source and you think it's the partner, but uh, uh, guess what? <laughs> you get thrown back to your wound and then your wound is painful. So we run back to relationship and partnership. Oh, they're going to save me. And then the relationship and partnership says, no, you have to deal with your wounds. So we're, we're kind of doing this ping pong right now where we got to do our inner work in order to make our relationships work. And whoa, you know, it gets uh, bloody, dirty, messy, gooey in there. The beautiful part is the Sabian symbol for the full moon. Ow! Yeah, baby! Comes... <clears throat> yeah. Sabian symbols come through again, you know. How to manage this, how to handle this. This is so beautiful because, you know, Libra is an air sign. It has to do with objectivity. It has to do with, you know, consideration. Let me read you the Sabian symbol. It is a retired sea captain watches ships entering and leaving the harbor. The capacity to gain an objective and calm understanding of human experiences in which one was deeply involved. As to say lost, perhaps. <laughs> Deluded, perhaps. <laughs> Innocent, perhaps. Old age may or may not bring to a person this objective and calm understanding as one remembers the crises overcome and the quiet enjoyment of great life vistas or peak experiences. But wisdom and inner serenity can hardly develop save on the basis of the overcoming of struggles and conflicts. The sea captain sailed his ship through storms and still waters of consciousness, his mind perhaps battered by gales, his ego crew perhaps in revolt. Now there is peace and quietude Another generation is sailing seas, better charted perhaps, yet inherently non-rational and at times savage in their fury. He watches. He knows. Others are learning. At any age, the ego will may retire and contemplate and be at peace before a greater voyage over even more poorly charted seas. The return to source. Venus rules Libra. Yeah. And she has been conjunct Uranus. She is. So there is this kind of radical shifting and changing, breaking up of the icebergs like the Titanic hit one 
<laughs> Maybe the sea captain survived the Titanic. Maybe you have survived this relationship or this life crisis or but there is great wisdom through the observation and this great learning through what we are all learning over these next three years as Saturn transits Pisces as Neptune closes its 14 year through Pisces the oceans yes and that is this retirement from ego will action rather aligning the will it's not my will it's thy will it's the will this is Wu Wei the path of non-action the path of flowing like that river and feeling the current and you can steer and you can paddle I can't wait to do some white water rafting you know you know it's beautiful but do not underestimate the power of the river the power of your soul the power of your destiny what will be will be and when you find yourself fighting when you find yourself in conflict this can be your immature ego will that is either naive or perhaps too big for its own britches and needs an adjustment so yeah we hit the rocks I've flipped over whitewater rafting before I know what it's like to <laughs> smash my head on a rock <laughs> I've done it too many times man anyway oh the other thing that I got that I gotta go for here is I want to close now with the uh, and this is just like yeah it's not just the river but it is all of nature is our teacher it was so great today. I'm sitting here underneath the oak tree and I'm just contemplating, what am I going to say on the Pele report? Hmm. And, a, and, a, and a, a, a seed, a bud, drops and falls on my sleeve and just sits there, you know? Everything is in the seed. All it needs is fire, earth, air, and water. Brings us back to astrology. <laughs> Okay, so you want to heal your wound, you want to really go into your wound, you want to really go into this Chiron, you want to really understand the nature of impotence, of, you know, you know, my frustration perhaps at uh, being overpowered, losing to forces beyond my control or just bumping up against, I mean, I have been bumping up against what, you know, the bank, okay, uh, the airline, uh, you know, the uh, the insurance company, uh, you know, the register, car register. I mean, you know, the car mechanic. I mean, it gets. It's just like holy Jesus, you know. Not only can you not get a hold of a person, you know, you, you know, they don't even answer the phone anymore. <laughs> Put you on hold. I mean, there's so much 
you know, frustration happening, you know, and it's, and this is, you know, this is going to increase here for a little while. And, you know, we can really get pissed off. And, and, you know, that is, you know, that's triggering us. And we just really want to understand and see that, you know, to heal that, to work with that, okay, you know, as part of our work is Chiron in Aries. And the sun today, but for the past couple of days and for the next few days to come, is shining the light on this wound. Of I can't always get what I want. What should I do? <laughs> Nature spirits are seen at work in the light of sunset. Attunement to the potency of invisible forces of nature. In the light of personal fulfillment, in parentheses, this is the symbol of the sunset and wisdom. We may be able to establish a life-giving contact with natural forces. These are active any time growth processes take place. But our individualized mind is usually too focused on working for consciously set goals to be able to realize concretely the presence of invisible or occult forces in operation, soul forces. These forces constitute a specific realm of any planetary life. They are inherent in all biospheres on whatever planet. They are non-individualized and unfree energies forming in the substratum of all life processes, thus of the process of integration at the level of the planet as a whole. We're talking nature spirits. We're talking gnomes. We're talking fairies. We're talking dragons. We're talking unicorns. We're talking angels. We're talking, there's so many, yes, spirits, spiritual entities, forces supporting us, holding us, feeding us. We have to tap into these hidden realms, even within the own cells of our body. The planet as an organism, Gaia. We, we are like little cells that, you know, of Gaia. We're little hairs. <laughs> We're a tiny little fingernail. <laughs> That's if you're big. With its automatic systems of growth, maintenance, and organic multiplication. In this planetary organism, those nature forces act as guiding 
and balancing, harmonizing factors. Somewhat as the endocrine system does in the human body. Yeah, think of your thyroid, pineal, think of all your glands, ovaries, testes, the whole endocrine system is so, that's that's another video. And behind this system, the more occult web, more hidden web of chakra energies related to prana, the solar energy. It is when this energy becomes less dominant at sunset, symbolized, symbolically, or when the body energy is weakened by illness, fasting, or sensory deprivation, that it becomes easier to perceive these nature spirits and to give them forms that symbolize the character of their activities. These forms differ with the cultural imagery of each human collectivity, retaining nevertheless some basic similar characteristics. Here's the grand finale for today. When this Sabian symbol reaches into the consciousness of the seeker, it should be seen as an invitation to open your mind to the possibility of approaching life in a holistic and non-rational, read moon or lunar, (laughs) intuitive manner. It implies a call to repolarization. What this means also is the process of becoming like a little child, the beginner's mind. Chiron is often associated with health crisis, with physical challenges that lay us up in the hospital bed or slow us down or make us not show up at work or interrupt our schedule of ego, will, force, uh, you know, trying to achieve some ego goal in life. Because it's time for us to go within to tap into the soul, to tap into the nature spirits, to tap into the angelic realm, the astral realm, to seek to open that third eye to psychic awareness, extrasensory perception, the multidimensional fourth and fifth dimensions in particular, nature of reality. Instead of relying on this third punitive minuscule little reality for our fulfillment. Come on. Ow! So, (laughs) the the mantra for today, I don't know, you know. My desire for love and affection can sometimes make a mess as I'm headed in one direction but wanting to explore all the rest.
I have to explain this a little bit because usually the mantra is something that you repeat to yourself over the course of the week, <laughs> you know, and it has some kind of a answer in it or it has some kind of like, you should do this, okay, but like, this is a funny kind of mantra because it's not saying that, you know, I should do this or not do that or the, here's the answer or it's just saying, well, this is the way it is. <laughs> And what I want to encourage you to do, you know, whenever you, you know, repeat this mantra this week, is to go for it. The final, you know, in the, in the end, we die. In the end, we surrender. In the end, we disassociate. In the end, we non-attach. And my experience has shown me that, yes, you can get what you want when you don't overly attach to it. You don't lose yourself in it. You're not overly distracted by it, but but you're playing with it. You're experimenting with it. You're exploring with it. You're learning from it. You're discovering something new about it and through it. And it's not the answer. It's not the goal. It's a means. The goal is to, you know, return to source. And whether it's a relationship, you know, whether it is a, a business relationship, whether it is, a, you know, your job or, you know, whatever, your family, particularly now, there's a lot of family crisis going on for the next month you know, or so with Mars and cancer. There's a lot of things pulling at us. There's a lot of demands. There's a lot of pressure. And, you know, it's, it's so much is just, you know, on, especially on a planetary world collective scale, you know, it's a big mess right now. But explore it. Experiment with it. And let it go. When... Uh, you know, when the time is right, when the lesson is learned, when the, you know, uh, when you've grown as much as you can grow through it, let it go. This is the south node of the moon in Scorpio. You know, let it go. And the only way to know when to hold on and assert yourself more versus letting go is spirit is tapping into the soul, is sitting and looking at a rock, looking at a candle for a while. Yeah, do a candle meditation. I mean, you know, really, and then and then listen inwardly and trust the inner voice. And it grows louder. And you become like the old sea captain that just kind of watches the ships roll in and roll out. There's so many songs I could use for this week. <laughs> Sitting on the dock of the bay <laughs> is one of them. <laughs> you can't always get what you want. By the Stones is another one. But I'm, I'm going to go with what? Who are you? Boop, 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 boop. I really want to know. Who are you? Explore these relationships. Take that chance. Trust yourself. 
don't lose yourself in them, but, you know, garner as much as, you know, can be had. It's a, a banquet has been laid out before us on this planet, and it is to enjoy, and, and it is to be grateful and thankful for, and to splurge a little bit once in a while. So this, this sun conjunct Chiron is saying, nurture yourself, take it easy on yourself. And don't blame yourself if it fails or doesn't work out or blah, 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 blah. Just, you know, yeah, move on. Flow. Go with that flow, baby. Ow! One more time. (laughs) My desire for love and affection can sometimes make a mess. Chaos. Mess. Love is a mess. Love is messy. Life is messy. Death is messy. Birth is messy. You know, anything that is transforming, okay, is messy. So, you know, if you if you're afraid of making a mess, you're you're not going anywhere. (laughs) And that's one danger of the moon in Libra. Oh, my goodness. Let's keep it. You know, let's keep it nice and neat and clean and, you know, beautiful. So, you know, I'm, you know, make a mess, baby. Ow. As I'm headed in one direction, the return to source, but wanting to explore all the rest. May your explorations bear fruit in self-discovery. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Well, I don't have anything to say right now. Oh, Oh, okay. I mean, you know, I guess it's information overload. Yeah, 15 minutes of it. Yeah, well, yeah, I kind of faded out there because mm-hmm. it's my bedtime so I will wish you all a wonderful and great week back to you as well Richard alright namaste namaste ok so let's just go from here uh, uh yeah Tanya Gabrielle let's do it Okay. Get some of it done anyway. Hopefully, we can go past eight. I'm sure we can tonight. Hello, hello. Hello. He's getting it started. It's taking a while. Sorry. Thank you for checking. We didn't go to sleep, talk. Possibilities are there, though.
Gabrielle Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes, the forecast where we look at the stars and numbers, the astrology and numerology for an upcoming event. And in this case, it is April's 11th Universal Month. When the 11 shows up, it is a profound moment of presence, of walking through the gateway into only the present moment. That is what the 11 represents. It's an initiation into not looking at the future and worrying about what might happen and not going backwards and thinking about what you could have done differently or projecting the past onto the present moment. It is truly just being in your heart so that inspiration can come through. And 11 is the number of the psychic master. It's a master number, 1, 1, 2, 2, 22 is a master number, etc. But 11 is considered the master number of intuition and also teaching. So a lot of teachable moments happen during 11 cycles. And those teachable moments are all about you activating your intuition to navigate anything that comes up. So if you find yourself going to the mind and using the mind as a go-to, you will be more frustrated in an 11 cycle because the mind won't be able to navigate the whole perspective, the multi-layered dimensions and considerations for others and situations that are upcoming and all of the dynamics that are the mind isn't privy to. Only your intuition connected to the divine is able to tune in and trust in what it receives, meaning your heart is engaged with the divine wisdom. And so let's look at how the numbers stack up first of all. Why is April an 11 universal month? Well, when you add four, plus two, plus zero, plus two, plus three, it adds up to 11. And 11 is made up of two ones. And one is the first number in numerology. So it represents new beginnings. So two ones for 11 represent double new beginnings. And you're basically doubling up the new fresh start factor. And that means because it's new, and you're beginning a new energy, you truly are being asked not to rely on the past because then you're using past energy. So that's why the being in the present moment factor for the number 11 is so key to feeling in tune and feeling supported. The new beginnings energy is really amplified in April because we have a total solar eclipse in Aries and Solar eclipse means new moon eclipse, and Aries is the first sign of the zodiac. So you can imagine that this eclipse just epitomizes fresh new beginnings. And so it attracts this electric, wonderful energy that really takes you to the ledge and asks you to fly, to trust, to take a leap and go. That's the Mars Aries energy. So coupled with the number 11, it's very powerful. Now the solar eclipse also emits 
an 1111 code. So it amplifies the 11 energy, and that's because the eclipse happens at the very end of Aries, on the 29 degree of Aries, which is the final degree, and very late in the degree as well. It literally is minutes away from the sun moving into Taurus. So 29 sun, 29 moon, right? They're both in Aries, 29 reduced to 11. There's so many ones. So now we have a triple 11 code, Aries, and a new moon eclipse. So you can see the new beginnings factor this month is going to resonate in your heart. You will basically be looking at life in a way that you couldn't have perceived as before now. And you are also going to fire up energy to launch new things, new products, new ventures, new adventures, uh, trying something completely new in your life and committing to new plans and journeying to places whether they're metaphorical or actual physical places that you haven't been to before. And this is all very exciting, of course. On the other hand, it can be intense. You know, with all this new beginnings energy, there can be a sense of overwhelm because you may feel like you can't hang on to something that you are familiar with for security. So when we're dealing with these strong shifts, of energy, they will appear in all parts of our life. You know, it's not just in the career or love or wealth or health, the main four. Uh, It truly is going to uh, awaken you and ask you to be present, right? Because that's the only way you'll be able to receive instructions from the divine in order to be able to move forward in every part of your life. Now, the good news about this code is the opportunities when so many 11s show up with Aries and a solar eclipse, the opportunities are as numerous as the intensity that is asking for change. So because Aries is also activated in April until the sun moves into Taurus late on the 20th, It means that you have the courage, the Mars Aries courage to create your reality. You know, the 11 is very much about creativity because intuitives are super creative and intuition and we're all intuitives. So we all are super creative. It's just that we need to wake up to that truth. So creativity is heightened. Intuition and new beginnings are heightened and then we have Mercury stationing retrograde on the 21st of April in Taurus. So literally as the sun moves into Taurus after the total solar eclipse in Aries, Mercury stations retrograde in the sign the sun enters. So that's pretty powerful because it is taking us into a direction of reflection and we are reflecting in an earth sign now, Taurus. And so that will actually ground the super high-speed energy. Remember that all the planets have been moving direct for around three months at this point. So Mercury is the first planet to change that pattern and station retrograde. So there will be a marked uh, shift right, literally right after that solar eclipse. 
So again, 11 will bring the light. 11 will bring the understanding, the intuition to be utterly present so that when that shift occurs, you can tune into the ability to be grateful for whatever shows up and love that, right? So the light of the 11, you know, 11 adds up to 29 in the Pythagorean system and 29 is the degree of the solar eclipse and 29 reduces to 11. So light, the word light in English represents 11. So 11 sheds light and reveals more and more truth, which comes to light. So you are equally inspired to be present and to be open to receive. So look at what lights up for you. What is being sent for you to pay attention to? What is being made visible in your life? Because in order for you to really take advantage of all these opportunities and delight in the opportunities, You need to be so aware of what is showing up right now, every day, every moment. So take this month, this incredible month, to be open to say, I don't know the answer to that. This will create growth. And you can then, of course, ask your guides, ask creator, ask source to help shed light, to give you awareness. And then as you do that, you are exploring your connection with source, which is what 11 is tuning you into. It's the two uh, antennas, really, you know, when you have, um, when you look at tuning into a radio the way it used to be, you have the antennas and you move them around or tuning a uh, TV back in the olden days. Uh, I don't even remember that. We didn't have TV when I grew up, grew up uh, when I was young. Uh, but I, I know that there were antennas that were moved around in order to get reception. So 11 is the embodiment of those antenna that you have and have always had. And they're never going to disappear. In fact, your antenna are part of your soul. So tuning in. And making sure that you are placing your, your heart. So the tuning of the antenna is tuning into your heart, right? It's, it's not the literal movement, but it is the move down into your heart, right? From the mind. So to be completely free in every moment of life and to show up how you want to show up and how you want to be. This is what you are being asked to do. It's really going to be on the, on the front burner here. And I say front burner also because of Aries and Mars and being a fire sign and, you know, you're being fired up, right? So when you get hit by a challenging situation, right? Something shows up and it's throwing you off guard. And of course, we, we all experience this. It's part of, of growth, part of being human. Focus on that whatever it is that shows up, that it's going to be far better than you can imagine. And the key is then you can imagine because then you're putting your trust in the divine. And 
as you say that to yourself, that things will work out far better than I can imagine, and that it's going to be to my advantage, and that I trust in divine timing, meaning what showed up for me now is truly meant to show up because I'm ready for it. And though I don't feel ready for it, though it feels like it's, you know, an imposition and I don't want to deal, whatever it is, I trust in the divine find. So you're turning around the perspective into the connection to the divine instead of your mind uh, hammering in that, you know, through fear that, hey, I'm not ready. So one of the things that really, really helps when these months show up and years show up and days show up that are very, very intense is to be very aware of your own code in terms of how you naturally respond to life in general. And that is revealed in your birthday and your birth certificate name. And I've created a special free masterclass that you can access at blueprintclass.com that allows you to discover your divine blueprint. When you become aware of the code that's revealed in your birth promise, your birthday and your birth certificate name, your destiny, your life purpose, you truly are in touch with your soul. And your soul speaks through the heart. And so this class is designed to awaken you to your divine blueprint. So head on over to blueprintclass.com. You'll see it's really easy. You get a handout. It shows you exactly how to actually discover what your code is. And then we walk through it together. So enjoy that and have a beautiful month of April. And, uh, I'll see you in next week's Star Codes forecast. Lots of love. numbers it's time to go to our conference call it's beyond time <laughs> 720-716-7301 and the pin code is 353-863-POUND okay everybody so we'll see you there and we'll be right back here at BBS Radio best radio there is in the universe and that will be at the top of the following hour here coming up so namaste for now here and we'll come and join us on the conference namaste everybody um this is the going back to know thyself as god michaela and ethan fox all right we're finishing this there's not too much left Here we go. Our own lives and through that, choose new mediums and create new modalities beyond the ones that they are focused in today. 
again, uh, we know things look bleak because the rise of Satanism on the physical earth may be seen as evidence that consciousness is not moving forward. But the first thing that happens when consciousness expands is that anything that exists that is not a match to its vibrational speed will hold on for dear life. It will first become um, very transparent and 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 um, accessible to to a collective that may not have seen it in such clarity. And this, we, we believe, is another reason why Satanism today is, is such a uh, defeating topic in the media and for those who are following where humanity is going. It has always been present on planet Earth. It has just been very covert in how it has been expressed and how humans have been entangled in it. There is there is simply a group of younger generation who are not afraid to express their interest in what they are doing, while many others have been entangled in Satanism unconsciously for a very long period of time. So, so anytime there is such deliberate and, and fine lines drawn between religions and philosophies and teachings, a collective is attempting to go in one direction and there is a breaking point. And then we do believe that breaking point is coming, even though we understand why you are disheartened, because to see so much darkness um, seems as if things are not going the way that you desire. Uh, but we want to um, encourage all of you who are listening today to continue the path of, of your own sovereignty and your own creativity and your own personal choice, because this will have more of an impact on those younger generations that are following the malevolent teachings than directly interfacing with it. And here is why you are opening up new paths and avenues right now that will become the norm of a new earth. And that is a very important part of why you embodied in, in a physical form at this time. It was not so much to, to fight up against the problem, but to create a landing pad and a place for those who are so drawn into the problem that they cannot see it a problem at all. Because eventually when they do, they will need everything that is being forged by humanity to live the life that they were always meant to live and to use those experiences as, as a tool to move humanity forward. Some time ago, the uh, CIA coined the term conspiracy theorist to describe people who uh, have a belief in something that is outside of the mainstream narrative. Now, was this in response to the increasing number of people who are starting to see uh, behind the veil of what's happening in the mainstream narrative? Keep in mind that these government agencies are using a variety of uh, frequency-based technologies to understand the thought process of the masses. 
So it isn't evaluating even so much the evidence of awakening on the surface and what is being spoken of and shared in a, in a physical world. But it's, it's the vibration, the feeling, the thoughts, even the anger perhaps of an entire collective that is growing. So yes, what you are going to see is a counter narrative to always account for what is happening within the human collective. So what you're saying then to sum it up is that there is awakening happening and the reason that so much is being revealed because a lot of what's being revealed today has been going on for a very long time. But all of a sudden in recent years, especially the last few years, I think more and more and even a lot of the world leaders who are orchestrating these things seem to be making very overt gestures or even I don't know if they're intentional mistakes that reveal their true agendas. Um, is that happening because, as you're saying, in the extreme levels of darkness, you start seeing all of this information being revealed? Or perhaps in the extremity of the darkness, you are forgetting that you have already allowed a new dimension to, to enter your physical reality. Uh, never on earth have we seen such chaos going on between dimensions. Uh, there are always periods of chaos and then growth where an entire collective will move into a higher dimension. But there is so much holding on to the old right now that you are literally seeing the difference between the third dimension, which is a very not only material but dense reality and the higher dimensions that you are ushering in as multidimensional beings where the clarity is so profound. There's a great deal of discussion on planet Earth about a topic um, coined the Mandela effect where what you remember from the past has seemed to change. And nothing from the past is actually changed. It is you and the consciousness that you bring to the past that creates the change. And so if you pl apply this example to how you are observing your current government, where things are being said or revealed that would have never been said or revealed before, and you believe ultimately it is because the material world has changed, uh, you are forgetting of all of the work that you have done and, and all of the internal change that has taken place within many of you that has caused this anomaly. It is somewhat like uh, living on a multidimensional planet and viewing through a lens where things are changing so radically that they seem crazy to the, the normal human being when in fact the craziness is actually a very clear view of what must be left behind in order to live the lives that you have always chose. We want to go back to uh, a previous transmission and um, lend our, our explanation. And uh, it was focused on containers of creation and various 
phases of life where influences exist. And, and within that container of influences, there is choice and choice can be navigated and the experience can be whatever you choose it to be. It can be a very easy and, and peaceful experience, or it can be something that is suffered through. It is very much like what we are speaking of uh, about the earth today. You are in a container of clashing influences, many different historic timelines uh, colliding at once. And while you believe that you must manage them and solve them and somehow change the planet, they are changing the planet for you. And all you must do is perceive them and operate through them to the best and highest of your ability. Meaning you are the one who gets to choose how things impact you and how real reality seems. Because ultimately, while we know there is so much going on um, to the detriment of others, there is great sorrow and trauma and pain. And, and it is never our intention to neglect these things as not real. Your reality is whatever you make it. So the more that you are tuning in to the, the violence and the chaos of these clashing timelines, the more you are going to see them through the eyes of consciousness and the more choice you are going to have as to how you interface with them. And that choice or cho those choices truly become the foundation of the life that, that you are creating in your future. Meaning there'll always be containers and there'll always be contrast and, and dark and light. But the higher up you go in your dimension and the more that you stay there, uh, the less suffering there will be and the, the less challenge you will have in, in facing whatever dark force comes your way because you will realize that you are always the one holding the light. And that light counteracts the darkness uh, in the most potent way. So what you're saying is that um, right now, many of us are aware of all of the dark things that are happening in the world. And, and that's something that we chose to experience, obviously. But we get to choose our dimensional reality by what we then do with our lives. So we don't necessarily have to watch all the violence or get involved in it, even though it may be going on around us. So is, is a dimensional reality an individual experience then, or, or is there a collective aspect to it? It is both, and it must be both, because you are both an individual being as well as a part of a collective. And, and this is where things get a bit complicated. It is easier for an individual to hold a specific dimension or, or multi-dimensionality than it is an entire collective because an entire collective uh, must somehow equate to a specific measurement for a dimension to take hold. And this is the inherent problem that you have in the moment is that there is a, a tug of war between dimensions. So, so ultimately, uh, and we will use you as an example, you may be living in a fifth dimensional reality or even a multi-dimensional reality where you're observing what is taking place on the planet and certainly feel um, sorrow or, or anger about it. But it is not interfacing with your life because you are choosing to create something beyond it. And if every human being garnered the power 
to create their life beyond what is happening in the world, they would find that somehow what they create is going to change it. Because there is something within all of you that is perfectly designed to intersect with the darkest and most deviant history that is always going to replay. But the problem right now is that the collective keeps moving between these various dimensions. And there is um, uh, a certain amount of attention paid to collective events. And, and that attention isn't wrong, but it brings down the hope and the possibility within an individual. And when that happens, oftentimes what you are able to create in your reality sometimes becomes lower too, because to some degree, a soul's plan is is also collectively focused. There are things, components of, of your uh, vibration that are meant to come to light in perfect divine time to intersect with others. And if those others aren't ready because they are focused elsewhere, then you may have a, a lowering of your frequency in a certain area. So this is somewhat of a um, explanation of, of how we see it, yet we want to make sure that we leave everyone with the most amount of, of hope and faith possible. Um, the more human beings that create their life to happiness and, and fulfillment and purpose and joy, the less what is happening in opposition to that will exist. And we know that humans want to make a direct connection between and and what others experience. But that already exists within you. It's something that cannot be quantified or understood through the linear perspective of mind. So if you are living your life to the fullest degree, to your purpose and happiness and joy, eventually something that you do is going to make a great impact on others who are suffering or what you see in the collective that you wish to no longer exist in your future. Well, thank you for speaking with us today. Uh, we'll conclude the show for today and uh, we'll come back again next time. And thank you, Michaela. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, that'll be our show for this time and we'll be back again in another week. So our shows should be coming out at least weekly now of all the different things that we're doing. Uh, alternating maybe uh, the channeling revelation show with our podcast as well. So thanks again for joining us and for supporting our channel and we'll see you next time. Okay. Do we want to do the Arcturians next drama? Yeah. All right. I'll really read this quick. This is called the Arcturians. Oh, Ram, you've got to take those away. Those things are going to fall down. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Okay. How can physical humanoid extraterrestrials shift into light and communicate telepathically? Enter the dimension of the Arcturians, technologically advanced, blue-skinned beings. From the ba from the 
<laughs> from the Bodtes constellation. Oh, no, it's the Boots constellation. Mm-hmm. All right. Who have been aiding Earth since ancient times. These spiritually evolved Arcturians are highly intelligent, efficient, and com- compassionate, intentionally cultivating their species as logical yet loving beings to help lower vibrational species ascend. And J.J. Hertek and Desiree Hertek and Matthias de Stefano, uh, some of the familiar, familiar names here. So we'll get started, and this is 26 minutes. Let's see what this is all about. system located 37 light years from Earth and is home to many planetary bodies larger and older than our own solar system. It is the fourth brightest star in the northern hemisphere and can be found in the constellation Bootes by following the handle of the Big Dipper. Edgar Cayce, a renowned occultist and teacher, considered the Arcturians to be one of the most advanced races in the universe. From influencing ancient cultures to advancing technology on Earth today, it is said that the Arcturians believe in a higher state of being and have mastered many aspects of today's modern age metaphysical beliefs. The Arcturians are an advanced race that actually have come to help humanity at this time. They're known to be in ancient cultures the shepherding mechanism for humanity. From what I've learned through clients deep under hypnosis, the Arcturians are living on a planet full of light. They often show themselves with very large dark eyes with no pupils. They're about seven feet tall and they have five fingers and five toes. They appear to look bluish. Their skin looks icy, but it's actually very warm. And they often show themselves with a very small nose and a very small mouth. And the reason being is that they have evolved past the need to eat. They communicate with their thoughts into the minds of humans in a very non-threatening, very loving manner. The Arcturians are extremely compassionate and all-knowing and full of love. And they are here to help us in our ascension. If you were to encounter an Arcturian, you would notice it's not very emotional at all. It's all pure logic. And that's something that they intentionally created for themselves. Over the past thousands of generations, thousands of years, they have worked to remove the emotional element, the emotional aspects of their being, so that they could be more straight up, straightforward, logical, 
which makes it a little difficult for them to understand and relate to humans in our current world, our current society. And that's become one of the most difficult impasses between our cultures. And even though they might be a logical sort of entity, they still have this higher agape type of love that helps them to connect and coexist and ensure the continuation of species that need their help and development. Neuroscientist Dr. Lana Morrow attributes many of her medical patents and technologies used to heal brain trauma injuries from her direct contact experiences with the Arcturians. Specifically, she interacts with a male named He. So my first memories of the Arcturian nation was actually me in a very small incubator as a newborn. And these memories appeared later on when I was um, probably like four or five, I became conscious of them. He has small mouth, small nose. He communicates telepathically. He doesn't really use language. I think it's mostly telepathic. Their cranium is a little bit bigger than ours, not too much. And he's very smart, very elegant in his demeanor, very respectful. At first, it was all around sparks and presenting himself as energetic field. As we got to know each other, he was very capable and generous in his spirit to shift his frequency into lower density, gently come down to my level. He now is appearing almost tangible. In fact, I touched his skin. I touched the suit and it felt like gel-like substance. Personally, what I subscribe to is that we don't really need to label densities or because I don't even know to what degree this is precise. I think it's easier to say that we all have the capacity to shift our frequencies. Another extraterrestrial contactee is Debbie Solaris, whose experiences have offered her profound insights into our galactic history, including the Arcturians, who have been described in many different humanoid forms. Some Arcturians have a commonality in their appearance. They tend to have larger heads, larger eyes. Their eyes usually have irises and pupils, so they're not like gray alien eyes. They have a specific humanoid look about them. Their skin was kind of a bluish green color, although a lot of times that might be hard to look at if you're looking at their auric fields because they have huge auras, a lot of colors in their auras. But for the most part, they're smaller beings. They're maybe five feet tall or less than five feet. A lot of Arcturians are healers, so they trained in the crystal healing temples of Patola. A lot of Arcturians work with technology. A lot of them are mediators. They're masters at psychology. They're masters of integrating spirituality and technology. I see a lot of Arcturians that have excellent communication skills because they were ambassadors and guides often to many different star systems, so they had to develop these abilities. They do have family groups, but they don't reproduce in the same way that Earth humans do. You have to be of a certain vibration on Arcturus to have children. Arcturians will oftentimes do like an energy meld. Only the highest level beings could teach children. 
because they knew they were developing future beings that were going to have an impact on many different star systems. Arcturians do not eat. They ingest the light liquid energy to sustain themselves. They might sleep for two hours a night. They don't really need that much sleep in the same way humans do. They go through periods where they go through meditation and contemplation. So that's also very important to the Arcturian culture. I do see why Edgar Casey called them the most advanced civilization on the galaxy. So it's said that these Arcturians can live to be about 400 or 500 years old. That's a long time compared to human. But when we look at their biological cycle, what we see is that they self-replicate, like a, a self-cloning type technique. You see, when their body gets to be a little too old, or if their body gets severely damaged one way or another, a new being will form inside a pouch, a lot like a marsupial, like we know of kangaroos, where a baby forms inside the pouch. But this is an identical clone of the adult. And as this baby develops, it grows as to be expected. When it finally comes out of this pouch, the consciousness, the soul, the memories, the identity of the adult is transferred into the baby. And that baby now becomes a new version of that same person. It really is that same person being reborn into a new form. But because the original body or that current body no longer has that soul, no longer has a consciousness, there's nothing to keep those cells alive. So that body will just drift off and die as it lives on as a new being. Information about the Arcturians has been pretty sparse, but what we've been able to glean from the research is that there are three major distinct species, the Dislentiplex, the Devonians, and the Corendians. They are three distinct species, but they do have a common origin. Now, when we look at these three Arcturian species, we find that they are all very connected telepathically. They're connected so strongly that it can seem like they are all part of one collective mind. Another perspective about Arcturians comes from Matthias de Stefano. Since early childhood, Matthias has had unique access to many incarnations spanning thousands of years throughout many star systems. The Arcturians look very much like us. Bluish color, but very human. Let's say if you want to picture a whole planet of Arcturians, maybe you need to go to Scandinavia and think that the whole planet is like that. That's the kind of people you will find, but with the bluish color of their skin and very clear blue eyes, but not like our blue, like more shiny. Just a few of them come to this world and are in touch with us. Most of the beings, they don't travel through the third dimension. They travel through the fourth dimension. That's why they don't look like three-dimensional when they come here. It's like if they are from another dimension. Actually, in their worlds, they are like us. The Arturians are part of the Galactic Confederation. They are the ones communicating the process of each planet to the main parliament. So they travel all along the system, collecting proofs and talking to the beings in the planet. So they are very active members of the Confederation. Within this Federation are many working relationships. 
One of them is reflected in the shipbuilding connection between Arcturians and the Andromedans. Because of their technological prowess for building large ships, the Arcturians work with the Andromedans to create their large biosphere ships in the Arcturian system. And the main reason for this also is because the Andromedans no longer have a homeworld, being a completely nomadic species. Extraterrestrial contacts with the Arcturians, as well as many of the Galactic Federation members, can range from three-dimensional experiences to interdimensional beings who communicate from higher densities and dimensions. To me, it seems that the Arcturians are dealing more with the individual as opposed to government organizations or groups. And they seem to be assisting the individual with technology, with engineering, with information that's going to move the human technology forward. So why would they attract one person and not the other? It is because of their lineage. We think that everybody should be communicating with the same type of species, but it doesn't work this way. You are here in a human body but you came from a spirit family, you have a lineage that goes beyond the human, which for some people is Arcturian. In his book, The Keys of Enoch, J.J. Hertog downloads information from his cosmic contact to prepare humankind for the quantum leap forward and communication with the worlds of higher evolutionary intelligences, specifically from the Arcturians. This sense of mission and purpose has been reported by many people inspired by their Arcturian contacts in the areas of science, medicine, and spirituality. In my experience with the ultra-terrestrial form, not the extraterrestrial, but the ultra-terrestrial, the non-physical physical, a facial profile in an energized form of light or superluminal light manifested long enough for me to see the details of a beautiful face glowing with light. That face was then speaking to me telepathic way. I was energized to be taken off the planet momentarily into another dimension where I saw beings that took on a physical dimension, albeit human-like form, a beautiful face surrounded by light showing the consistency of what we will call the Adamic, the human form, but the ultra-terrestrial form. In that process of receiving the communication, I was shown a plethora of different biological categories of ET as well as UT, consciousness, life forms. When I returned to the physical, three-dimensional, I was thus able to write down by virtue of the information put into my mind, what I felt to be the accurate report of these other categories that we as humans would ultimately make contact with in the physical, planetary sense of being, quote-unquote, future humans. You will find that this particular human all of a sudden starts to download scientific uh, formulas, even though they're not a scientist or they have some sort of major technological discovery, even though they weren't necessarily looking for it. So that's interesting. How did that happen? It's usually through these downloads, usually through these interactions with their lineage, which is the Arcturian lineage. 
I'm being guided by He to create devices that will effortlessly transform our energetic field and enable us to heal rapidly. That facilitation is being helped by Arcturians. With He, I think He's a facilitator and almost like a teacher to me. Not almost, He is a teacher. And He facilitates almost like a high level engineer tells me where to go and what to look for. I just uh, received that knowledge from him and then I go back and I ask questions. For example, I'll read some other patterns, I'll read 10 articles, I'll underline them, I'll combine them into three pages of material bullet points. And then with those notes, I'll travel the next day and say, what do you think of that? Just like I would ask you, what do you think of my feedback here? I do know that he's an excellent teacher and I can come back and ask and it, it's given. Um, he clarifies a lot of things. In order for Dr. Morrow to receive feedback, she interacts with her Arcturian associate, he, on his ship. So I would find myself at that platform in space, very peaceful, small, like starship. And he's about my height, slender, very slender. His arms are long. He has larger eyes, but very pleasant eyes. Everything about him is bluish and sometimes a hue of green. He appears to have this gel-like substance on his body and not clothing like we do. So I was very curious to see whether this is his body that is made of that or is it that he's wearing something and he confirmed that it's a smart suit. He feels his physiology or his frequency, and it's almost like it can be used as a map because he's co-creating new technology or governing his ships on photovoltaic energy, photons. And he made it clear that we are here to have a mission of helping humanity right now to transit to the next level. And that mission was clear to me for many years, since I was a child. But the Arcturians represents the category of Adamics, or humans like ourselves, more advanced, who operate what is called the Keys of Enoch, a midway station or position between the human race and the higher evolution of the cosmic races. They are the ones who provide the information necessary for cosmic change and adoption. And so when I published the Keys of Enoch, speaking of Arcturus as a midway station, my information, because I was a scholar, was, shall we say, heard in other parts of the academia. And to my surprise, a member of the British Parliament, Sir John Whitmore, came all the way from England to see me in California, who was using this word Arcturus as a midway station or place of extraterrestrial communication. So he had heard from inner circles in England and Scotland the fact that there might be some probability that of all of the celestial sources, Arcturus would be one that would be very special. As it is said in Key 201, Arcturus is to be heard and understood as one of the living sons of light, which means we are offspring of a divine source, and they, the Arcturians, represent intelligent life similar to that of Mother Earth willing to help us, we're willing to listen and do more than simply look at the graphs of radio astronomy. 
to realize there's a spiritual, psychological part of the human apparatus that makes each of us a biological antenna where we don't need radio astronomy. We can hear and receive direct information and work upon that information in the advancement of the human society. Arturians are mainly the ones that came to our worlds to find the genetic codes that would match with the vibration of the people in the Confederation. From our point of view, they were like the scientists that were going planet to planet to figure out how to match the vibration of some codes in the DNA of their worlds with ours. And they would guide how humans or any other being that are in the process of evolution would match their vibration. That's why we have Arturians sharing how to meditate, how to rise our vibration, how to use the crystals. They used to put certain tools in the planet to hold the balance into some vibrations so we could keep that information within. Arturus is one of two major stargates in our galaxy. The first one being Antares, which is the portal that transports souls from Andromeda Galaxy to the Milky Way. And the other one is Arcturus, which is the stargate that transports souls from death to their next incarnation. So Arcturian beings had a huge responsibility of helping these souls to process through their life reviews, helping them to formulate new directions and new lessons that they want to learn in their next incarnation, helping them to maybe have an overview of what they did well or what they didn't do so well, and how they can maybe transcend those lessons in the next lifetime, and even helping them to choose what that lifetime might be, whether it be on planet Earth or someplace else. So because of this, Arcturians have pretty much a direct connection with the Akashic Records because they need to utilize the records in order to look at these souls or its life journeys or life review and see, you know, what was going to be their next journey. The Arcturians are a race of multidimensional extraterrestrials helping to heal our planet and raise its vibrational frequency as extremely advanced, very loving and peaceful beings. It is said that the Arcturians are ready to communicate and work with any soul who aspires to journey with them to a higher level of consciousness. We're going to find when we get out in space that there's going to be some strange beings out there, but there's also going to be us. We're going to see ourselves face to face. And it's not us in the future. A lot of people want to say it's us in the future. It's our cosmic cousins. It's those who have lived in space in a much more peaceful understanding of life. And now they are giving us the information we need. The Arcturians are important to understand because they have evolved themselves over the millennia and have achieved the highest level through the understanding collectively that they are source. And that is what we're each here to do. We're each here to understand this. And as we do so, we evolve our consciousness. There is a need in this time to advance humanity. We all are talking about ascension process. We're transforming the human race. The uniqueness of this process right now is that this time we'll make it. 
It's important to note that the Arcturians are here to assist humans in transcending our 3D reality by teaching us how we can raise our vibrational frequencies. Most of the time, these Arcturians exist in a 5D reality, but they can manifest physically in our 3D reality. Consequently, their mission on Earth is to help educate us in raising our consciousness and integrating our lives into a 5D existence. The ascension process is personal, but also collective in the sense that a lot of us are going to be going through our own personal ascension process from the third to the fourth to the fifth dimensions. But then there's going to be a collective ascension where all of a sudden all of Earth is going to be in the fifth dimension and the third dimension will no longer exist. So that was the image that the Arcturians showed me. Every culture around the planet has these images of blue gods, blue people that came from the skies and they taught everything to humanity. So you have in the old traditions of the Vedic cultures in India, in Egypt, Mexico, everywhere you have this idea of blue beings that came from the skies. Arturians are actually the main beings that helped humanity evolve. All our history in humanity is directly related to Arturians much more than any other species in the Galactic Confederation. They were the mothers and fathers of our culture, our civilization. They basically shaped the idea of who we are and taught us how to find ourselves within. So that's why we had them as our gods and guides throughout history. In essence, we were being given a tremendous opportunity through thousands and thousands of ascended beings or celestial beings to wake up and to realize that the drama of changing our physical garments is now taking place. Perhaps within this generation, we will see individuals who can go from the third dimension to a fifth dimensional mind and bring back scientific knowledge to help the human race and help the human race not be shocked by going into the Galactic Federation, but say, no big thing. This is what ultimately this evolutionary brainstem leads to. It leads to the higher mind, the higher spiritual purpose, or higher psychic phenomena. And when we put all this together, we emerge as homo universalis, universal thinking individuals. Both researchers and experiencers agree. A shift in consciousness is upon us. With their advanced understanding of the universe and human potential, the Arcturians are here not only to assist us in navigating this transformative period, but also to inspire us to reach our collective evolution. Join us on the next episode when we explore the Syrian species and their impact on humankind. Good, huh, Rama? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to do another one now. Here, this is Missing Time, Linking, Paranormal, and the Occult. Let me pull this a little closer. I'll say that again. Linking Time, Linking, Paranormal, and the Occult. 
Is the phenomena of missing time synonymous with paranormal activity? Author and researcher Barry Fitzgerald presents his decades of investigatory work throughout his lecture at Awakening Conference in Blackpool, UK. Explore the data exposing why missing time is a connecting point between the paranormal, the occult, and the unexplained. From ETs and UFOs to Earth spirits, the jinn, genies, is that the thing you call jinn, the jinn? DJ, mm-hmm. uh, there's a D in front of it, which yeah. is, you just say jinn. Okay. The jinn, genies, they say they're genies. Mm-hmm. And Rama's got all kinds of stories, boy, I tell you. And old gods learn the lost connections between the paranormal and the occult. And this is by Barry Fitzgerald. And it's one hour, six minutes, and here we go. Mm. It's coming, just in case anybody doesn't know if we're here. Here we go. Now, what I'm going to be talking about is the latest publication that I have written, The Deceptions of Gods and Men. Now, this particular book, it will be a challenge um, for us um, when when we review the information, when we perceive these fraudulent messages from beyond, and it reveals a disturbing connection with the world of the paranormal, ufology, cryptozoology, and the occult. Now, what we tend to find is with the phenomena, when, when we continue to work with it, we find that there is a high level of deception that comes through. And this is something we need to be very aware of. We need to listen to what we're being uh, told through our own gift of discernment. Now, there is a lot of phenomena that that they use to interact with us um, on, and, and there are many masks as to how that will, will, will appear but it's up to us on how we decipher that particular information. And if we wish to accept that information is more important as well. Now, when we tend to have this encounter, we have what we, what we call the 22nd window. When the appearance happens, and if we're, if we're, for instance, if we're looking into the area of, of uh, ufology in its truest form, not the man-made stuff that we're creating nowadays, uh, we tend to find this, for instance, the light in the sky, flashing light. That is the hook and beat. That's something very, very important. Within the 20-second rule, what we tend to see is if we are not listening to our instinct, our gift of discernment, then that 20-second rule can be overridden. Within the 20 seconds, our instincts are telling us what I'm seeing is right or it's wrong. 
And if your body is already engaging with uh, particular uh, key factors that I will talk about later, and you're not listening to it, then after this 20-second rule, then all is lost. Because within that, the body then tends to be pushed into a theta brain rhythm with the observer effect. Now, within the the, the theta band rhythm, we tend to find that this, this is a place where we would go to within deep meditation as adults. And it's also a place where we find hypnotic suggestion works the best. And also that uh, uh, the idea of, of, of false memory coming in can also be placed there during this particular instance. So the 20-second rule is very, very important with the initial encounter, and that comes with all of it. Now, the hook and bait, the hook and bait is what I talked about, is to get ahead of our uh, response, our innate curiosity, which we all have when we see this going off. What's that? So we all want to see it. And I am no more different than everyone sitting here in the audience. Our fascination is captured by the phenomena. And after that, after the 22nd rule, we're hooked. Now, we can see this style of hook and bait across all of the fringe research fields. And when we consider this aspect of, of the false memory, the screen memory, which is a term that we tend to find within, within ufology, screen memory in itself blocks traumatic events. And it's a way for our brain to block it out. But you must understand, for a screen memory to take effect, it's because of something we saw. That is the trigger. Now, the big question is, um, are we using it or are they using it? Because there are many people who have encounters, even within this room, who have encounters but they can't remember. But there are key signatures within the body in which we can identify those particular encounters. Now, Again, the big question is, what are you? When we initially make that encounter, what exactly are you that's coming through and wanting to communicate with us? Now, within the greater fields of of research, we tend to find within ufology, for instance, we tend to find missing time, that phenomenon of missing time. Someone arrives at a site and suddenly two hours, three hours later, they're they're back, but they can't explain where that time went. This is a phenomenon very, very common within the UFO field. The mischievous nature behind the phenomenon can also be a problem. Abduction, mutilation, conscious connection. Again, we're back to this aspect of the hook and bait. They have that conscious connection that they need to link to you on. And again, as I indicated in the panel there is an esoteric value to this in which it can be summoned. The CE5 is a perfect example. It can be summoned. People sitting in meditation, they beam the lights up, the intention is there, intention is everything. And this is another aspect that we need to consider, the deception that comes with the true phenomena. And not only that, and this is something that you tend not to hear within a lot of the the, the ufological field. 
is their aversion to iron. The Greys hate iron. Why? Now, when we cross this list, a very short list of a of an extended uh, piece of course into earth spirits, the world of the jinn, the old gods, it's all the same. The phenomena is the same. And this is something that we started to do within the book. Myself and Brian Allen, when we read it, we wanted to look at the phenomena and see how do we, how do we identify this? How do we follow this phenomena back into the ages of time? Because when we were tracking the images of the old gods, of the jinn, of the earth spirits, of the UFO and of the beings said to be in the UFOs, we kept arriving at a brick wall because suddenly there was nothing more after that particular period in time. We were losing them. But when we stripped the mask away and started tracking the phenomena, which is listed here on the boards, that's whenever we started tracking them back into time and back into the early periods of the Mesopotamian period. So we can track them back through history and see where they've been interfering with us. And that opened up a whole can of worms. Now, I have to say, this particular aversion to iron is something that we really need to address. Why iron? It seems that uh, initial initial investigation into this particular phenomenon would suggest that it's to do with the biofield. With uh, when you introduce iron into a magnetic field, it boosts the field. Now, when we look at at other phenomena that appears within the paranormal realm, such as the night attacks. Many of you will have heard of the incubus and the succubus attacks that attack sleepers um, in the confines of, their, of their, their bedrooms. Now, there is a difference between the incubus and succubus and sleep paralysis, the scientific term of sleep paralysis, two distinct characteristics. But with the incubus and succubus, it's interesting to know that nine times out of ten, they will attack women more than men. Why? Because when the women enter their monthly cycle, many become anemic. The iron count drops. They wait. They're predatorial. They will wait until that happens. That's when they strike. Greys, as I said, and I've had personal experience with this, greys are petrified of this phenomenon. We also know Brian, of course, uh, sitting at the back of the room, um, is also aware of uh, stories of the gin in which iron was the element that counteracted its approach. Now, the trinity of life, uh, for this we really have to understand who we are. And, and this is very, very important. You see, we live in, in a modern society in which we use the term soul and spirit. And it's interchangeable. We find this within the metaphysical field. It's, oh, my soul, it's my spirit, whatever the case may be. Um, it's all the same thing. This is our mistake. Our ancestors spoke about this, and the two are separate. Two distinct aspects in us that join within the body and form a trinity. The soul's job is to keep the body alive as long as possible. This meat suit. And it's the source of our psychic abilities. All our psychic abilities are signatures of the soul. 
It's thriving, and it really does thrive in our lowest energies. It deals with our wants, our needs, our lusts. But it also keeps the meat suit alive as long as possible because that allows the spirit to experience. Now, when you have a balanced system, that is perfect. And for many of us, we do have a balanced system. And we go through life and we don't experience anything. The body, of course, as I say, is the, is the, the, the vessel for the soul and spirit. But it should be also noted that from the pages of the opera Omnia, the texts speak of the power of balanced shadow, which is the soul. The balanced shadow possesses, stating demons fear shadows. Now that means that what's outside is afraid of us. A perfectly balanced trinity. They fear to come near us because our soul is designed to keep us safe. Now, everything that has lived possesses a soul. That goes without question. And days after death of the vessel, the soul returns to its origin. And this is a very important point. It returns to a place of nothing. Absolute nothing. The school experiment on the 6th of March 1998 was exceptional in what it did. Now, they made contact with an entity known as Sharon S that came from a dimension of nothingness. Here we start to see the clues that is coming back through the veil. And this also is related to the other experiences within the ufology and, and, and the other things as well. So within the school experiment that run for a five-year period, the sitters were meeting twice uh, a week. And there's some people here within the audience who did attend that particular uh, series of experiments, and they got to witness the phenomena themselves. And it was the information that was in that was vital. But there were some nuggets of information that came through that were really essential for us understanding what was beyond the veil for the shadow, for the soul. It was at point of death, it should be noted, that when the soul breaks from the body, according to the ancient texts, they do retain knowledge of their life, of which they had lived, and have access to all knowledge within the void, all the knowledge that retracts back after death. Today we call it the global consciousness, and Edgar Cayce called it the uh, the uh, Akasic records. Now, we can also access the Akasic records. Many of us in here are practitioners, of course, understand that we can tap in to the knowledge. That knowledge is beyond the veil. We use our shadows, our souls, to access that. Remote viewing, um, um, all of this psychic abilities are all aspects of the soul which manifest through the body. So those are the things to consider. And especially when we, when we think about that it's us, we can open the portals and the vortexes to the other side, the doorways which lead us to these other places. Now, how do we do that? It's exceptionally easy. And we've got shows 
of which, of course, I'm responsible um, in part, um, we have shows that will go into a haunted property and we use such an easy thing as a voice recorder. Is there anyone there? Can you come close to me? That intent is all that it takes. That intent, even from a ufological standpoint, is all that it takes. We stand outside, we make that contact. Oh, I hope I can see them. I hope I want that intention is there. It's the intention that draws it in. It opens the door to that. The problem within the modern sense of paranormal investigating, of course, is that although we may open the door, we forget to close it. And that can cause a real problem. Because although you go into a property and you think, oh, well, you know, there was nothing there. Um, I tried and we left. There's nothing to say that two days later, two weeks later, two months later, that the phenomena will finally come through. So we have to be very, very aware of that. And another aspect to this, the, the paranormal investigating, of course, is the Ouija board. It gets a bad rap, a bad rap. Um, and uh, I have to say that that, of course, is, is a concentration of the intent. You've now gone from one person with, with a voice recorder to four people wanting this communication to develop. You've created a bigger door. Um, and a lot of people don't under, understand that. And, and that, of course, can be a problem. The late Robert Monroe, he was a prolific out-of-body experiencer. He is also someone that experienced this place of nothing. And it seems that it was a place very, very close to us. And he talked about when he released himself, and he could do this within the laboratory conditions. It eventually ended up setting up the, the Monroe Institute in Virginia, which is still active today. But what he could do is release himself, decouple himself from the body and go. Again, this is an aspect, it's the ability of the soul to do what it, it was designed to do. And he talked about this area between here and there in which there was a almost like a, an ocean of nothingness, blackness. But he talked about the things that were in there. He said there was there was almost like a, an entity of itself within the darkness. It was rudimentary in its in its basic forms, but could think independently. He said we can attract its attention when we're passing over to get to that other place. He also said that when he was crossing over, he got to learn to slow down. He had to travel across this vastness of nothing slowly because if he traveled fast, he caught their attention. But the warning that he gave before he died is that when we're coming back, we have to be equally calm and collected and travel back slowly because if we don't, we attract the denizens underneath and uh, we can draw them back into this world. And that in itself takes the form of the shadow. In the school experiments, uh, the researchers were informed that these things, whatever form they came in, came from a dimension 
not far, far from our own. So here we are. We're looking at this dimensional aspect to this world that we're living in, something which is exceptionally close to us. And we could, we could intentionally open the door just by saying, is there anyone there? And that was enough to make it happen. There are, of course, improved techniques to detect and communicate and defend ourselves from the shadow. And those, to understand our perception and the way we understand our bodies, we have to really look at the signals and understand the signals that are coming to us through our body, which are signaled via the soul. The soul is your first line of defense. As you enter a property, and for instance, a lot of people will understand real estate, that when we go into a property, and uh, although there could be four four walls, um, there's nothing there to stimulate us, yet we get this amazing feeling. We say, that's great. That, that feeling is tremendous. And we can buy the property just by, by on feeling. And 75% of properties are bought on feeling, according to real estate agents. But yet, they're equally, we can walk into a property and say, no, I don't like this. There's something not right here. And we leave. What is that? That's our signals. That's our shadow telling us, be aware. There's another shadow here. Whenever I wrote the book, The Influence, which was available at the back of the room, this is all gone now, um, the uh, that particular book, I was given a warning. And I didn't understand the warning at the time when it came through. It said, don't become too bright or they see you. And I thought, what, what does that actually refer to? And it turned out that it was very prolific to what was to come. Our shadow communicates effectively, triggering biological responses through the body and are usually ignored. Now, I've talked about the real estate, about the way that we go into a property and we feel it, and we examine that. But many of the clues of potential dangers can actually happen before the events took place. Now, to understand the signals that were coming through, there were laboratory tests that were being conducted on biofeedback. And during these tests, the computer was selecting random images. And these images were of kitty cats, flowers, children laughing, all of the the mundane things that made us feel great. And as we continually watched this, the computer randomly selected a picture of a car accident. Now, as we were sitting on the computer being monitored, and we were looking at these wonderful, happy-go-lucky pictures, our skin resistance lowered. It liked what it was seeing. It went into this state in which everything was nice and relaxed. But when the photograph came of the car accident, suddenly our skin resistance shot up. Our body started to prepare itself. The fight or flight was cutting in. It didn't like what it was seeing. That's how we understood our gift of discernment. Because as the program continued and uh, the 15 minutes rolled into half an hour, which rolled into an hour, what we started to see was that milliseconds before the picture of the car accident took place, 
the body started to react. The body was reacting to something that still hadn't happened. So we have this innate ability to connect to this greater world that we have given little credence to. Now, the fight or flight, our response, of course, is the manifestation of the shadow. It signals the body of potential threats, such as other shadows in your vicinity. Modern diets, of course, is something we really need to consider, especially today and today's climate, um, because they can affect the body's triggering signals and our ability to determine what's actually going on. And it's been readily known for quite some time, uh, particular foods and their their um, additives, about how that can uh, disorientate us. Refined sugar can actually switch off our gift of discernment. Now, when we go to an investigative field, and whether it be a haunted house, whether it be a ufological field, whether it be a cryptid field, if we're going there and we decide, let's go to the the, uh, fast food restaurant and get something to eat and we'll have a copious amount of uh, soda, that can switch off your gift of discernment. You've effectively blinded yourself by refined sugar. Mm. We're now moving into a, a system in which we need our gift of discernment. What's going on daily is going to start challenging us. Get off the sugar, folks. Mm. It's imperative. Get off the sugar. Our fight or flight only engages when a shadow that hasn't our best intention comes toward us. If there's no threat detected, our fight or flight does not engage. That's an important thing to consider when you're in these environments in which you're depending on the 20-second rule. If your body does not react and you've got it balanced, within the 20 seconds, you will get the message, this is not right or this is okay. We need to listen to that input. We need to reconnect to who we are as a species. If the conscious connection has been established quickly, this can override the fight or flight response. After the 20-second rule, that can be overridden. So we have to be aware of those that particular time scale when we are being introduced to these particular places. The combined response is there for your safety and should not be ignored and will alert you no matter what the appearance the shadow may take. And this is a very important key point here. No matter what image it takes, whether it be of a little child eating a lollipop or whatever the case may be, or or a dog or or a, a gray alien that appears, if it's not true, you will pick it up. Your shadow will alert you. Your soul will alert you to the true identity and to prepare yourself. The fight or flight is there for a reason. The nuts and bolts craft, of course, can appear in encounters 
and it's just as real as the solid iron that appears in the seance room. And, and not a lot of people are aware of this, that within the school experiments, there were appendages of bodies that were appearing in solid state, without the rest of the body, of course. But that wasn't the only place that we were seeing this phenomena occur. If we lose our ability to discern, we lose our primary defense against the deception and attachment. That, again, is another key point to consider. Now, it's interesting, I, I, I just wanted to put this in, that it has been reported that children, of course, have an extra sense. They seem to have this ability to, to sense um, spirit, if you want to call them that, um, um, ghosts and, and everything else that may be around the place and the shadow. Um, and it's also said that we train them out of it, but that's not necessarily the case. You see, there is a, a filter that thickens over the eye between the ages of 7 and 13 that narrows the spectral resonance of a child. So as adults, we can no longer see what we saw as, as, as children. Not only that, but as a child between the ages of two and six, they also are predominantly in the theta rhythm. That's their strongest brain rhythm, that place where meditation happens. So they are already tuned to what's out there. It's us as adults that became detuned. But there is there may be actual biological uh, uh, symptoms, of course, behind that. And drugs, drugs are another thing that can really affect our gift of discernment um, and something we should consider. You see, when we leave the body, when we project, we're leaving the body behind. The body is your seat of discernment. We need it all. So my recommendation is, if you're going out to locations and everything else, and you're wanting to experience this, make sure you stay grounded. You're there. Um, and uh, the effects of DMT should not be underestimated. I know that there's this great drive for people to head off to the Amazon and have these encounters with reptilian creatures and everything else on the other side of reality after taking a, a wash of DMT. And as I said yesterday, um, the idea of purging myself from both ends is not, is not nice. Um, and I prefer not to do that. But it should also be noted, and it's something that's very rarely talked about, is that 4% of users who glimpse the illusion of the other side later commit suicide. And there's a figure that's not really battened about. Now, between the ages of two and six, as I said, they're predominantly dominant within the theta rhythm. They also have the spectral sensitivity that also moves into the UV and IR sensitivity ranges. If children are so sensitive to shadow at times when we need their abilities, such as Halloween, Samhain, and, uh, and Easter, where the veil is thinnest, according to the Celts, between May and October, what do we do with our children? We send them out and they go for trick-or-treat. We feed them full of sugar. Whoa. We blind the children from their fight or flight. Oh, 
Um, so I'm not saying don't do it. That's entirely up to yourself. Um, but uh, it's something I would be very, very careful about. Now, extreme encounters, when we consider the likes of abduction and things like that uh, within the UFO fields, we see extreme experiences and within days to weeks, many who have had those encounters begin to report extra abilities that they never knew they had. Prophetic dreams, extrasensory perception, all of this starts to starts to step up. And they see this as a gift. And here is something that we draw this back to. We say, this is not a gift. Our hypothesis is that this is an extension of our shadow who is now stepping up to the line to make sure that the trilogy or the trinity does not experience that again. It's our self-defense that's stepping forward. It's the psychic abilities that we possess that is coming up to defend us from what's coming through. And as I say, it's not a gift. Um, This is our own ability. And every psychic ability, every psychic ability is an extension, we believe, of the soul. Now, there are many reasons as to how shadow can get back from their origin. We tapped on it, of course, when we consider the idea of Ouija boards, of of going out into the night sky and saying, is, uh, hopefully someone will come down, and all of that. The intention is there. The intent is a key factor here when we consider that. Now, these shadow cannot exist in this world without a touch attaching themselves or within us. EVP sessions worldwide um, were asking the same question, how do you see us? And this brings us back to the influence that I wrote. Every time the question was asked, how do you see us? Um, It came back as light. See us as light. And it's interesting that there was some research done recently in Japan, in Sinai in Japan, in which scientists have discovered that the human body is producing light, in particular light through the face. Now, this is not light that is representative of heat, um, of, 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 of anything that we're doing, exertion or anything like that. It's totally separate. But this light is a thousand times less than we can see with the human eye. With technology, we're able to see it. And it seems that it fluctuates during the day, but it becomes its most powerful and and emanates the most from the face around four o'clock in the afternoon. And then it dissipates, of course, at night. We become our lowest at night when we're in sleep. So when we consider the influence in which I was given the warning, don't become too bright or they see you. There may be something in this after all. Each shadow has been stripped of its past life, that knowledge that it possessed. And the source of its base instincts and needs, and basically we're dealing with an intelligent and deadly animal of human origin. That was part of us. They can be classified, of course, as energy vampires, and some do. 
each trying to infuse itself into a balanced trinity, which can cause. Padme, you have something here Hi. for us. Hi. Hello. I do. Hi, darling. I do have something to say. Sorry, uh, but it's like I love your show no matter what. Uh, it's always so, so informative and so beautiful and. I make sure I have time. Well, on a on a earthly note, I make sure that. Well, I look forward to making sure that I have time to spend with you guys at the end of the week, and it's really I look forward to it. You guys are my best friends in my own way. Um, uh, life doesn't have a lot of meaning unless you've already clicked into Tara and Rama. So I hope a lot of people feel that way. Um, uh, it is my, it is my absolute, you know, special time at the end of the week to, to have some room for it and a lot of room. And I, I will say about the people or the man that you're playing right now is that I guess I wanted to address what the suicide thing really is. And that's that mm. my grandma used to say to me, Anyone who ever commits suicide, they are kind of doing their own disservice. Um, she used to say, if you commit suicide, you're going to have to go through the exact same portal again, where all the things line up exactly the same so that you, you're either willing the, the second time to take the pressure and get through it, no matter what. So, um, and because I've listened to you guys long enough, I, I, and Cheryl has talked about what life guides are, and we all come in, I guess, on this planet with, like, let's see, two life guides and seven angels and a couple extra spirit guides. And so for those people that might disvalue life, I guess, um, the process of being born through a per portal of a human and having life guides and then being on this planet should be truly respected. I, I, it's the same thing as on the flip side of the way that that 1% wants to disregard the life of us. And so we all can feel really despondent on this planet I, where we just hate everything and it's just really rough but the idea that the free will planet that we have to fly in to we all pick the gps of when we fly in and we have archangels that fly with us and we have everyone protecting us as we come into the planet is really something we don't come here alone and we also don't exit alone but um it's not okay for anyone to commit suicide was the thing that my grandma said the most was, no, that's not good enough for you or for anyone. You know, we've all wanted to exit. We've all wanted to exit. But, and we also picked the time and the place of our birth and we picked, and we have already scheduled the exit plan. But suicide is like just gently jumping off a cliff and it's not enough. It's not good enough. And I, I guess I just, <clears throat> for the 
value of the soul matrix, thinking that you can just dispose of your own self like that is really not okay. And that's just something I wanted to say and, and, and bring in the value of life because life is so amazing. And, um, we come here to experience the 3D and all the tactile things it offers. Um, and just no matter what we, we talked about it earlier on the conference call, but no matter what we choose, we do choose life, no matter what. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we just do. It's, it's, I just got a hit. are an absolute. I'm sorry, pardon. Go on, sorry. Just, just got a hit that I'm calling right now on a universal scale that whatever a person needs, wants, and desires, that they have the inspiration to call it in mm-hmm. and to make, to maintain the ability that we all have of the power of the positive thought. Mm-hmm. And in this low moment, I mean, I don't know what I'm maybe saying, but I think that I had a many of an incarnation now to know that, I mean, Mother said this, that Egypt was the darkest period and that this looks like a cakewalk right now compared to what was mm-hmm. going on back then. And uh, you have something to say about that, Rala? Oh, I could say it. <laughs> Sometimes I would say this is the darkest period yet. You mean it's topped that period? That period's pretty dark. Yeah. I, <laughs> I remember to... that, you know, as Akhenaten, and we all, we all had to find something to move to because mm-hmm. we were being hunted down like animals. Mm. And mm. Uh, I think Rama is right, though. I think that I don't think Egypt was as hard as this is now. This is a very tough spot. I mean, we're all in a tough spot. Our emotions are huge, and we've woken up to the matrix, and um, however awful that sounds, but We've woken up, and it's very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. It, it's just. It's not what we planned on in the brochure before we got here. I guess is the way to put it. But um, <laughs> um, and you guys played some amazing pieces. I, I loved Michaela Schifrin, or not Michaela Schifrin, Michaela stuff. Um, it was just really important and uh yeah and the host of the show said that there's more that there's yeah. more we'll keep our and eyes one of the things that you know so ever since i was little just for i don't mean to bring my own personal thoughts in so hard but um i will i guess for a minute um you know, when I was little, I used to make all these paper mache green masks of what I would consider now the Arcturians. And um, when I came to this planet, I specifically 
asked for a heavy veil so that uh, I didn't have to deal with so much trauma about my previous lives. But now when one wakes up, um, the things that those people were talking about, uh, Ethan Fox and uh, Michaela, um, I realized I really am Arcturian. And it's, it's, it's difficult and complicated because you want to have a 3D experience um, but when your soul matrix wakes up, you start to know exactly who you are uh, from an Arcturian, Syrian, Venus being. Or we've all traveled a couple times on those different planets. But uh, people are, uh, you know, if you try to talk that, about that with other people, they think you're crazy. And it's not crazy. It's just the way it is. And... I just, I guess, while I have an opportunity, I would just like to say that those things aren't crazy and you guys are doing a magnanimous, stupendous uh, effort at really saying the truth. Like, the truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. It's Earth School. <laughs> and um, I, I just want to commend you on that. That's all. Well, thank you, thank you, Padme, and also the reflection of um, the the work. Uh, it takes every single one of us, and that reflection is equally as valid and important as what we're listening to. I believe that, anyway. Uh, agreed. And so you are hold. I call it holding space for other people to be enlightened about themselves but you guys have held space for everything and um, uh, above and I love other shows on BBS but in reality without sounding stupid or whatever but you guys have held space for people to seriously wake up and um, it's been a long it's a long process I guess and um, you've been arduous and faithful in your task of getting people to wake up. And it's really quite something. So uh, thank you for, thank you. Thank you. That's and I wanted to thank say you. thank you back again, too, because the contributions that come in for us to be able to proceed have, I mean, I have no idea how this has worked in other than pure uh, 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 trust in the universe, and yes. I'm and and I will say, you know, when Starseed Fifty Two had sixteen million followers, it would have been really cool if sixteen million followers just put in a dollar a month. Could you imagine? Um, <laughs> and I will say publicly that I'm naturally a generous person. When I ride low, I, I, you know, I, I, there's a lot of place in my life that I, um, that I gamble hard with what I have to deal with and stuff. And other times I'm flush with some money. Um, uh, and one of the things that was really hard is, and I'm going to say this publicly, but the idea that I had a, a lot of Tom Petty money long ago because he provided for everyone. And then the idea that he was taken out 
did affect my entire income. Uh, I, I had an extra 40K a year coming in from Tom Petty. And so when they took him out, that created a, a bit of a problem for me. And, and wow. when I was in Sedona last, uh, there was one other individual that was like, oh yeah, they took out Tom Petty. He knew, he knew. And I say that publicly because that man was a serious individual and he deserves to everyone to know how generous that man was. That man was brilliant. Not only was he a songwriter, but he was also an introvert and an absolute generous soul. I mean, generous. And that's really who I am also is introvert and generous and takes a lot for me to speak my mind, but um, no one on this planet should be allowed to take out Tom Petty. So I still grieve a little bit for that because it's fucking wrong. Sorry. I was just going to say that it's all up to us. You know, I think that um, what we have learned, we've got much more to really take in from what Michaela's been saying for the last two weeks. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's a stream of consciousness where we're right here. We are in the most amazing time that has ever been on this planet or any other planet in terms of right in it. You know what? We are we are moving the ascension process. We are all doing this together. And I I find myself We are. Yeah, I find myself in more contemplation than I have been in most of my life, you know, to reflect on how we do this together. Right. So. Agreed. And, and one of the things you guys are doing is, you know, my grandma used to say an expression that I love is call a spade a spade. Call a spade a spade. And you guys, your show is calling a spade a spade. And that is uh, just some brilliant stuff. It really is. And I trust uh, that this is coming to us by us maintaining this open space and, and, and love shows up. Uh, Agreed. Because love is always the answer no matter what. (laughs) But also healthy boundaries too. Healthy boundaries. I think all of us can get in a place where we forget our intuition and we get run down by things and we don't use our boundaries correctly and um, I think St. Germain has plenty of boundaries. I think Lady Nada I think there's a lot of boundaries that when we get to this 3D we don't call uh, our boundaries. We just don't and um, we also have to call love out uh, always, always, always and um <clears throat> Because love is love, no matter what. It means that you walk in the what is considered the law of grace. Um, the law of grace means that, and the law of balance um, are things that are pretty much lost in the 3D world. Uh, it's just so, it's stupid. It just is. And <clears throat> the, the law of grace is simply, truly, 
being in a state of elegance, no matter what. And it means responding and not reacting. And it means that everyone, where you nod to yourself internally to your heart and you say, I will act in a law of grace, no matter what. And uh, we're just not doing that very well on this planet. So anyway, uh, I, I don't need to ramble. I love you both. I adore you. And uh, <laughs> I'll just let you get back to the program. And uh, uh, I'll speak to you both soon and I will contribute and I love you and uh, I'll just just kind of sign off for now. Love you. Thank you, Padre. Thank and, you. Um, Thank you. Ditto, ditto, and ditto, okay. and yes, we can, and let's see, we've got about 25 more minutes of this, and I'm glad to uh, say let's continue now. Thank you, Padre. Here we go. The terrible, terrible upheaval. That's if it's not wanted. Now, there are some magic and some practices, esoteric practices that are conducted in Romania in which the soul can be targeted within individuals and can be affected. And there are esoteric practices used by some practitioners that can transmit their shadow at point of death to a new host. And this is something that I was working on when I was looking at, at the infamous Alistair Crowley, um, the head of, of, of uh, an occult line uh, back in, in the day within the UK and Italy. And it seemed from, from, from the, 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 the research I was doing is that they check or they, they select the person who's going to accept the soul. And that tends to be a relative it has to be more so than anything. It has to be a male, no more than 10 years of age. And during this particular process, the deal that is done is so simple that it can be as, as easy as giving the child a pencil. And the child takes the pencil, the deal is done. And at a point of death, that shadow leaves the practitioner and joins then with the child. That causes tremendous upheaval, absolute tremendous upheaval within the child because the child contains his own shadow in which now you've got an outside influence forcing its impression onto the child. And we, we saw this after, after Crowley's death that his own son, um, who had just seen him several weeks before, started developing what we would identify today as schizophrenia. And I went through a terrible time. Now, I have a video here in which I, I want to show you the, the shadow that I had captured in New Orleans. And this particular house was, was haunted. It had its thing going on. But I was using a camera that was more sensitive to those outer spectrums, mimicking what the child sees. Now, these, this particular video is, is, is photographs that are selected together and made into a video sequence. Um, but you will see through the lace on the, on the glass into the room, which, was, uh, which led off to a staircase, um, you will see the shadow, which are found, I believe, within the ultraviolet spectrum. 
you tell them what you're seeing, Rama? I'm showing this image of this being kind of showing up in the I was two floors up, folks. There was nothing behind me. Um, and I was standing out in the balcony whenever I was photographing this particular occurrence. The, uh, the, the shadow, of course, within a haunted property can exist if there are living beings within it. Mm-hmm. They will feed from us. And if there is no, uh, if, if it's an old relic of a house and there is nothing there, then we tend to look at a doorway that has been opened and we have to find the doorway to close it because that will allow them to come back and forward. So that's what was reported in New Orleans. I was able to, I was there some years ago and uh, and involved with that particular case. Now there are locations, I have to point out, of magnetic disturbance where many of this phenomena can be found. We can today, every single one of us has access to to free uh, software that will allow us to access satellite data in which we can um, put on this uh, particular program that will show us magnetic anomalies, both north and south of the hemisphere. Within these strong magnetic anomalies, we tend to find these liminal places, these places where the doorways are thin, where this phenomena can come through in all its masks whether it be UFO, whether it be cryptids, whether it be um, fairies, for instance, are all the same. Now, Skinwalker Ranch is a perfect example. We, most, For the majority of us here, we will be aware of Skinwalker Ranch. But Skinwalker Ranch sits on a magnetic anomaly. It was there in 2019. And it sits on a magnetic anomaly which is 80 miles long. It's not just a ranch. It's a greater magnetic anomaly. And we find that there are phenomena that are appearing outside of the ranch. There are issues as to what the ranch is doing that's causing the problem there, but I'm not going to get into that now. Strong positive magnetic anomalies present typical poltergeist activity. You will also find UFOs, mutilations, cryptid encounters, and disappearances of both animal and human alike. Negative magnetic anomalies, well, they're a different kettle of fish altogether. And what we need to understand in regards to the magnetic anomalies, it looks like we're looking at a positive and a negative. It's two different facets. No, we are looking at the same coin. It's two faces of the same coin. It's the same thing. The origins are the same for this phenomenon. The majority of sacrificial worship sites that our ancestors were using, blood worship and the spilling of blood was huge in negative magnetic anomalies. And 75% of the world's top suicide locations also appear in negative magnetic anomalies. Something is drawing us in. Something is drawing us in to perform these actions. It's about the blood. There's something about the blood. 
Interestingly, 70% of the world's weapons development labs storage are in these areas. Those weapons are taking lives, much more lives than used to be taken. Are they communicating with something beyond the void? Is that possible? Well, we'll have a look. These former temples, they were hard to reach. They were on top of hills. They were on top of mountains. Japan, you know, you, you can still experience that today. You climb up to the top of the mountains and leave the rest of the world behind. You reach these very, very difficult places. You'll find them in lakes um, and on islands. You'll find them in caves deep underground. These temples were very, very hard to reach. This practice can be traced to the Near East and countries such as Syria. Now, one of these particular beings within the Greek mythology, um, we find um, was the god of the wilderness, what we would represent as Pan. In its appearance, it appeared as what we would identify as Pan. But there was another one. There was one more being energy entity, call it what you want, that I want to focus on. Because these beings were known as the word. These beings were the things that were coming through to our leaders, to the elite, to our priests, who were going to these areas, such as the, the, uh, the, the Oracle of Delphi is one example. They were going to these places to commune with wisdom that was coming through the veil. Wisdom, of course, that was similar to economics, government practices, sociology, warfare, crime, engineering, and science. These were the details that they were pulling through. And there were prices to be paid. But what's knowledge? We need knowledge. We'll pay the price. Scientists and engineers have been using channeling devices to get ahead of current technological challenges. Now, that in itself is quite hard to believe. What do you mean are scientists and engineers, industrial companies that are using Ouija boards to connect to what beyond the veil? Looking for information? That seems bizarre. But there are many traceable documents detailing these esoteric communication sessions that attempted to gain knowledge from the other side. For instance, the memo of the A380, etc., 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 from the Douglas Aeronautics Company in 1968, before becoming absorbed by Boeing in 1997. They were sponsored internally. They were sponsored because they believed they were using a Ouija board to communicate with aliens from beyond the veil. What are aliens doing using a Ouija board? Again, when we strip this away, we start looking at the common factors. This is part of the document. And red flag after red flag after red flag was coming through this particular documentation. Communication with alleged distant sources was always accomplished in English, almost without exception. A variety of topics was covered from sociology Government, economics, warfare, crime, medicine, engineering, and science. Haven't we heard that before from Greece? 
Another red flag was when they were pressed on technical issues, the communications suddenly broke down. And this is always something that we tended to see. When we wanted more information, when we needed more information to clarify where that knowledge was coming from, they back off. When we become suspicious of what they are or who they are, they back off. There is an exceptionally high level of deception that is required to fool us to accept what's coming through so that we will take that direction. Now, there is unconfirmed reports that suggest Carl Jung had spoke to a delegation of the U.S. military when addressing the UFO phenomenon. And he stated, we may be looking at a mass Babylonian death ritual. Okay, um, that's one way of looking at it, I suppose. But when we consider 20 years later, after Douglas, a rival company did engineer the A380 and then went on to develop AI weapons platforms called Astartes, a nod possibly to the Mesopotamian goddess of war, Astarte. So the clues are there in front of us. It's whether we choose to see them. Now, I have to say that the shining ones, the shining ones are what I would call my nemesis. Um, and uh, they're often called the bright ones. And they usually appear above or in the vicinity of rocky outcrops and stone plateaus, and most notably in caves. And here we should consider the stone connection, because we also find a lot of paranormal phenomena also appearing around stone, stony plateaus, outcrops, and caves. We also find ufology is connected to it as well. And I should address the encounter at Medjugorje. I'm, I'm not sure if, every, if everyone is aware of Medjugorje over in uh, Eastern Europe, but it was a place where children were coming back and, uh, and had this encounter where they saw the shining one on the hill, which is now called Our Lady, and uh, and she delivered messages to them and does so every Tuesday. Um, and uh, this has continued over the years. But for us to understand these encounters with the Shining Ones, we have to understand the 22nd rule. Now we do. Now when we go back, and we strip away what Medjugorje has become now. I'm not getting involved with the politics. What, I'm in, what I want to concentrate on is the phenomenon initially, the way it began. Because in the beginning, when this being appeared on the hill, the children were frightened. The children were stunned in fear. That was the in, that that was the clue as to what this phenomena was, where it was coming from. Now it's become something completely different. Lourdes in 1858 was another one, Saint Bernadette. When this being appeared in the cave system, she referred to it as that thing. Now, later on, the church, of course, took that and smoothed it out and became Our Lady. But St. Bernadette referred to it in the initial stages as that thing. She did not know who the hell she was looking at. 
It was actually smaller than her. The images, the, the models and statues that were created following that, she was very distraught about because she said, that's not what I saw. But, of course, there were players on power to control folks and everything else, and that's what it became today. But it's interesting that we do have people who go to that location and still have a negative effect. They don't want to be there. Sensitive school there, and they have that experience, and that's that's still happening today. Now, it should be pointed out that in a wonderful book called uh, Gods, Demons, and the Symbols of Ancient Mesopotamia by Jeremy Black and Anthony Green, they state in Ancient Mesopotamia, the gods exuded Malam and Nai. And Malam was a light that was terrifying. There, the children were stunned. It was terrifying and awe-inspiring, whilst Nye was described as a creeping of the flesh. That's what an appearance of the Shining One really does. And that's something we need to be very, very aware of. Um, And behind the deception of what they portray themselves to be, our instincts, our gift of discernment can direct us as to, you're not telling me everything to, yes, I can accept what you're saying. And if there is any doubt whatsoever, folks, we should be telling them to get on their bike and uh, and get the hell out of there. Now, back in 2017, Pope Francis, of course, was on a flight back to Rome, and he was interviewed about Medjugorje, and he made a comment about about mother, the mother of Jesus, who was appearing every Tuesday delivering messages, he said she is not a postmistress. And he was he was he was pretty much on power. Now of course they've got their own thing going on as well. But it was interesting that there are particular folks in the Vatican and former um, um members of the Vatican, such as such as uh um oh I can't remember his name now. He was an Irish an Irish exorcist. And he even he even was convinced that Medjugorje was actually demonic. So people are going here and offering themselves up to this particular energy. But the aspect of, of demon is another mask to the phenomena. So we shouldn't get lost in that. And uh, so that's what was happening with the shining ones. Now, the tech, what we tend to see, the the technology that's being used, there is a difference between and, and UFOs between the 1800s to what we're experiencing now. Earlier today, I spoke about that particular attack, or it was yesterday, I can't remember, um, about the fact that our technology, although it's fantastic in what it does, and the speed and the trajectory in which it travels, um, its output of of microwaves and, and, and everything else is exceptionally high. So for anyone, and there are documentation there to support this, that for the folks that get within 100 feet of our technology, um, that 10% of those are dead within seven years. That's how extreme our technology is. It's, it's exceptionally advanced, but we have not figured out the shielding. That's maybe something we should work on. Um, now, in regards to the ancient stuff, it's very, very different, very, very subtle. And this brings us back to 
how they see us. Because as I said, how they see us or how we see our the, the light that emanates from our face is a thousand times less than what we can see. But we're picking up on it. There's something that is picking up on the light that we produce. We walk into a room, people will say, oh, he lights up a room. That is very, very important to consider when, when, when studying this phenomenon. And especially when we're looking at uh, this idea of, of this light and the subtlety of the light is also we find that subtlety of the nature and the energy that they are putting out. It's very, very different very minute and I am working with with an engineer in Germany and uh, and we're we're devising this piece of technology which is which is which is designed to look for particular spikes that we expect to find within the ufological fields within the paranormal and within cryptids and this is a technology which is not available as yet um to to the the, the greater research fields because we need to go through tests, but we're expecting to find that key signature, that signature that spikes when the phenomena occurs. And we can leave this technology on site for up to a month, and it'll collect that data, that data that we really valuably need to understand the phenomena. So we're going to start seeing this difference and and this understanding in the technology, which is then going to be coming forward to the mainstream for us to use. But as I say, when we look at the technology that we're creating within the the UFOs, we should also note that back in 2018, Steve and I stood on the stage of awakenings and we we called the Tic Tac out. We said, this is our technology. Back in 2018, we did that. And it should be noted that the technology in itself really, it, it really forces us to look at what was happening in San Diego, when the Tic Tac was breaking out, uh, the entire fleet had been kitted out to track high-speed objects over the horizon. The Nimitz fleet were pulled back and, and rewired for this. And then they went out and started finding this. The technology was there. Our technology is there to track this. And now moving forward today, we find that... Um, unfortunately, Russia is making claims that it has nuclear warheads that can meet London in 200 seconds. That's a high-speed weapon. You need a high-speed cure for that. Well, we've already got that. The technology is there. It is our technology. Scott Bray, um, he's the deputy director of the U.S. Naval Intelligence, stated in a congressional hearing in 2022 regarding footage of the UAPs, we have detected no emanations with the UAP task force that would suggest it is anything non-terrestrial in origin. Read between the lines. I will repeat, we have detected no emanations with the UAP task force that would suggest it is anything non-terrestrial in origin. It's our technology. Initially, we were copying them Now we've advanced. We're making greater moves than they are. Now, the Guardian newspaper, (laughs) uh, this gets us now into a very sticky area. The Guardian newspaper, it said on March the 11th, 2017, it ran the headline, the 1930s were humanity's darkest and bloodiest hour. 
Are you paying attention? Mm, not quite, I would suggest. We have been much worse. When we go back and we look at the Marian Library, uh, the resources there of the Marian Library of the International Marian Research Institute in Dayton, Ohio, I was able to pull the figures on my nemesis, on the shining ones, and their appearances across the world. And I was interesting to see when we started putting the figures and placing them together that within the last century, World War One, World War Two, Korean War, Bosnian War, the global war on terrorism, predominantly the shining ones were appearing in negative magnetic anomalies. The shining ones were appearing there where the blood was going to be spilled. Now, in the 1970s, we should really address this C5 because we've really been talking about the paranormal. But we tend to see other areas of the paranormal slip into the ufology field as well because we are technically looking at the same thing. Students from the University of Indiana devised a plan to contact UFOs without truly, truly understanding the phenomena they were using the usual flashlight up into the sky um, and uh, flashing away and making contact. However, when they established primary contact with the nocturnal lights on several occasions, a bizarre series of events followed that reflected the findings of the scientific investigation by the Livermore Laboratories in the United States, described by Russell Targ. Now, I should point out that school experiments during that five-year ex- series of, of, of experiments, there was manifestations of UFOs, miniature UFOs within the seance room. There was manifestations of bodily parts. There was manifestations of various other phenomena that was, that was occurring. And even, even within that particular um, experiment on the screen of, of one of the video cameras appeared the face of a grey alien. What on earth is a grey alien doing in the seance room? <laughs> and that particular alien became known as blue because of the blue hue in the screen. And as the experiments continued within within the uh, within the uh, school experiment, the Communication came to an end. It was it was drawn to an end for various reasons. But we were we were informed that there would be no more communication with the spirit guides, with the spirit team, or with the beings that were beyond the other side. That was fair enough. The uh, the experiment came to a close, but I have it on good authority that Blue didn't go away. And later on Blue was making his appearance in seance rooms in Spain. So, again, we were told a lie within that. Again, the deceit is very much there. Now, within the Livermore Laboratories back also in the 1970s, the scientists there were making the same type of progress, but they were also experiencing the same phenomena. In in particular, one body part appeared, and it was an arm, just like in... Oops, there's one over there. Um... Just like in the school experiment, the arm appeared, but instead of a hand on the end, it had a hook. 
And this was rotating in the air as if showing itself off in broad daylight, not the darkness of a seance room, which we're told spirits need the darkness. They didn't need it back in the Livermore laboratories. They were appearing in broad daylight, another deceptive aspect to the phenomenon. The arm appeared in the bedrooms of some of the scientists. The scientists were having serious problems because the phenomena was following them back to their rooms, to their homes. As they were lying in bed, there were strange animals appearing at the foot of the bed. Large birds were appearing that didn't exist in our reality. These things were appearing in broad daylight. It got to a stage where the scientists believed they were going absolutely nuts. They were losing their touch of uh, their 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 grounding of reality, and the, the, the experiments had to end. So that's what was happening there, and we were seeing this uh, this discrepancy of of how this phenomena appears. Now the students began to experience rapping sounds, hollow, disembodied voices, a furious poundings in the walls. Physical attacks also began to happen. And again, we start seeing this crossover of phenomena. So we've gone from UFOs into the world of the paranormal, um, when with ultimately everything is connected. Some experienced the awakening in, in the night to find strange, dark-clothed men standing in their apartments. And radios and TVs would switch on and nobody, when nobody was near them, leading them to abandon the experiments, just like Livermore Laboratories. Now, years later, of course, the experiment organizer concluded that they had tapped into some sort of energy. They suspected that this energy had been present on Earth. And this led two of the team members disappearing. Um, why, I, I don't know. One becoming deeply involved in the occult, another committing suicide, and another turned to religion. So there are side effects to us getting involved with this, and we need to understand our body's defenses, our signals that come through it, how we can enhance those signals, and also what we should be looking out for. The exceptional level of deceit that comes through needs to be broken down. We cannot accept the phenomena on face value. We have to stop that right across the board, and we have to challenge it. Now, unfortunately, what I also discovered is when we start challenging the phenomena, it steps back. And my take on this is if the entity, the energy, the being, whatever the case may be, if it has nothing to hide, then it shouldn't mind the extra question, the Colombo question. Uh, one more thing. Uh-huh. But it does. What we tend to see time and time again is that this phenomena does not want to be discovered. And it will move off when we challenge it in the truest sense. And the final words I have to say really go uh, to fellow researcher R.W. Bush. Um, in 1984, he, re- he wrote an amazing piece called UFOs Caught in the Web of Deception. And he said, the true shepherd goes through the main gate instead of jumping over the fence. The real homeowner walks through the front door instead of climbing through the window And the man who wants to tell us the truth, even if he comes from another planet, broadcasts it openly instead of whispering it into the ears of helpless captives in the middle of the night. That speaks volume, folks, 
And within the book of the deception of gods and men, I go into the details. Brian and I both go into the, the details of this phenomena, how it has worked with us over the centuries, how we have been manipulated to a high degree by the phenomena in all its multifacets. The masks that it has appeared in, we have to kick it to the, kick it to, kick it to the curb. That is deeply important that we do that. Because by doing that, then we're able to track it by the phenomena. That phenomena stretches back eons, all the way back into the Fertile Crescent and beyond. We lose that phenomena because the written text disappears at that point. So we can track that phenomena. Um, and by doing that, we have the wisdom. We have the experience. And today we live in a society in which we decide that, well, I have, I have lived 50 odd years. I haven't had this experience, so it doesn't exist. Yet we ignore the thousands of years of research and knowledge that our ancestors have left for us, carved in manuscripts and stone all the way back to the Fertile Crescent. We decide in our arrogance, I don't see it, it doesn't exist. As I say in one of my books, because we go to India and don't see a tiger doesn't mean there are no tigers. <laughs> Folks, thank you very much. Um, I'll, I'll be at the back for more questions if you need any. quite insightful um, we're going to go to a different energy now we're going to go to Professor Wolf uh, and see what he had to say this week It he's got the title here U.S. Capitalism Provokes and then there's a colon and it says Social Security U.S. Capitalism Provokes <clears throat> Social Security Provokes Ohio derailment and provokes Puerto Rican poverty. So that's what we're going to listen to here. And here we go. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today we're going to have two segments, one on the social security system and the mess that it's in, and the second one on that train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, uh, which demands much more analysis than it's gotten. And then we'll turn to the way the United States deals with its colony in Puerto Rico. Mm. We have a graduate of the University of Puerto Rico here to discuss with us what all that means. So let's get to it. The social security system is like a window onto U.S. capitalism, and it's a window we should look through because it'll teach us a lot about how this system works. You may have noticed that President Biden in his State of the Union message accused Republicans of wanting to cut Social Security benefits, which traditionally the Republican Party has tried to do. And he is saying that he will defend it, and that's what the Democrats usually say, and we're going to see whether any of that is true. 
but the fight has been going on for a long time. Many young people in America rightly worry or suspect that that program won't be there when they get old enough to be qualified for it. You know, the whole idea of Social Security, which was won by the American working class during the Great Depression, yeah, at a time when the government had a lot less money going for it than it has now, we were able as a nation to say we could and we would honor the people who have given a lifetime of work at the job, using their brains and muscles to produce what the country needed, at home, raising families, maintaining households. Yeah, we thought if you've done that for 30 or 40 years, the minimum respect owed to you is to not make you either destitute as an elderly retired person or a burden on your children's families. And so we created Social Security. But the people who pay for it, which I'm going to explain in a moment, have a problem. The system was set up in a particular way. It's called pay as you go. And here's what it means. A tax is applied to businesses and individuals to raise the money. And then that money is used to pay out the claims mostly of elderly, retired working people after a lifetime of work collecting their monthly Social Security check. They set it up that way knowing full well that the situation might arise where the amount of money being put into the system, the tax on working people and their employers, might not be enough to pay all the claims of the people who have a right to claim it, and then some adjustments would have to be made. The problem is, basically, as happens so often in our society, that corporations, employers, in particular, don't want to pay. And rich people, in particular, don't want to pay. Because they're corporations, they don't have a retirement age. And because they're rich, they don't need a government support, and so they don't want to pay for anybody else to have them. You know that mentality. We encounter it a lot. It depends on being ignorant. Ignorant of the fact that all taxes go into the government to produce services that some of us use more than others. We have a fire department for the whole community. We don't charge people according to the number of trips the fire department makes to their neighborhood. Or the, and fill in the blank. We maintain the air for everybody, even though some of us deep, breathe more deeply than others. We maintain the beaches, even though some of us go there more often than others. You get the picture? We give a huge amount of money to defense industries, even though we don't all use the aircraft carrier in quite the same way, do we? And Social Security is just the same. All kinds of people make all kinds of different claims. Let me just make it clear to everybody. If you die early, you will have spent a lifetime putting money into the system, but because you die, say, at age 65, you'll never get a penny back. You'll be dead. Somebody else who lives to 100 will collect for all those years. 
do we want to somehow try to discriminate between them? It's ugly. We don't do it. How is Social Security in trouble? Only if you are a liar. Here's the explanation. It is a fee, Social Security tax. 6.2% is taken out of your wages, and an equal 6.2% is paid by the employer. Together, it's 12.4%. That's what goes in to the Social Security system. And what comes out is what you're entitled to when you retire. So to say that the system is somehow in trouble is to say that there's not enough coming in to cover everything that's going out. And depending on how you account for it and project, that's supposed to happen sometime around between 2028 and 2035, depending on the numbers. So people are getting excited already. Here's the fear of corporations and the rich, that they will be taxed more than they already are to cover the extra payments that may be needed by our older people. Our population is getting older, so there's no surprise there. They don't want to. So they tell us, GOP and Democrats alike, most of the Democrats, the centrist ones in particular, that there's a crisis. We either have to raise the taxes, or we have to cut the benefits. In other words, we're going to hurt the mass of people one way or another. They like to pose issues that way because that avoids facing what the alternatives are. And there really are alternatives. Let me explain. The only money going into Social Security is money out of wages and salaries, 6.2% of that. If you earn income by interest, you don't pay anything into Social Security on that. If you earn income by dividends on shares of stock, no 6.2% is taken out for that. If you earn capital gains by buying shares at one price and selling them at a higher, no 6.2% is taken out of that. If we did take 6.2% out of the rich people's income, because it's rich people who get interest, dividends, and capital gains, the Social Security system would be overflowing with extra money. Here's an even grosser number. The limit on applying the 6.2% is $147,000 a year. Everybody up to $147,000 a year pays 6.2% of their wages into Social Security. But a millionaire who gets a million dollars a year, he only pays up to $147,000. All the rest of it, no charge from Social Security. That's a gift to rich people. That's all it ever was, and that's what it is now. Social Security is a flat rate, 6.2% on wages, 6.2%. No effort to charge people taxes according to their ability to pay, the way we handle income tax. That's why the income tax has come down as part of our government's revenue, and Social Security has come up. Because one of them is a progressive tax system, income tax, and one of them is the opposite, a regressive tax system, that's Social Security. And that tells you who runs this society, who organizes and controls the tax system. It's for the few, like everything else, and not for the many. There is no crisis of the Social Security system. It's an easy solution if you tax those 
most able to pay, which is already the principle of our income tax, and if it were added to the Social Security tax, all of us would have a secure retirement instead of terrifying the American people by the thought that they will be deprived of it. Shame on the Republicans and the Democrats who lie by telling us you either have to tax everybody more or you have to take away the benefits. Not true now, never was. I turn now to the horrible accident derailment, as they call it, of the railways, uh, Norfolk Southern in East Palestine, Ohio. I don't want to add to the details the 45,000 animals that have died from the toxic fumes, the illnesses the people there have suffered and will continue as the consequences flow. The horrible failure of that railroad to be safe in what it does and the failure of the government regulators to catch and prevent what the private railroads were doing. The failures are everywhere, but there is a crucial lesson. And let me do it this way, and I don't mean to be flip, but I want to drive the point home. Railroads, airlines, all kinds of companies like that that provide services like to have slogans that go something like this. Safety is our number one priority. Very nice phrase, except it's never true. Let me say that again so that there's no misunderstanding. It's never true. And you know why I know that? Because the leaders of all those companies say so. They will say to investors, I've been at the meetings, and they will say to potential buyers of their shares, we're a profit-driven company. We maximize profits. We control our costs to maximize profits. I have no reason to disbelieve that. That's what business schools teach the executives as young people before they run things like Norfolk Southern Railway through East Palestine. Mm. And you know something? You can't have two number one priorities. If it's profits, that's one thing. If it's safety, it's another. And what the derailments on our rail system, which happen every day, the numbers coming out now about derailments are stunning how often they occur. You know what they are? Proof that when you're choosing between what's most profitable and what's safest, what's most profitable wins the day. And that's not because people are mean, nasty, or bad. That's the way the system works. You get rewarded if you maximize your profit. No official at the railroad got a reward because he or she was the safest one around, if even it could be measured. Mm. No, our problem is a system that puts profit first, that says profit is what you get rewarded for, and if you don't make profits, that's what you get punished for. Of course, regulations then become just another obstacle for the executives to get around. Just like a supply chain disruption, just like agitated workers, just like another tax. It's something to evade, to avoid, to minimize, to get around. And all the studies showing what the folks at Norfolk Southern did show you, what lengths they went to to abort the safety regulations, to get around them, to suspend them. It never stops. 
But it's important to understand that's because of a system that in fact puts profits first. The only way to solve these problems is not another regulation for the executives to get around. It's to change the system. Railroads could and should be run by a combination of the workers who work there and the citizens affected by the railroad as its customers and as the people living where the tracks run. If they together managed, they'd make sure safety was taken care of because safety would in fact be their number one priority and not profits, which is what capitalism arranges is the system focus. And that's the problem. No one should mistake it for being anything else when considering what happened in East Palestine, the tragedy of that place. We've come to the end of the first half of today's program. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with an important interview with Alexis Colon. Before we move on, I want to remind everyone that Economic Update is produced by Democracy at Work, a small donor-funded nonprofit media organization celebrating 10 years of producing critical system analysis and visions of a more equitable and democratic world through a variety of media. Like the long-form lecture series I host called Global Capitalism, designed to help others understand current economic events and trends so they can explain the impact and effects capitalism creates across the globe to others. Global Capitalism is available on our website, democracyatwork.info. There you can also learn more about everything we produce, sign up for our mailing list, follow us on social media, and support the work we do. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. You know, it has often been said, and with good reason, that countries that maintain colonies can often be judged by how they behave in relationship to those they have colonized. That may be a hint as to why colonies are now relatively rare when once they were so widespread and so common. It's in the spirit of understanding colonialism, whether it's officially named that or not, that we have asked Alexis Colon to join us today. Alexis graduated from the University of Puerto Rico with a bachelor's degree in natural science and he also studied economics at the Graduate School of the University of Puerto Rico at Rio Piedras. His areas of interest are political economy and geopolitics. Recently, he's been researching the origins of the huge debt crisis that plagues Puerto Rico. So first of all, welcome, Alexis. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's jump right in here. Is it your view, having lived, grown up, and devoted yourself to understanding the political economy of Puerto Rico, is Puerto Rico a colony of the United States? And if you think so, what is the evidence you use to get you to that conclusion? 
Um, yes, I believe Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. To begin with, uh, the U.S. Congress has what has been termed by politicians, historians, and lawyers as plenary powers over Puerto Rico, meaning that Congress has complete control over Puerto Rico. Puerto Ricans cannot vote in uh, federal elections, and economic conditions are considerably worse in the colony than they are in the metropolis. The poverty rate, for example, in Puerto Rico is 44%, which is twice as high as Mississippi, the poorest uh, U.S. state. Uh, and the uh, Gini index measuring economic inequality is 0.55, which is higher than any U.S. state. That is to say, the colony is both poorer and more unequal than any U.S. state. Um, but to further examine whether Puerto Rico is a colony of the U.S. empire, let me first begin by defining imperialism, which, according to Michael Parenti, is, quote, the process whereby the dominant political economic interests of one nation uh, expropriate for their own enrichment the land, labor, raw materials, and markets of another people, end quote. This is exactly the process that has been unfolding in Puerto Rico since the U.S. invasion of, of 1898. Um, as Nelson Dennis wrote in his book, War Against All Puerto Ricans, Puerto Rico passed into the hands of the U.S. in 1898 as, quote, the spoils of victory in the Spanish-American War, end quote. He further states that, quote, the following year, the United States outlawed all Puerto Rican currency and declared the island's peso with a global value equal to the U.S. dollar, to be worth only 60 American cents. Every Puerto Rican lost 40% of their savings overnight, end quote. So, the combined effects of a divided currency, a colonial land tax, and hurricanes destroying crops was that the incident for just sea uh, was rendered unable to meet its obligations, and the U.S. banks foreclosed on them. The banks then proceeded to turn the diversified Puerto Rican agriculture into one giant sugarcane plantation, which was more profitable to them at the time. Thus, Puerto Rico lost its ability to feed itself to enter through the pockets of absentee landlords. Um, as Dennis recounts, by 1934, every sugarcane farm in Puerto Rico belonged to one of 41 syndicates, 80% of which were U.S.-owned. And so the people of Puerto Rico have had their land, labor, raw materials, and markets expropriated by the U.S. capitalist class. The Puerto Rican independence movement has endured a brutal history of repression. Pro-independence activists have been systematically persecuted, arrested, tortured, and even murdered. Um, these repressive measures have delivered a huge blow to the uh, Puerto Rican independence movement which is in turn the reason why Puerto Rico is ruled today by two major pro-U.S. parties. So we don't have an independent movement. We are owned by uh, an independent government. Excuse me. We are owned by Congress, and we don't have voting representation in Congress. Our president is the U.S. president, and yet we cannot vote in presidential elections. So to me, all of this is evidence that we are indeed a colony of the United States of America. Yeah, it sure would sound like it uh, in terms of, of the history of colonialism in general. It also means that over the 120 years, roughly, that Puerto Rico has been a property of the United States, uh, that the results, if you're going to measure the experience, um, is pretty pathetic if you are twice the poverty rate, if you are twice the inequality or worse, uh, even compared to the poorest uh, U.S. states, it's clear that having been a colony has denied 
oh, for 120 years, has denied to Puerto Rico the kinds of economic development that were uh, distributed across the the mainland, if you like, of the United States. Right, let me pursue. Let me pursue it by asking you. I wondered, and I think many have, why is the word Commonwealth used? Uh, in other words, it's called the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. The origins of the term Commonwealth are exactly what the words mean: a situation in which the wealth of a community is owned or held in common. What you've just described is pretty much the opposite of that. So what does the word actually mean? Well, uh, for Puerto Rico, uh, the word commonwealth in this case really is just a euphemism for colony. It is akin to the U.S. Department of War, branding itself as the Department of Defense, basically. Good answer. All right. Um, next question. One of the things Puerto Ricans have been able to do uh, as part of their ownership by the mainland has been to migrate. Give us, if you can, a sense of what migration by people from Puerto Rico, um, what it looks like and what it means, uh, given its enormous size and importance. Um, well, the imposition of the U.S. citizenship in Puerto Rico in the early 20th century has served as a sort of skateball during times of economic hardship in the archipelago. There have been several migration waves from Puerto Rico to the United States to the point that now around twice as many Puerto Ricans live in the U.S. mainland than they do in the archipelago. Um, there was a great exodus of Puerto Ricans uh, of about half a million of us into the United States from the 1950s to the 1960s. And, um, more recently, there has been another great exodus uh, during this last decade, which saw a record 130,000 Puerto Ricans move to the mainland in 2018 alone. Um, a particular feature of this latest migration wave is, is what has been termed a brain drain, which references the fact that there are many young professionals leaving. Um, in fact, the probability of uh, someone migrating from Puerto Rico uh, as a graduate degree is twice as high as someone residing uh, on the island. Um, essentially, we are spending resources educating young professionals to go work in the U.S. labor market. Uh, and this portends some catastrophic consequences for the economy in Puerto Rico. Um, chief among those consequences is the reduction in the tax base. Uh, as the population continues to decline, so does the tax base, and therefore the state's coffers, further hampering the ability of the government to pay the debt. You now have a shrinking workforce supporting an increasing number of retirees, which is unsustainable. Um, Puerto Rico is faced with an aging population that increasingly cannot provide for. The Junta has already put pension costs on the table uh, as part of their austerity measures. So, uh, therefore, I believe that the impact of migration has been mostly negative for the island. And uh, furthermore, I would add that the word migration doesn't do it justice. The reality is that Puerto Ricans are being violently uh, displaced by austerity measures, by privatization, by crippling poverty, and by crippling inequality. Uh, it is discussing economic, economic conditions, but to be behind the great exodus of Puerto Ricans into the United States. Yeah, you know, it's uh, common in my own studies that this word migration has been kind of hijacked into suggesting that it is some kind of casual choice 
of people who want even better than they already have. Most of the time, migration is a terribly difficult thing for human beings to do, ripped away from their uh, communities of origin, their families, their localities, their language, their cuisine, their churches, all the parts of life to go to a place where they cannot speak the language, where they have to learn everything from scratch, where they are often confronting hostile um, relationships with the police and with their neighbors. People do not do that usually unless they are desperate. So the real question is to ask what are the conditions that provoke um, an emigration before you attach some kind of notion of casual choice to this matter, uh, and especially if you have any morality at all, if you face the privation that drives migration, um, then you'd have a different attitude. You couldn't possibly treat immigrants the way, for example, the United States is now famous for at its southern border. Okay, I don't want to leave people with all of just the negatives. I know enough to know that in Puerto Rico there are people who understand what you have explained to us, who see the situation. What are the movements for change in Puerto Rico? Are there movements for independence? Are there movements for a different economic system? Tell us a little bit about how Puerto Ricans are reacting to the very story you've told. Well, uh, I believe that in Puerto Rico, the uh, labor movement has suffered uh, a bit of a setback with the privatization of the power company because they have one of the strongest unions uh, in the country, which is still active, but uh, less powerful now with the privatization drive. Um, I think that undoubtedly the independent party has the most worker-oriented platform. However, uh, it's not a socialist party. Um, it remains to be seen whether that party can rise to the occasion as a sort of vanguard party that will galvanize the uh, visceral working class discontent uh, brewing in Puerto Rico. Uh, but despite the absence of that organizational structure, that working class discontent is powerfully manifesting protests and movements across the island. Um, for instance, in the summer of 2019, as many as one million Puerto Ricans hit the streets to demand the resignation of former governor Ricardo Rosselló. Uh, that was after a leaked telegram chat with members of his cabinet and top aides exposed them using misogynist and homophobic slurs. Um, there, there also have been huge marches on May Day with workers repudiating the junta and the banks. There are ongoing rehabilitation projects of abandoned buildings by the Colectiva Feminista, which is a feminist and anti-capitalist organization that, I, that is fighting against displacement in Puerto Rico. You also have the Jornada Se Acabaron Las Promesas, uh, another anti-capitalist group that has been protesting against the Junta. You also have uh, conservationist groups that are actively organizing protests to defend natural resources and protect land across the country. And recently, in one of those protests, a private security guard opened fire against a crowd of protesters and shot one on the way. Oh. I believe that those bullets firing to the crowd of protesters are a physical and violent manifestation of the class warfare being waged against all Puerto Ricans. Uh, but these violent acts are helping the people gain awareness of that class warfare. There is now a working class consciousness in embryo that I believe will give birth to a free and independent Puerto Rico. All right, Alexis, it's very, very good that you end up 
our interview. I wish we had more time. But you have described both the conditions and the human reactions to those conditions. It's clear that anti-colonialism is as alive as the colonialism that provokes it. I want to thank you, and I want to say to all of my audience, and as always, I look forward to speaking with you all again next week. <laughs> okay. I made an executive decision. I was going to play something from Steve Colbert, but I think I want to read Caroline's message, everybody. Maybe we'll just play the song at the end there, but... um. I just think this would be something to do, so I'm going to do it. So here we go. This is a message to Lightbringers, April 6th, 2023. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, the Galactics, the Earth Elements, the Fae Elders, the Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. Greetings, dear ones. We are, as always, very pleased to have a moment to speak with you today. Today, our writer wishes to speak with those amongst us whom you might term as extraterrestrial, off-planet, to ask star nations about their role in assisting humanity in these days of tremendous change and rebirth. So, Caroline Oceana Ryan. Greetings, friends. Thank you for speaking with me today. Star Nation representatives. Whoops. Okay. Here comes a, here comes a, a Star Nation representative. Caroline's coming online. Okay. I'm wondering what you are assisting us with that we have no idea about. Um... So the Star Nation representatives say, we are honored to assist. I understand from the current White Knight reports that there are ships landing near or hovering over disaster-struck areas and areas of conflict, such as Ukraine, Pakistan, Turkey, Syria, Afghanistan, and so on. We are very grateful that medical and other assistance is being provided to those who are suffering in troubled regions at this time. I am just wondering what else is happening in terms of benevolent intervention from our ET friends and family members. Of course, we see a great deal as we travel in the etheric, in our sleep state. Yet on a conscious level, Many rely on information received in meditation states and from various channelings, Star Nation's representatives. Of course, you are curious to know what is happening, that your news media is still too terrified, too overly controlled to answer. We will say <clears throat> that all of you are assisting us. <clears throat> So that as we say we, in reference to the work we are doing, we may not be including you in your waking state while in the human body. Yet we do include you in the sense that your spirit multi-locates to be with us 
in our work, as well as to be with you in your bodies, in your as your body sleeps, or in your deeper meditative states, in which you move dimensionally and energetically to various parts of the world or the cosmos. Turn the page here. <clears throat> I don't know too many human beings who think of themselves as your equal. I know you speak now from a number of intergalactic cultures, yet we tend to think of ourselves far more as requiring rescue than offering it star nation representatives. In fact, you are all highly skilled and highly aware and carrying a well-developed consciousness, or you would not be here now as a light bearer. Many of you also starseed. And Caroline goes on. How in the world are we assisting your Earth missions, star nations representatives? With your own missions, you are, you are many of you masters of light work in that you know how to manipulate energy that has been conformed into matter even in its denser forms so so that you are able to affect physical objects with high level focus and mental concentration as well as manipulate sophisticated technology from a distance via organic interface with a ship or whatever technology you are addressing. And Caroline says, good grief. And Star Nation representatives say, this is not strange or new to you in your quiet time of activity while the body sleeps, nor is it strange or new or unlikely to your higher aspects. All of your higher selves are very involved in the ascension process. We tap into the frequency of assisting Earth and her people and from there answer both humanity's calls and Earth's to know where we are welcome to assist without disturbance to anyone's life path. We hold all in a very high place of respect and honor. We are not here to interfere. Intervention is entirely different from interference, which you have also been subjected to for eons. We of the Ashtar Command do not support such. And Caroline goes on. And so, as we don't consciously call you in, you don't move in to help, Stardation representatives. As so many of us are in human form now, there is no way we could not be involved. Some calls may be unconsciously voiced, yet we hear them. This is interesting conversation here. Uh, uh, in light of Padme's reflections on people 
choosing to take their lives, you keep on sending universal light and energy and all the particulars of the needs to be met by all beings to experience uh, love for being in this this form, this beautiful form, and and participating in co-creating um, a place of peace on this planet. Many volunteered to come forward at this time to assist where needed while in a human body, regardless of the true race of beings they belong to on their home planet or star system. We cannot abandon them, nor anyone whom they are working with. The time is too crucial and the work too crucial to stand back when agreements were already formed between us and those family members who would incarnate here, stating how and in what instances we would intervene. Though some of that is subject to being revised per the events of the New Earth timeline. Turn the page here. Caroline, what about cries for help from those you are not related to or not directly working with, those who simply desire to call in your help for one issue or another, Star Nation's representatives? We confer amongst ourselves and with that person as they visit us in the etheric. Almost always now, The answer is yes, though the extent of our assistance is at times limited. Caroline, why is that? And what kinds of assistance assistance do you refer to, friends? Star Nation's representatives. Some of you have come in requiring that there be only minimal assistance from Star Nations. And so, we honor that. You have, in what might be called your idealism, requested that only emergency support be provided by us and our technology. Yes, that is so. In any event, you have heard the the phrase that has been spoken to contactees. For example that you will not be allowed to destroy yourselves or your planet. Caroline, yes, Star Nations, representatives, this is so. It is not a philosophy. It is universal law, and we follow it. You inquired regarding the kinds of types of assistances we offer, and this will vary depending on the Earth culture requiring support and the galactic culture answering that request, and the needs of the moment. At times, as you have noted, we give actual humanitarian aid, food, shelter, clean water, medical assistance, to those whom your Earth governments have abandoned. Yes, the situation on the Earth is that dire in places. And the energy is high enough overall that we are able to step in 
to assist, not only as you have requested, rather also as the veil between your will and ours grows thinner by the moment. We have spoken with your world leaders numerous times, numerous times, to remind them of the tenuous state of Earth's eco-balance and that their own safety and their and that of their families, even their empire, is at stake now. They tend to believe that we are exaggerating, or rather, they prefer to behave as though we are. Yet they understand that as they do not cease, as they do not cease their war machine, the dirty fuel use and the incessant overproduction of unnecessary goods that are quickly used as quickly and, and as quickly discarded, we will step in full force as we would in the case of certain cases of warfare. And Caroline says, you've done so before to prevent nuclear war. For one, Star Nation representatives, we have indeed and then Caroline, what else might we know, friends, that we rarely or never hear of? And I'm turning the page. <clears throat> Star Nations representatives, we are feeling that some are not aware that they sit on galactic councils and assist in the decision-making regarding what on the earth will be aided and what will be left to your own devices. Many, most, are unaware of the true rank or role in their own star-based societies, as well as their true family and true soul partner. They have allowed the distractions of a dense planet to pull them away from their true selves and to delude them with feelings of loss when they feel they are getting older or have not accomplished this or that or have little currency saved or fail in some way in their duty to their loved ones. None of this describes any of you in your truest state. You exceed all limitations, all limitations imposed upon you by the energetic entrainment and mental-emotional programming of so many Earth lives, or even only a few Earth lives. Humanity is coming out of its hypnotic trance now, though it has taken thousands of years to progress to where you are now. Your leaders are aware of this, and it is driving them to drastic actions, drastic actions, in an effort to pull humanity's vibration back down to manageable, in quotations, levels. Interestingly, as they launch one dark scheme or event or another, in order to accomplish this, Earth beings grow all the more adept at waking up and recognizing the dark ploys. You will not return to the consciousness level of 100 or even 50 
or 20 years ago. It is impossible. You are being remade. You are being made on a molecular level. And your awareness of this too is growing. The etheric realms are likewise evolving ever upward. The vast majority of you no longer wish to be caught in what some call the karmic cycle. The repeating patterns in which you live one earth life after another, unable to get past certain events, relationships, or roles, feeling doomed to repeat them as you attempt in each new life to finally resolve these old ruts and narrow designations. That time is past now, and none need fear otherwise. Caroline, would you say that some of us are starship captains or commanders, and some are explorers, healers, ambassadors, cultural translators, star nations representatives? Of course, these and far more besides. Look at what you most value and enjoy this earth life. There are many clues all around you, within your own heart space, though many of you desire to be aboard a great ship and to grasp your many abilities and fully develop siddhas. We wonder, as the greatest adventure of them all is looking into your own heart space, finding what needs to be healed there, or to sing its song and to walk the path to allow the fullness of that journey. And so, in healing yourselves, you heal whole aspects of human the page here, whole aspects of human consciousness and your earth. And Caroline says, that is the hardest journey, friends. Yet it seems to be what we signed up for, Star Nation's representative. Yes, indeed. And no need to feel sad as a result. You are all moving forward so beautifully. We would say, release any defensiveness you may be carrying at present from past or current situations. Those whom you feel have injured you were only performing their role, however crude that may have been, in showing you what you have not yet healed and what work there is to be done there. Those who left you before you wanted them to leave were likewise fulfilling an agreement formed in the higher realms before you were born. Even seeming abandonments carry their own gifts and those you have desired to love who have not fully seen you or whom you have yet to meet, they too are fulfilling the agreement to show up for you in certain ways and at a certain time. All of it is sacred. All of it as you desired and designed before incarnating. Caroline, will those who have felt oddly out of place, who know, who know deep down they are starseed. Will they ever feel at home here? Star Nation representatives, all life on this planet moves to a higher vibration, yes. 
perhaps not fully until then. Yet this is part of the cultural anthropology, that these ones desired before volunteering to assist Earth and humanity at this time. Caroline, and we are moving ahead from what you can see, Star Nations representatives, more fully each day, the light flowing into your atmosphere shall never abandon you to the former way of life. Caroline, as we heal ourselves, do we do we hasten forward the times when Earth is restored fully and freed by way of the stars enactments? Star Nations representative, of course, this is one reason why we encourage you to walk that path, which is so clearly laid before each of you, to attend to your own fast-rising consciousness and the requirements of your own inner life. Caroline, perhaps we are doing that too slowly? And the Star Nation's representatives, we cannot judge you. Each path determines its own place of growth. Caroline, we so look forward to seeing ships decloak and show themselves fully. I have several friends who have witnessed this, yet all I notice are cloud ships, which are still an encouragement, yet not the ones that we really reveal, that have really revealed themselves. Star Nation's representatives, in every path, there are reasons for what is witnessed and what is not. You have witnessed ships by being aboard them in your sleep state. These moments came to you as images similar to the dream state, and this too is vital. Many are experiencing this now. For those who have not, they may request such, though at times, the subconscious, fearing such experiences, will have strong boundaries up will have strong boundaries up that prevent conscious awareness of such. Caroline, a friend's mother came in from the other side during a channeling session recently and said to her daughter, you won't believe what's happening on the earth. Militaries being defused, their technology no longer functioning as it once did government leaders being visited or taken up on the ships and spoken to about the terms of surrender to the light and what they must do for their countries and the earth now. Mother Earth is being released of so much toxicity. People awakening and traveling more etherically at night. Women regaining their goddess selves, standing strong for themselves. It is astounding. Would you say all that is true? Star Nations represents every inch of it. So much being revealed now. And ancient technologies long hidden in the earth. And the energies of sacred sites now awakening that have long been dormant. Humanity feels that intuitively as well. And an increase, and an increase in ship sightings and ET interventions, Star Nation representatives, 
Yes, as we say, you have invited us here, and so have the light codes flowing into the earth now. Those with even the slightest inclination to integrate these energies with their conscious, everyday selves are doing so increasingly now. The old deceptions that have held you back for so long are increasingly ineffective now. They are being upended. Caroline, thank you, my friends. I hope we will speak again. Star Nation's representatives, of course, we serve all with an open heart from the vibration of oneness. And namaste. And you know what I'm going to do now, Rainbird. I'm passing this talking stick with all the angels, the fairies, the feathers, the rainbows, the manahunis, the uh, the Sasquatch, and that emerald serpent feather one is relentlessly with us here and now. And I pass this talking stick. Here it comes. All right. I got it. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just didn't have those bunnies and eggs on it. (laughs) Oh, please add them, please. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, happy Easter. Happy Easter back to you. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. And thank you for tonight and today and this afternoon and yesterday. What did did you say, Rainbird? What did you just say? I said thank you for tonight and this afternoon and all day. (laughs) All day, all night on Saturdays. (laughs) I know, I know. Sunday morning, too. (laughs) And Sunday morning, too. That's right. (laughs) It's a marathon. Happy, happy Easter. Yeah, and so let's set our alarms for 3 o'clock this afternoon. Oh, yes, Maitreya. Uh-huh, Maitreya. I always call him Maitreya of Gold, Maitreya of Gold. Maitreya of Gold. Yeah, and and Cheryl has it all lined up for (laughs) our prayer with Maitreya. Absolutely. Um, All like the message said, Caroline was pointing out, they're all here and walking right beside us, and we are another ourselves. Uh, A meaning that uh, it's time for us to stop feeling like we're the lowest thing on the totem pole. That is the last thing that's true, right, Tigger? Oh no. Right, we're we're we we got this, and and we got reinforcements, and we, <laughs> and we got each other. We get it to do it in that unity space. There's a lot more energy there. So, yeah, um, yes, uh, I I am in I am infused with excitement. Mm. I I can feel it, and yes. Uh, it, there's some kind of an inner bliss ball running around in here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 really. And, and, yeah, I resemble that remark. Let's do this. Let's do it together. 
Okay. I passed uh, the talking stick. Okay, Rawa. It's well, yours. Okay. What you got there for us? This is Alan Watts. What are you? Okay. What are you? I wonder if it's ever struck you how curious a thing it is that most of the things that we experience we regard as things that happen to us which we ourselves do not originate which are events expressing some sort of power or activity that is external to ourselves and if you consider that you realize that what you mean by yourself is rather narrowly circumscribed even events that go on in our own bodies are put in the category of things that happen to us in the same way as things that go on in the world outside our skins if there's a thunderstorm or an earthquake well it happens to you you're not responsible for it but so in the same way when you have hiccups you didn't plan on it if you have belly rumbles you had no intention of doing it and as to the catastrophic act of getting born well you had nothing to do with that and you can spend all your life blaming your parents for putting you in the situation in which you find yourself uh you regard yourself as an accident biological accident in a stupid universe which is mechanical but has no feelings no finer feelings a vast pointless gyration of radioactive rocks and gas in which uh, you happen to occur because if you don't have that point of view and you are more traditional you look upon yourself as a child of god and therefore under authority in other words there's a big boss on top of all this who allowed you at his pleasure to deign to have the disgusting effrontery to exist and uh you better watch your p's and q's because that almighty is looking after you with the attitude of this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you and uh when you look at the world in that image or in the other image that it's a stupid mechanism either point of view you take uh you don't really belong you are not really part of all this and i could use a stronger word than part only we don't have it in english we have to say something like um connected with it essential to it uh or to put it in the strongest possible way 
it is quite alien to Western thought to conceive that the external world, which is defined as something that happens to you, and your body itself as something that you got caught up with, it is quite alien to our thought to consider all that as you yourself. You very soon realize that your existence is not something that is just the uh, hopeless little creature that's suddenly confronted with a great big external world that goes at him, you know, and eats him up. Every tiniest little thing that comes into being, every minute little fruit fly or gnat or bacterium, I will go so far as to say is an event upon which this whole cosmos depends. This thing goes both ways. It's not only that every little organism which exists depends on its total environment. The reverse is also true, that the total environment depends on each and every one of those little organisms. So that you could say, this universe consists of an arrangement of pattern in which every event is essential to the whole thing. Pattern keeps going. And it's always you. Only you see you have this marvelous capacity to transform yourself without knowing that you're doing it. Therefore, you keep surprising yourself. And therefore, you keep on doing it. Because if you didn't surprise yourself, you wouldn't, go, you wouldn't go on doing it. It's just the very fact, you see, that you seem to be the victims of the thing you don't understand, and that you seem to conclude your life every time in a wipeout called death, where all your control goes. It's just exactly that opposite condition to what you call being alive that allows you to be alive. Only every time it happens, it's like it's new. Like every time you're born, it seems like it was the only time. Whatever that means, said he was. <laughs> and you're in the old Passover, so uh, Ramadan. Okay. Satnam. Ramadan. 13. Thank you, honey. Part no evil, live long and prosper. Aloha. Namaste, everybody. Sweet your <coughs>